Um, is meant by sophistication, uh, authentic as much as possible to the um, characters and the world that they're in, whether it's uh, Mean Streets or uh, Age of Innocence, uh, as authentic as possible. Um, yes, there are certain worlds I know better than others, but ultimately it's the, it's the characters, it's the people that carry me through. So it has to be authentic to the character. Uh, this, maybe that's where sophistication comes in. I'm not quite sure what is meant by sophistication in this case. It could be a sophistication of utilizing, you know, the medium, the camera. But the more I shoot these days, the more I realize it's um, of an older kind. Um, when I see young people using uh, the social media or uh, recording uh, events or just speaking to each other through iPhones, and you know, that's a whole new visual language that's that's happening and that's um, going to be as uh, how should I put it as uh, commonplace to my generation as cinema or television was to us um, this is a whole way of seeing the world that's very very different so in terms of uh, sophistication I think I still find myself trying to find ways to use the image uh, in a simpler way and almost more formal even I'm not quite sure but it has to do with the authenticity to the characters and the world they're in. The New Beverly Cinema presents the Pure Cinema Podcast. Scorsese Part 3. We have made it to the Mount Olympus. <laughs> oh boy. Well, this one took a while, too. Yeah. I feel I like... I feel like we let him down. I mean, not really, but we took a long time to get to this part. Yeah, no, but I mean, he, these movies are longer. This is like definitely his epic period. Uh, I'd say that's one thing you notice straight away from looking. I think there's only, maybe only one film under or even close to the two-hour mark here, right? Everything else is over? I'd say so, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think substantially. It's so it's, you know, and it's, and, and also we, re, you know, recently on the beautiful thing they call the film Twitter, we saw, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, people giving grief to uh, his collaborative partner and editor, uh, which is pretty much madness. Yeah. Because uh, she's been with him since what? Um, Raging Bull? Yeah, I think so. I want to say since 1980. Yeah, and and they've had one, I would say, one of the best collaborative uh, relationships in movies. 100%. So, you know, that's, obviously, I don't give a lot of weight to, you know, thankfully, in my life, I don't give a lot of weight to the idea of film Twitter or even these kind of aberrations that pop up, but it is interesting when they're that wrong. Uh, (laughs) Because it's also not, uh, the running time of a movie is also really not... I don't think necessarily that much the domain of the editor. Totally not. And I think that's what, you know, not to get too sidetracked, but we were talking about it off mic. I think there's a lot of people, you know, throwing editors around when movies like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood Mm -hmm. come out and they run two hours and 41 minutes acting like the editor didn't do their job if the movie runs long. I'm like, you guys think about this. This is a creative collaboration between two people. It's not like he just suddenly decided, ah, I'll let this run. (laughs) 
Yeah, and the and really the director, the only people who are going to get away with a running time like that are directors who've bought major cachet in their careers uh, in terms of studios. So Absolutely. there's a reason they get to this point. But I mean, I think when we look through these, some of these, uh, the Marty films will be more earned than others. I still love that quote, you know, every movie should be 100 minutes and, uh, you, you know, you get 100 minutes free and every minute after you get, have to earn. Yeah. Um, and some of them, you, you know, you'll see how they earn it. And some it's like materially. I think the concept of the epic, you know, when it's, when you're covering a biopic or something, it's always earned or, you know, whether you like the movie or not, you understand why a movie's longer when they're trying to cover such a substantial period. Um, but yeah, we'll get in, we'll get into that as we go. But this one's definitely a different period in his work. We, you know, I, I think we both agree part two was the, our favorite to do because the period of filmmaking is kind of where he's hitting his stride with his technique and they also feel very personal. Yeah. Uh, and I just, I love everything about this period. And this period, for me, it's far less personal in terms of my connection to the movies, even when the great, even though he has some great movies in here, a couple that I, I you know, dare say are like masterpieces, but more objective masterpieces than my subjective lists would totally. be. Yeah, like you know, there's not an after hours in this group no. necessarily. I mean, you could make comparisons to a certain film, but yeah. not really. There, but, but there could, yeah, definitely le- less in terms of that sense of humor. But there could be, there's a couple in here that I could see generation, generationally might latch onto, especially one towards the end where I could imagine that becoming a poster movie in the way that you know Scarface is on somebody's poster for De Palma and you're oh it's a it must be surprising because at the time you know in 1984 whatever whenever Scarface is out you wouldn't necessarily think that's going to be how it's going to hit like that 40 years later college kids yeah would put that on every dorm dorm room that you go into it's certainly not what you're thinking right when you make these movies or if they like or even the thing when the thing comes out and doesn't do particularly well and then it becomes the the film so I do think there'll be a couple in here that maybe tick that box that would be hard to know um, but we're also, you know, this is an exciting time to be recording this. You know, we, one thing that, you know, I think deserves to be up top more than in the, the rest of the show is like the fact that we, and we're just talking about off mic, you know, we have just watched in this last few weeks leading up to the show, we've watched, I don't even know how many, five at <laughs> least, uh, DiCaprio performances, key DiCaprio performance. And even more interesting, you're watching him literally grow up because he, you know, it's like every couple of years with Scorsese uh, and really challenging material, uh, sometimes, you know, boxing uh, what, what might seem above his weight in terms of like how what the role calls for, but then delivering. And watching those these films in a row, and I, I found it really interesting. At first, I wasn't actually into it. I, I will be honest. I was just like, uh, I don't know how that's going to be. I think it dragged my heels a bit to jump into it. But then once I got into the movies, I started to really respect what he was doing. And for that to culminate in Tarantino's film recently, having, having just seen all these DiCaprio films in what I truly believe might be his, his best suited role, where I, just, I felt like I got to see all these different shades come out of that film. Obviously, this isn't, isn't an episode about that movie, but I think there there is a connection. It's also a connection because Nubev was playing the aviator and looking at Leo's career. Um, but, you know, there, there's no question in my mind now. I, I, I off, you know, uh, Monty Hellman once, one of those classes I went to his house where he said, uh, in his opinion, there's no more, are there any movie stars left? He's like, is there anyone left on this planet who you can actually call a movie star in the sense that people would buy the ticket without even knowing what the movie is rather than like, oh, it looks like a cool DiCaprio movie, so let's go versus just it's a DiCaprio movie. And after watching this, I kind of feel like, yeah, I think there's two left. I think it's Cruz <laughs> and DiCaprio. Yeah. I think they're the only two, though. I don't think George Clooney's in that same strata. It's like there's great actors and there's people who are really famous and popular. Brad Pitt's popular, you know, but I think there is a difference. Like, would you just go to the movie because that person – I'm not talking about me and you. I'm just talking about your general yeah. ticket going. So so I, I think seeing him play an actor in that movie 
was so fascinating and doing it in a way that, especially somebody who's been an acting since they're a kid. But I don't think that performance happens without these films. Absolutely not. And so I think, and even though we've been talking about primers for seeing Tarantino's new film a lot uh, on the calendar episodes, I feel like this is just as relevant. It's like we're watching the lead in to how DiCaprio gets this wealth of experience as the film actor, having seen all sides of the industry, working with a director he trusts time and time again. Uh, you know, like weirdly enough, this left me excited to see what he would do now that it's been a bit of a break between, you know, because there's been a film in between and we know that with The Irishman, that's going to be another film he's not in. It makes me excited to see what they would do one more time now that Leo's like firmly an adult. Like, you know, he'll be a, he'll be a 40-year-old-plus man the next time they work together. Whereas he was never out of his 30s, I think, with Wolf of Wall Street. So I'm curious to see what that is. Well, and also coming off a very introspective role, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, mm-hmm. into whatever else he does. Like mm-hmm. it, I just can't imagine that a craftsman, an actor on his level, doesn't uh, isn't somehow changed by that experience. Yeah. Playing that kind of character, thinking about it and how it applies to his own life or not. Um, but just moving forward. like I'm, I'm sure curious. it also prepared him to be the cineast he needed to be not he didn't need to be but he probably that he is because i from what i understand he really is into movies uh, i'm sure he's always into movies but working with scorsese that many times in a row i'm i'm sure that's just like an insane education yeah uh, an incredible film class yeah, so that's the prep we didn't get that prep to go into a room with quentin <laughs> unfortunately we did not get five movies with uh marty so we could go do an interview with quentin we just had to go in the room but uh you know we kind of held our own. Yeah, we kind of. We did okay. <laughs> I feel like we did okay. Now, now we have to brace ourselves. If we ever meet Marty, that would maybe be too oh much. Oh my god! Well, thankfully, yeah, I, I feel like he is able to hold back a little bit in a way. I think you, I've seen him get going on things, oh, yeah, yeah. but you can also just sense the the calm of the ocean of knowledge that lies beneath. You know, I think the Tibetan way has helped. <laughs> definitely <laughs> has helped. Yes. Uh, chill Marty. Uh, 25, 28-year-old Marty would demolish us. Totally. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, the guy who was in the editing room of Raging Bull. <laughs> we, we might not stand a, a chance. No. Uh, but yeah, so part three, where you know, these are different movies. Uh, we might as well just jump right in. Yeah. Because this is always a pretty epic endeavor. But uh, the first film, uh, which is Kundun from 97. So our last film was Casino. Yep. So taking the cachet of Casino, which was really well received, um, and and a, you know an epic film in itself, uh, to make this film that he'd been trying to make for a very long time, uh, and obviously very personal to him, uh, is is fascinating because I, as to lead off, I had never seen this film. A revolt has broken out in the east. We have decided that the Tibetan army must be used against the Kampa guerrillas. General Tan. Our people would never. You do not understand our people. I will not approve that. You have bombed on peaceful people. It is my job to deal with reactionaries. No, we are peace-loving people. We are here to heal the people of Tibet. You need reform. We are here to liberate you. No, Buddha is a physician, General Tan. He will heal us. Wisdom and compassion will set us free. You cannot liberate me, General Tan. I can only liberate myself. And this film, for example, a lot of the, the way I got into the mood of this picture was we did, uh, looked at a lot of, uh, I just happened to be looking at De Sica films, Vittorio De Sica and uh, Bicycle Thief and uh, Gold of Naples. And also Sajit Ray's uh, Pate Panchali. That puts you in a certain mood. Doesn't mean that this picture no way is going to look like those. So, except that we have a five-year-old boy, six-year-old boy in this Kunga from India, who reminds me of the boy in the De Sica films. 
particularly the boy playing cards <laughs> in uh, Gold of Naples. In a sense, you can't compare the two because I said with De Sica, you have improvisation, you have, you know, uh, Eduardo de Filippo, uh, it's a different thing. Here it's uh, Buddhism and it's uh, written, wonderful, wonderfully written script by Melissa Matheson, so it's, it's more controlled, I think. You touch upon him maybe in the look of Kunga every now and then, he has a look on his face because he's a five-year-old kid. I was, I was a little unsure if I'd seen it. Um, I, I was the same, actually. Yeah, it was like I remember it being promoted when it came out, and I guess it's 97, so the same year as Lost Highway, I believe. So I was going to most stuff. I, I think it was just the subject matter at the time just didn't uh, turn me on, and uh, so it took all these years. So this is, I only have two new viewings. I don't know about you in this entire uh, grouping. It's this film and the last film, I think but, which was his most recent Yeah, film. I think that's the same for me. Yeah. Um, so this is so some cool tidbits. This is written by Melissa Matheson, who wrote E.T. Uh, and sadly passed away last year. Uh, uh, Philip Glass does the score. Great score. Uh, Roger like Deakins score. shoots. I kind of wanted to note who shot each one, even though it's usually the same, but it just between Deakins and Richardson, I, I found it interesting in this period. Um, so, yeah, basically, uh, I think we'll butcher the politics of it if we even try, but uh, it's obviously about the the first, well, the Dalai Lama, uh, the, the child who would replace the Dalai Lama, who would be, the re, I guess, the reincarnation of the Dalai Lama. At, initially, it's about, like, kind of the search, which isn't a big part of the film because they kind of stumble upon this young boy who they believe is the reincarnation. And what's cool about the boy is he's kind of cheeky and, you know, he's kind of like, he reminds me of my kid who, you, you, who <laughs> if he was, it would take a lot of work to, <laughs> to ingrain that he's the Dalai Lama. Uh, and there's a lot about the religion and a lot about the politics that I just knew n nothing about. I mean, I know who the Dalai Lama is now, and I see him out there, and I, I, I have a real soft spot for him, like compared to any other religious leader. He's the one I, I always kind of go, oh, I like this guy. And it's probably because the message seems super simple. But how he got to that, I, hadn't, I knew nothing. I think my history with the Dalai Lama goes back to, like, Caddyshack. So I tell him I'm a pro Jack. And who do you think they give me? The Dalai Lama himself. The 12th son of the Lama. The flowing robes, the grace, bald. <sighs> Striking. So I'm on a first tee with him. I give him the driver. He hauls off and whacks one. Big hitter, the Lama. Long. Into a 10,000 foot crevice right at the base of this glacier. Do you know what the Lama says? No. Gunga Galunga. Gunga Gunga La Gunga. So we finish 18, and he's going to stiff me. And I say, hey, Lama, hey, how about a little something, you know, for the effort, you know? And he says, oh, uh, there won't be any money. But when you die on your deathbed, you will receive total consciousness. So I got that going which is nice. <laughs> that's like really, you know, Bill Murray's story about Caddyshack. So that's what you paired it with? Yes, Caddyshack. <laughs> I thought it was the best. Man, if you did that, I'd be pretty impressed. It's, what I did pair it with is kind of close, actually. Okay, good. But yeah, no, it's, so basically it looks at how they have to work and shape this boy uh, into, the, you know, the future leader of this religion. And so there's, you know, lots of fascinating things. There's some betrayals. But what it really becomes about is, uh, and this is the part I, I did find interesting, especially not knowing much about it, is really about the role of Tibet. Because I've been seeing signs for, you know, my whole adult life saying free Tibet, but not really understanding what that meant. And obviously that's really what the history of that is what this film is about. It's about China's role uh, taking over Tibet uh, and basically him having to decide whether he should leave the country 
country uh, and kind of flee so he can keep spreading the word for the rest of his life or be possibly killed and and die a martyr or you know be held captive for the rest of his life so it's and it's a really obviously a very difficult decision uh, for the character to make and you know so you're seeing a lot of stuff about Mao and communism but it's like I, I would say I knew next to nothing about the specific part of history I knew a little bit about China but watching it I would say my reaction to the movie is more I found myself finding it compelling because I was interested in what the story was because I didn't know it, but I was never quite inside the story. I didn't necessarily um, bond or feel like I understood the world. Yeah, I feel the same way. I've, and I realized what I think what it was is not that I hadn't seen the movie hmm. at all, but that I had tried to watch it two or three times. And to be completely honest, it took me another two times to get through it, and which mm. sounds terrible because it really makes it sound like the movie is a chore. It's not good. And I got to be honest, like with everybody, it's about me. It's really about me and material that for whatever reason, I just cannot connect to. And I don't really understand why. Uh, it's just when I'm watching it, I keep waiting to be engaged by it. And towards the end, I felt myself more engaged. But it's just really and I talked to you about this off mic, too, about how it's there's this thing that happens in a couple of these movies where you have um, actors in a foreign country speaking English and it feels weird. Mm. Uh, I think that just makes it, it lifts it up just above a uh, quote unquote reality for me in a way where suddenly I'm like, yeah, I just, this doesn't feel real mm. in, in a way that I, that I need it to feel real in order to connect to it. And I'm not saying it's the total fault of that. There's other things obviously going on with me that I can't quantify, but yeah, I was really sad that it, it just didn't connect with me. And I even went so far as I logged it on Letterboxd, but I didn't rate it mm. because I'm like, I just don't feel comfortable rating it. Like I know this is a well-made film and I know this is a film that a lot of people appreciate and for whatever reason, I'm just not in a place to appreciate it right now. And maybe later I will. I and we're know. pretty honest about, you know, it's and it's hard because uh, I'm sure somebody, this is somebody's, you know, well, maybe it's it would be a weird if it was your favorite Scorsese because it is so, un, unless you don't like his other work in yeah. some way. It's And that's not about the quality, it's just about the type of filmmaking. I find it's a lot more observational. Uh, so that's the approach is to be more observational about and quieter, which isn't really what he's known for. Usually his camera's driving force and moving, and that's not what this is about. The, yeah. the cinematography is gorgeous. The color palette is probably the standout uh, thing of the movie with all the reds and orange and yellow, and that's the thing that I kind of... It's still in my mind and kind of the quietness of it. Um, but, yeah. I mean, sadly, it's not on Blu-ray until later this year, and we both had to watch it on a DVD. Yeah, to which, buy it. Yeah, so it would be nice to see it in a Blu-ray. That would help, but, yeah. So, yeah, so, and something I talked about to you afterwards, because we were pretty honest about in part two, I believe, towards the, with the Last Temptation of Christ, is, like, being able to recognize craft, which that film has, you know, some brilliant craft and scope, and, and, and also understand that that would really connect to the right person. Like, I think it would be, like, religious upbringing and interest. I could see why somebody that would be even their favorite in a way, if that's their thing, but I I could not get inside that movie either. I mean, we've said it before. After Hours is our favorite Scorsese movie. Yeah, so coming so from that point of view, you exactly. can kind of guess maybe this isn't going to be. But the I, thing. but it took seeing them all, and if I if I have any big insight from all three of these movies and I've, I, all three of these chapters we've done, this is the only insight I really have. Besides, you know, Marty's one of the best filmmakers we'll ever have. But it, it and I've talked it to you about it recently was that uh, the 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 purposefully. Uh, or subject-driven spiritual films he's making don't work for me personally. And obviously there's another one at the end of this this chapter. But uh, and, and I see it very clearly that 
they are about religion and for whatever reason my brain kind of turns off but what it reinforced to me is that every one of his films is a spiritual film and every one of his films has that as a preoccupation even if they don't seem to I think because he has it as a preoccupation but I am far more interested when he couches it in genre uh, because I think that's who he is. I think as a filmmaker, I think if he has a great talent and thing that he's lent cinema, it's that he's taken these preoccupations that might be about Christ or Buddhism or whatever it is, and he has put them in these characters dealing with what it's like to be a modern human having to fight for your soul or fight between choices. And we'll see a couple of, of really good examples coming up in this list of movies, I think, that show that better than when he actually makes it about the subject. And I can see why, you know, he also makes a lot of documentaries that we obviously haven't covered that that he could, I could see him doing this as a documentary and then going, oh, but, but he's just, he has not done with it. So he has to make this. And and I think that's what makes auteur is interesting is these obsessions. And sometimes it's the ones that don't work for you that make that person even more unique as a filmmaker because they're not just there to please you. Well, it shows a complexity to me that I'm like, okay, he's he's beyond me. Like, yeah. Not that I didn't ever think he was, mm -hmm. but when I see that stuff, I'm like, he's clearly got this religious preoccupation, this idea of uh, his existence and God and things beyond himself that he's wrestling with in his filmmaking. And I think I respect the hell out of that. And I think that that's one of the things where I'm just like, you're, you're above my head is yeah. part of it for me. And, and there's other things going on. But I mean, at the end of the day, you still have the same kid who was brought up religious, but who loved Hollywood movies and who basically took that religion, like you said, and put it into genre. But he also loved re religious epics, mm -hmm. you know, uh, King of Kings, you know, stuff like that. And I think obviously this is, he does, he takes some of that. And so he's still got, he's still kind of doing what he does, but it's not genre in the traditional sense. I would also, I totally agree. I'd also throw this out there, you know, guilt. I mean, this is a guy, you know, if you're joining the Catholic or uh, if you're going to become a, in the seminary or something, you know, guilt plays a major role in that. If you're coming off Goodfellas or Casino, Casino, which has one of the most grotesquely violent scenes I think ever filmed yeah. and in a way that I think is very earned because I truly think it, that if that happened to somebody, it would be as ugly and horrible as that, you know. But when you put that on film, that's that's like you're, you're really pushing something out there. And I'm sure there's a part of his brain that feels like a real crushing guilt that he makes something that's like that, but also super entertaining. That there's probably a part of him that goes, I got to make a religious thing. I got to say sorry. And so I'm do my penance. <laughs> this is your, so I'm not going to say that's no, just I, that. No, there's definitely something I, to that. I think there's something to that. But yeah. um, anyway, so, you know, it didn't, didn't this one, uh, actually, weirdly enough, that even it's this the opposite of you, and we'll get to the other two. Of the three, Last Temptation of Christ, this, and uh, the final one that we'll be talking about, Silence, at the end of this, I think, weirdly enough, maybe I found this the most interesting but it was more about information hmm. I, I that's so it wasn't really actually the filmmaking it was actually more like oh i didn't know that okay that's interesting just because i think it was like going into a world i knew nothing about uh, and there weren't western actors i think there's something about me seeing the western actors in these some of these roles that maybe i find that is harder for me to buy into the world if that makes sense but we'll sure. get to we'll get to our the last one i, think. I also noted this is just a weird note throwaway i said i said this feels like something wes anderson must be a fan of mm. i think part of it has to do with the way it's shot there's a lot of very um uh people looking right at camera yeah people talking in a way uh, disseminating information i don't know there's something about wes anderson does that in his movies mm. he does facing camera people spewing information and there was just something about the way that it plays i can't even explain it the tone of it 
that felt not Wes Anderson like a comedy or a drama, not like one of his movies, but something he would watch and be like, yeah, you know. Well, there was one scene where I think it's a chairman of China or something, and he's kind of goofy and weird and has Mm -hmm. just a weird, he almost feels like a character from a different movie. Yeah. Like he's kind of, it is humorous and like he's kind of presented in a ludicrous kind of way. Yeah, I just, I feel like he shot it a little different though. I thought there was a lot more head-on shots than moving camera and other things no it definitely sh- it's definitely like i said it's definitely more observation it's still yeah, composed that's what, that's what it is it's about the yeah. observational yeah. no he's he, he, he probably because yeah i'm sure also there's a lot of pressure to go into a foreign country yeah and the cool thing is he cast a lot of people really from the area and so yeah i think they're shot in morocco though um like a lot of films kind of replicating this but you know it's it's still amazing and i didn't realize like i'm watching that and going holy crap this guy still never went back to tibet you know like that's kind of it kind of that fact kind of blew my mind at the end but it's an interesting film and definitely presented as not the easiest for a pairing for what we're doing in my opinion this was one I came to super late uh, in my decisions but I want to hear yours first because <laughs> I'm going to force you to, to to go with your uh, okay. Caddyshack so, oh Caddyshack too. if that's the yes, answer well, you, you know win. I love Caddyshack too. Um, okay well it's Michael Ritchie we'll go with that to oh. start um, it's Eddie Murphy <laughs> Michael Ritchie and Eddie Murphy. Why is that not coming to my brain? Well, because you don't remember that Michael Ritchie directed this movie, which I didn't either. I'm talking about The Golden Child from 1986. Oh. Eddie Murphy is back. But this time, he's looking for a missing child. A golden child. This child is special, Mr. Giraud. His destiny is to save the world. And it's your destiny to seek some serious psychiatric help. Okay, may I ask you boys a couple of questions? By the time he finds you, it will be too late. Hey, hey, hey. In my pocket, it's a whole thing of Tic Tacs. It's take as many as you like, please. I could destroy you just like that. Just like that. You're wonderful. Nobody be alone. I'm Ma'am Chandler, General American Stolen Artifact Founders of America. He's irresponsible. A bed. Is that a bed? He's a careless, thoughtless, undisciplined fool. I should be punished. I should be purged. I should be flogged. You are the chosen one. You will find a child. Well, I do my best. <laughs> I'm so afraid of the dark, too. <laughs> I really don't like your attitude. You know, this is a nice jacket. It's a Morris Day feel, and it looks good on you. And the boots, smoking. Damn. Like I said, I went kind of silly, but I've not seen that since it came out on VHS at, at probably '87, <laughs> and I remember I remember very little about it now. I always forget that Michael Ritchie directed it, uh, so that's one thing. Uh, but it's neat to me because it feels like it's an adjacent universe to Big Trouble in Little China, uh-huh. which again I know ties nothing to Kundun. But even the even the title though does pair, like if you you could literally call Kundun the Golden, the golden Child, child and, that was, and it would actually be dead on. I mean, you know, it's 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 more fantastic, it's more magical. But yeah. I mean, the idea is that there is this this kid, this magical kid, and he's been kidnapped, and Eddie Murphy is this, like, you know, con artist, like, detective type, and he gets tired to try and help him, and it's this fish-out-of-water story. But it's very much like Jack Burton in the fantastic world, like him reacting to stuff that's crazy and being silly. And I think he's pretty funny. But so there's, like, the Asian magic. James Hong is in the movie. Victor Wong is in the movie. So you've got two Hmm. straight lines to Big Trouble. What year is that compared to Big Trouble? 86. So it's the same year as Big Trouble in China. Um and it has one of the three storms in it 
uh, as well as the female character is very similar to the Wang Chi Dennis Dunn character in Big. Uh-huh. She's kind of like the better fighter type, like, and she basically has superhuman fighting abilities. I know this doesn't really make sense, but for me, what was I, it about? Was it about kidnapping? I remember yeah, somebody's kidnapped in it. Yeah, it's like um, I don't know if he's he's not quite like the Dalai Lama, but he's yeah. like a holy child. It's he's a Tibetan boy. It's he's called the mystical golden child, and he's kidnapped. And humankind's fate hangs in the balance, basically. Um, and then this priestess goes to find it. So I can't remember how she comes across Eddie Murphy as the guy. He's, but she sees him hanging out with some kids, and he's good with children, and he finds children. That's what he does. There's actually a very funny scene at the beginning of the show where he's trying to find this kid and he just wants to read off this little flyer that he's got and he goes on this like public access show and the guy just like keeps cutting him off and like talking to other guests and he gets super annoyed and pissed off it's very funny anyway i i think for me when i see a movie that i think is a little heavier sometimes i get reactionary and i'm like i want something lighter i I want something that at least i can tie to it but that will give a totally different feeling and this is by far the most out there pairing that I do with this. And hopefully people won't think of it as a disrespectful pairing because it's huh. not what I intend at all. I just mean you've got one take that's much more grounded and uh, philosophical and then you've got something that's total fantasy. Oh, yeah. And no, I definitely do that later. And I do, and I always think about that. I always think, especially also if a movie's super long, I sometimes try to go for something shorter. It, I am thinking about these as like literally pairings, not just to be clever sometimes. Yeah. And that's, it wasn't just that, but it yeah. was just something where I'm like, what would be fun? What would be fun to watch after Kundun? And totally a change of pace. And I thought, all right, Golden Child, why not? Kundun's a blast. So fun. I'm, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying for it's, me. It's not. It's not that kind of movie. Kundun's, you're not watching Kundun for a, to, to drink and have yeah. a good time. Yeah, probably not. Probably <laughs> Maybe not. somebody is. Yeah. yeah. Uh, What'd we, you do? We just lost a couple of listeners I in know, Tibet. Excuse me. Sorry. Tibet is where we're losing that. No, I mean, I, I, it makes me kind of want to rewatch Golden Child. That's a movie I haven't I'm not thought trying to about. build after. up the Golden Child because it's not a perfect movie. Yeah. And I think Eddie's obviously done better movies, but I really feel like he's at the very edge of. Um, still that really great yeah. period, the post, uh, you know, Beverly Hills Cop, post 48 hours period, when he's still funny. Not I, that he's not still funny. But. I did the exact opposite. I did like the uber, even more serious. Fucking Bergman or something? No, even more serious and couldn't. I know this is one I stumbled upon. I had something else in there for a while. Um, but the thing that made me think about, the the one thing that my brain got going is like, what is the relevance of any of this stuff? Like when I watch something like, like even the relevance of the Dalai Lama, what's the relevance of anything in modern worlds? And I'm, uh, and I literally stumbled upon, uh, and so I started to think, I wonder what modern Buddhism was. And I, I don't know if I was searching for it. Little Buddha with Keanu Reeves. Uh, yeah, that could be, that could be good. Um, no, what's the Richard Gere one? Uh, Tibet, he has a Tibet movie. Oh fuck, I can't Every, remember. Everyone had, Keanu has on Tibet, you got Brad Pitt has on. Uh, no, no, this actually is the, a rare appearance of a documentary. Mm. which is something we don't do very often uh, because I stumbled upon it. It It's from 2017, so it's recent Japanese film, uh, and it's called The Departure, and it's directed by uh, Lena Wilson. And I had never heard of it, but I did remember the title. I think it was a New York Film Festival film, and I remember it maybe winning an award. Um, just did like one of those little facts in the back of your brain. Uh, and it's a, re- it actually is the perfect movie to watch with this, just in this sense. Like it, it was also really short, like seventy-five minutes or something. But it's a modern Buddhist monk 
in Japan who works, you know, has his own little whatever. That's not a seminary, but his kind of temple. Uh, but the twist and the reason why I think you would actually dig this, A, it's super observational in a in like unrestricted access to this guy. So it feels so intimate. Uh, he used to be a punk. Mm. And and then so this was a guy who was a punk and really like full on punk and in his, in his, in his, up until like probably 30 or whatever. Uh, and then basically... <laughs> His, I mean, there's a story where his mom is looking for a job, and it said, uh, opening, uh, Buddhist monk needed. And he laughed out loud when she said that, and then he answered the ad and became a Buddhist monk, which is just bizarre. But anyway, this guy, what he does now, and I found it actually to be incredibly deep. And in a weird way, this gave me the feeling what I, I think Kundam might do for somebody. This I got that same feeling from this, which because I could, I could understand it more because I, I can relate to a guy who was a certain way. He was a punk rocker and hanging out. And the opening shot is just him going to still now a punk show and just dancing in the background, just kind of like ephemerally dancing. He's probably like in his 50s. He has a little kid and he's married. So already things you don't think of a monk, he's married and has a kid and lives on temple. So you're like, oh, are you allowed to do that? Because you don't know this stuff. And maybe it's different in each culture. Uh, but what he does at this place and why it's called The Departure, and I found it was utterly fascinating. He basically spends all his time reaching out to people who are suicidal, or and especially in Japan where that was you know a major issue, people who have reached a point where they don't think they want to live, he holds these seminars for them at, or whatever they're called. He calls it the departure, and he does this this process with them that I found utterly captivating. Where he asks them, you know, to write down on little pieces of paper. It's very Japanese, you know. They uh, they have like five or six little notes, and it's like you know, uh, you know, write down your job, you know, write down your closest family member, write down. And then, and then as he goes along this process, he asks them to screw each piece of paper up, throw it away. And it comes down to the last thing, like, what is your your favorite, most cherished, like, you know, uh, I can't remember if it's memory or just person or thing. And, and when it gets to the very end, he asks you to tear that up where you're holding nothing. And he goes, now think for a moment, this is what it will feel like to depart, to leave. If you end your life, you will have to give up all those things. And this is that last one you held on to. That's part of this. So he's like using this Buddhist and it's, and what's beautiful about the guy, I mean, I, I, as a character study, I was totally, it's a very simple film in terms of filmmaking, but the guy, the sad part is he's spending all his time with these people who are just so down and you see him hang out with certain people and it's really, it's touching, but you see how he takes it on and that becomes a theme in a later Scorsese movie. You could almost pair this with the, the next movie, uh, taking on the pain of others which is what he's doing. And then in the middle of this film, he goes to a doctor because he's having some issues. And the doctor's like, your heart is not doing well. And I, I'm worried that you're taking on too much stress. He drinks a lot at night. That's the other funny thing. He's like, oh, he's drinking that. And so you realize he's taking on the stress of all these people who he has to deal with. So he's doing this amazing thing for people. So it's very, so it took maybe seeing this movie for me to understand what the other movie is about, which what, what this form of religion is about, which is, uh, tr you know, trying to make people understand what it would mean to let go. So they call this thing he does the departure where they hold these things. And, and towards the end of the movie, they even show like they go all through it. So it's not, that's just the starting part. By the end, you're lying on, on the floor with like a sheet or whatever over you. And like, you're, you're really trying to experience exactly what it's literally like, let's do prep of your death 101. So you can feel if that is what you actually would want with the hope with him hoping that it will remind people that there is stuff to live for. It's pretty fucking heavy shit, but it really like a, it's really effective, but be the guy you're just like fascinating. It's kind of, I think those great documentaries are usually the ones or character studies where like when it ends, you really want to know oh, how's that guy doing now? Like I would like, I need an update because I actually care that he's out there. Uh, but it was cool. I just stumbled upon it, which I always love it. 
uh, when that happens. But it feels like he's hitting those things, this idea of taking on the pain of others. feels like a very Scorsese thing. I, I see it a, a bunch in the movies coming up. Uh, very simple movie, and it wasn't my pairing till very late. So, And that was on Amazon Prime. So Sounds like a great pick. Isn't Yeah, I think those two definitely makes made Makes me feel like an asshole, but well, it's I don't totally know. fine. I mean, I do think that's part of my job here. Right? <laughs> you, you'll get a couple chances later in the I episode. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I think it. if you didn't put down the golden child, you'd be an asshole. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, sorry, you'd be a fucking asshole. Exactly. <laughs> but you put down the golden child. I so. did. Uh, so that is Kunden. Yes. Um, moving on to what is definitely one of my favorite films from this period for sure, uh, Bringing Out the Dead from 1999. Which is, you know, exactly what, to, I mean, just a segue from that it is what I, I think this movie's about. I think it's about taking the pain from others, carrying the burden of it onto yourself, and then watching how it wrecks someone. Saving someone's life is like falling in love, the best drug in the world. For days, sometimes weeks afterwards, you walk the street, making infinite whatever you see. Once, for a few weeks, I couldn't feel the earth. Everything I touched became lighter. Horns played in my shoes. Flowers fell from my pockets. You wonder if you've become immortal, as if you've saved your own life as well. God has passed through you. Why deny it? That for a moment there, why didn't I for a moment there, God was you? I've always been interested in how, in the, how one behaves in a compassionate manner to others. I grew up with the homeless and the alcoholics and the, um, all the derelicts, really. And uh, I was sort of split between um, a decent family and the bottom of the barrel, so to speak, like the dregs. They've they become non-persons. They just wait to die. And you see them in the street dying every day. And there was a conflict in me, and probably still is, as to how one feels compassion towards a person like that, but is also repelled by it. And that's one of the reasons I did the picture. Because you can't carry everyone else's. You can't, you can't suffer, which is, I guess, God, look at me putting it together. Only, only in the moment. I guess that's what Christ did. <laughs> my brain's not. Go- well, well it wasn't my religion's mind isn't turned on. But clearly, that's what Marty's interested in. You know, it's like, and I think this. You know, this is a Joe Conley book. You know, who lived the life as a medic. Uh, you got Paul Schrader doing the script, so it definitely feels connected to Taxi Driver. There was a quote that Marty picked him. Like the reason he reached out to Schrader. You know, people like us are going to think, oh, it's because you know he, he made these movies together. It was apparently mostly because uh, to adapt it because he's. So good at uh, middle of the night movies was the exact quote. Like, oh no, he's really good at middle of the night movies. <laughs> and so, yeah. And if you think about what's the great one with Willem Dafoe that Schrader made, um, Light, Sleeper. Light Sleeper, which I think is exactly. I feel like that character could exist in this world. Oh, I yeah. could see the Light Sleeper guy like like being, especially with Cliff Curtis's character. Yeah, he could. He could dealer. be in an emergency room. Yeah, dropping, hanging out waiting for somebody. Yeah. So it's middle of the night movies subgenre, which uh, and this is Robert Richardson. So you know another different DP, but uh, one who we've been already talking about a movie uh, once upon a time. But uh, there's some great people in here. I'll just list them off so we can get into it. Uh, John Goodman, I think, is great. So good. Uh, Tom Sizemore, you know, it's, it's peak Sizemore because he's out of his mind. Uh, but you know, the, the golden statue goes to Ving Rhames for sure. Oh my gosh, who is just utterly hilarious in this. Uh, and then Cliff Curtis from New Zealand, you know, gets a really. This is one of the first times I'd seen him. In, when he came over here and started acting in American Things, uh, playing kind of a almost a Rasta type uh, drug uh, dealer who's actually quite likable uh, in, in this one, and obviously Patricia Arquette, who was married to Cage at the time, 
right. so it's interesting to see that that relationship. But this is like you know this for a period there. This was kind of one of the last really great serious movies Cage had been in because there was a long drought there, uh, not long after here. You know he kind of wins the Oscars and a couple great movies, and then he starts becoming a lot more like an action star, and then a lot of straight to video stuff. He's utterly haunted in this film. His eyes are carved out. You know, he looks wrecked uh, in this movie, which I think's you know, fascinating because he's literally haunted, right? Yeah, no, I, and it's crazy how much you can tie the character in a lot of ways to Travis Bickle, but mm-hmm. definitely um, it's crazy how Scorsese ties the movie to Taxi Driver like almost right away with like one particular shot of the lights in the street and the car driving. It's very much like the taxi stuff, and I yeah. feel like there's a lot of imagery stuff where he's he's um paralleling the two films there's a lot of experimentation in it. They're, yeah they're doing they're cueing with the music and doing a lot of things like the, you know the, one of the best sequences for sure is where nick cage is on some uppers or whatever and he's just like let's do it and just i think it's i'm in love with the rock and roll and they just oh yeah the clash yeah and when they when they turn and there's just a couple uh you know the camera goes does a th- you know 360 at one point uh and then you're different there's just like lots of and the slow motion suddenly it goes fast motion with sizemore uh, it's really fun and playful in that way. And then it gets also really serious with the stuff on death. So he's actually able, so he's a burnt out uh, medic who starts seeing uh, some of the past va- patients he's lost. And, you know, you're, you question whether he's having a spiritual epiphany or whether he's just losing his mind a little, seems to be somewhere in between. And he, you know, gets a chance at maybe something like love with uh, when he meets the victim's daughter, you know, and to this man who's just holding on. So it's it's charting that story. I guess it's an Easter story, which I didn't fully realize before. Oh, yeah. And so that makes sense when we're looking at all the Christ stuff. Uh, and and it just and it's just it's very episodic. You know, there's no like just one story to it. You know, he's definitely being haunted by the one girl. They show her a bunch in the flashbacks, but it's more just seeing him hang out with these different medics because obviously this was observed for the book, I guess. Yeah, his different partners and then little throwaway scenes. Like there's a great scene early on that has nothing to do with anything, but it's a scene between Mary Beth Hurt, who we love from Chili Scenes of Winter, mm-hmm. and Larry Fessenden uh, shows up in the emergency room and he's got some shit. There. Oh, yeah, yeah, he looks great in that. That's <laughs> yeah, he a great does. Cameo. But just little bits like that, little bits like Marty and Queen Latifah being the radio dispatchers on the, you know, just little things he's throwing in on top of you know Richardson's cinematography which is that super blown out hot lighting that gives it gives it another level of supernatural on top of everything else yeah a lot of white light in this and a lot of like red light it's like those are the two poles you see a lot a lot of spotlighting on him Um, yeah no I think it's I think this movie holds up big time I think it's like very much in line with the movies he's making in the in our favorite time period you know what I mean Uh, it feels like the last of certain type of filmmaking that he was doing it probably if this if this is the one movie in this whole group that had it been in the middle of those it would totally make sense it feel like it's at at home with that I'd say compared to maybe this this grouping Um, great soundtrack too well yeah he doesn't have a great soundtrack but I know you're a particular well I've probably listened to this one more than any soundtrack I own and so uh, shout out to a future episode we're going to do because yes. we just decided we'd drop it on this, but we are going to do a, a soundtrack episode and we will we will not be including a couple of the big names. And so this is this would probably have been uh, duking it out for my number one spot. I mean, that's how big a fan. I've listened number to Number one so spot many. soundtracks or Scorsese Sa- soundtracks. soundtracks? Just general. Oh, no. All soundtracks. I've listened to this one. There is a... Um, uh, Johnny Thunder's song oh, that might be my favorite use of a song in a movie maybe ever for me like just where I just feel
feel it completely. You can't put your arms around a memory. It's yep. the first time I'd heard it. So I, I didn't know his work before I saw this movie. Uh, and, and it just like moved me deeply. But there's just so many... Uh, good use and and it's also used well in the movie they actually use it to transition all the different things he's feeling it doesn't feel arbitrary um, and I'm not a I'll tell you one thing I am not a UB40 fan <laughs> even though I grew up listening to a lot of it in New Zealand it was very popular but they use red red wine where I, I loved it in yeah. the use of it because it's a drug deal and he's doing drugs and he's kind of zoning out so uh, yeah the, no, that's, that's a big part of the genius of this film yeah definitely uh, I was thinking about um, what's the frequency Kenneth and how yeah. I remember when the movie came out that song was a big hit single from Monster, and I was just not into it, and I didn't like the way it was used in the movie yeah. then. And watching it now, all that right. removed, I'm like, it's great. I it's love a total, it. yeah, it's a total game changer having that little bit of time. It works uh, between it, but yeah, and everyone's great. And look, I think Cage is fantastic in this. I think it's a really uh, great role. It's one of the most understated things he's ever done. Even though he has a few moments where he goes big, for the most part, he's kind of like hollowed out and ghostly himself. Like he's kind of. It's like he's kind of being eroded throughout the narrative, and then he, you know, then he gets a shot at things with Patricia Arquette's character, and, and it's fun because everyone's flawed. Like Arquette's character's flawed. It's not like a, there's no simple uh, version of, of the events, which I like. Yeah, no, it's it's really beautiful, powerful, um, and a great performance, like you said, by Cage. I, I was really impressed by him in this one, and I'd forgotten how much I love it. I really love it. It's great. Yeah, this is one I think you know most people listening to this, if they haven't hit it, this would be one of the top ones to to hit in this section. Um, I, I'll we'll get to our pairing in a sec. There's one movie that I hadn't seen before that I thought would be perfect to pair with this, um, and then I didn't I didn't love it. Um, but but I was going with this whole bearing witness and removing pain thing, and I had never seen the the second film by Yargos Lathamos. I'd seen um, Dogtooth, and I'd seen. Uh, you know, Lobster and everything else. But he had a film called Alps, which I had only heard of, but all I remembered from having heard of it was that it was about people who pretend. So if you've just, let's say you've lost somebody, they basically all kind of offer a service to come and replace that person and like stand in for them for you. So so the <laughs> idea is, yeah, or just like temporarily, some of them, but one girl takes it too far and keeps being there for people in like, in really kind of absurd ways. And it's, it's the concept's really cool and it would be like the best pairing ever. But when I, I not even didn't dislike it, it just, it was no or near to me as good as his best work that's like I can't leave that but it is if people are, are looking for an interesting pairing uh, like on terms of the, the surface level I think that could work pretty well uh, but uh, yeah you'll never guess mine you're going to be blown away uh, this is actually the first film I paired when I was doing this because it is kind of an obvious one even though it's thematically not obvious at all what's funny is that I forgot about the obvious thing that makes uh-huh. it parable for whatever reason oh, and, then, and then suddenly I was like oh my what why didn't I come on why don't I tell me yours and then you tell me mine? Let's see, and we'll compare, okay? <laughs> yeah. Uh, all right, and see if you can guess. I'll tell you the director. Uh, mine is Otto Preminger from 1953. Can you guess the title? Well, mine is also Otto Preminger from 1953. Oh, oh he had two films that year? Uh, no. Oh. Just one. Oh, what? Okay. Uh, so we, we did, this did get revealed in our behind the scenes study, uh, something that almost never happens here, but we have both decided that uh, if this would help somebody see this movie, which is a really cool uh, noir, uh, and it's an unusual noir, uh, it is called Angel Face. What is it, the Lamaze, John? That's right. You know how to drive it? Oh, I think so. Did you race professionally? Oh, yeah. Midgets, hot rods, everything but Indianapolis. I was getting ready to try that when the war came along. Uh, That's when you started driving ambulances. No, I drove a tank till they shot me out of it. Ambulance driving's just a job till I make enough money to open my own shop. 
Jessup Automotive, racing car specialists. I've got some ideas for a power plant that'll make this mill look sick. Sounds exciting. I think your corporation's a little sloppy. Perhaps it's a little hungry, too. Hmm? Oh, yeah, we were supposed to eat, weren't we? You're right there. So I figure another five, six thousand dollars, I'm in business. Of course, Mary has some money. But... She was the one on the phone. Yeah. Do you love her? You ask an awful lot of questions. I know, it's a very bad habit of mine. You ask me some just for change. All right, I will. Uh, what does your father do? He's a very famous novelist. He hasn't published anything since we came to America, after my mother was killed in a raid. But he started to write again, a novel. He's been reading parts of it to me. It's wonderful. Catherine, that's my stepmother. She's very jealous because he only talks to me about his work. I suppose it's only natural that she should be. It's as if I'd robbed her of something in a way. Oh, sure, I suppose she feels... Hey, let me do this. I asked you. Will you relax? I can pay the check even on my salary. You're saving up for your shop and to get married. Who said anything about getting married? Well, Mary expects it, doesn't she? What's her last name? What does she do? Her last name is Wilton. She's a receptionist at the hospital. She has blonde hair, blue eyes. She weighs 105 pounds, strip. She sleeps in pajamas. She's a first-rate cook, and she doesn't ask questions. She does, too. Anyway, let me pay my share. I insist. All right, if that's the way you want it. I'd like a nightcap. How about you? Oh, no, you don't smoke or drink, do you? I only ask questions, and I love to dance. Tonight? Will you promise not to laugh at me? No, but I'll promise to try not to laugh at you. You're the first man I've danced with since I've been in America. Except my father. Really? You're doing all right? Directed by Otto Preminger. Um, Presented by Howard Hughes, by the way, just tying into it Yes, later. which yep. will we'll definitely tie in. And, and as a reason, I didn't pair a Hughes film uh, with The Aviator later. I purposely, because I was like, oh, we already got one in you. Yep. Uh, but the, the, the real key here is that they are both ambulance drivers, both kind of, you know, haunted figures with pasts. Uh, he's not an ambulance driver. Did uh, you say it was Robert Mitchum? Mitchum, Mitchum no. Oh, okay. So Robert Mitchum uh, is an ambulance driver uh, in this film. And it's a pretty minor part of the story. It's really only the opening sequence that he is. He's also named Frank, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice no, touch. yeah, you're right. That is interesting. Uh, but this is this is a film. You know, just to tell you a little bit of how it came. Like, it is a Hughes film. Uh, Gene Simmons is utterly amazing in this film. Like, plays literally one of the, I'd say like top ten film uh, film noir femme fatales because she's so destructive. Yeah. Uh, in this, in this, but film. also like in a way that's not. I don't think always tipping her hand yeah. like she does seem to really care and be interested in him and maybe there's I mean obviously there's manipulation underneath but when she's having these first scenes it could be more mentally unbalanced than a lot of femme fatales a lot of femme fatales yeah. are doing it out of a dastardly plan well we know she's definitely mentally unbalanced there's something the more, yeah there's something off about her in terms of her just her goals and the way she treats and we'll get into the story a bit more but she I guess was um, she was under contract 
with a British company and somehow Hughes got her contract and she didn't want to do this. And so to pay him, to punish him, she cut her hair off and showed up thinking he would let her out of her contract. And instead he uh, made her wear a wig for the whole movie. Uh, so those two definitely didn't get along. But there was one, one story that uh, I guess uh, Preminger kept telling Mitchum to slap her time and time again. <laughs> and then Mitchum just turned around and slapped Preminger right in the face. And Preminger went to Hughes saying, you need to fire him straight away. And, and Hughes is like, hell no. <laughs> it's Robert Mitchum, man. It's like, and we, as we know, we've talked about, you know, uh, his kind of woman, which is, and I've talked about two Hughes Mitchum films before with that. And um, what's the one that starts with A? Uh, the other one he made with Jane. Um, oh, Macau. Oh, sorry, Macau. Macau. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we've had both of those come up on previous episodes. So, uh, but yeah, do you want to tell the little, a bit of the story without, obviously, this has a, a, a total blazer of an ending, so we don't want to ruin that. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely not. Um, I mean, the basic gist is that an ambulance driver gets involved with a rich girl after he goes to her house to check on what looks like it was a suicide of her stepmother, of her stepmother. But then there's some question about, was it a suicide? We don't know. Yeah. Um, so he starts to get involved with her through that. Like she just sort of, you know, gets a beat on him and becomes obsessed with him. And he's got a woman that he's kind of seeing, but for whatever reason he decides like, yeah, this girl's interesting. She's rich, whatever. I'll and just... and they're like, all the relationships are really kind of edgy. Like his girlfriend, like when he goes over there, she's like undressing and then she's like kind of progressive. And I think he has a line where he's like, what's the score, Mary? Is Bill taking over or do I still rate? That's a hard question to answer, Frank. And I don't think a fair one to ask. Very simple question, yes or no. Bill or me? Can't you make up your mind? Yes. But I want to be sure you can make up yours. Can't we let it go at that for a while? Oh, I'm on probation. Okay. How about tonight? Have we got a date? Why not? You know something? You're a pretty nice guy. For a girl. <laughs> <laughs> or something like that, where he's alluding that she's like going out with somebody else that night, and it's yeah. it's just interesting. Yeah. So so it just the story is basically about him and her and their relationship and how it you know becomes darker and darker. She hires him as a uh, chauffeur at her house, and he becomes more in, intertwined with her personal family drama, and we start to get a bit more of that. And um, and yeah, it it definitely goes to some crazy places ultimately, but it's really about the two of them and they're great together and it's, you know, there's there's definitely a haunted quality to both oh, yeah. films in that way. I think that ties them together too. I found it though for you cuz uh, just in case you didn't I I Thank it's you. not really a connection, it's more like it's just a good reason is um uh we're bringing out the dead is about a couple meeting who will move each other from darkness to light. Like they're meeting, they're both in dark places and they're meeting together actually moves them towards a place of light. This is the exact opposite. This is two people who meet, not necessarily in the light, but somewhere closer to the light and their meeting will lead them into utter fucking black darkness, you yeah. know? And, and so it's just, it, it's kind of, and I'm just talking about why it's kind of a fun pairing. It's like two ends of, of a spectrum. Well, and also they, they do meet because of some medical yeah. emergency. Oh yeah, no, it's so, the exact, so like it's the exact the same reason. Is really... Yeah. No, that's a great, great observation. I'd be curious if the Frank thing was known that that, that his name was Frank. I mean, I mean, Scorsese definitely is going to know this movie. Oh yeah, and sure probably dig it. Uh, I'll tell you, the director who uh, said that this would be in his top ten 
uh, Jean-Luc Godard. Really? Yes. So wow. I, I was reading something that just said, yeah, Godard's a huge fan and at one point said that this was like, you know, one of the best American movies. Well, he's like, not wrong. It's a great movie. Yeah, no, this is one I, and I, I didn't see it. For, I only saw it about five years ago or something. Yeah, no, it's great. And there's only a DVD of it. Sadly, yes. I hope it's a Warner Archive or Warner Brothers Blu-ray in the making. I hope yeah. that happens. But right now it's part of a Mitchum DVD set. I think. It wasn't too expensive. Oh, I, I bought, I bought the single one. Well, there might be a single, yeah. Yeah, from, from Amazon. But, uh, Definitely worth your time, and I think those two pair well again because they're different types of movies. Yeah, definitely. they're fun. So uh, next up we have Gangs of New York from 2002. Is this it, priest? The Pope's new army? A few crusty bitches and a handful of ragtags? I know, Bill. You swore this was a battle between warriors, not a bunch of Miss Nancys. So warriors is what I brought. The O'Connell Guard! The Plot Ugly! The shark tails! The Chichesters! The Forty Thieves! Bene. On my challenge, by the ancient laws of combat, we are met at this chosen ground to settle for good and all! Who holds sway over the five points? Us natives, born rightwise! To this fine land, or the foreign hordes defiling it. By the ancient laws of combat, I accept the challenge of the so-called natives. You plague our people at every turn. But from this day out, you shall plague us no more. For let it be known that the hand that tries to strike us from this land shall be swiftly cut down. Christian Lord, guide my hand against your Roman popery. Prepare to receive the true Lord. There were so many films that influenced this because it's so much a part of my life, this movie. Uh, the opening battle scene uh, remained as it was. We didn't um, change it too much in the script, particularly the uh, people coming out from below the ground in the five points, more symbolic of, uh, of uh, in a way... It, it, it goes back to a, something that's timeless, uh, uh, ancient Mesopotamian uh, literature, Gilgamesh, all, all of this sort of thing in my mind uh, over the years, that uh, when a society breaks down, I was interested in how it starts up again, formed into tribes, families, I should say, and then the family units are formed into tribes, and the tribes have a, have a leader, and then, of course, the tribe has to have a religion, the faith that binds them together, which gives them the... Uh, um, gives them the fuel, so to speak, to fight for their survival. For example, in this film, ultimately, Amsterdam and the, uh, the others rally around the church, but the god that they rally around really is a war god, uh, more of a Celtic war god, not the Jesus uh, who preached love and peace, certainly, like most of us do at this point. Once you have a, a group of people battered into the ground, that they have no choice. They, they're not gonna, they have nothing to lose. And faith binds them together, and the faith is usually a faith dealing with war, you know, that fuels the, the flames of war, and that's what happens in, in this world. I wanted to show that at the beginning of the film. They come out from the underground. Uh, these people come right from the bowels of the earth. They represent every group that's ever been oppressed and every group that's ever been part of the dispossessed. They're the underground men. They're the men of the underworld. It's like the Notes from Underground by Dostoevsky. They're the ones that are going to come out uh, and ultimately, ultimately... Uh, create a day of judgment. 
Yeah, so this is, uh, in terms of DP, I just like to throw these in because he went back to Michael Balhaus here. Oh, uh, shit. Which I think is really interesting. And if Thelma ever had her work cut out for her, <laughs> it is what this is the movie. Uh, this is obviously like a dream project for Marty, right? This was something he has been working on for a long time. And I think he even said it, and it was utterly in my mind w- revisiting this movie, is if he had made this now, it would have been an eight-part <laughs> HBO series and it really would have been and he would have had the budget no, especially post vinyl like it, this is the perfect it would have been like Game Not of Thrones it would have been like yeah, obviously what's the other one he made he actually did make the direct the first episode of um, the one about the Jersey Boardwalk Empire Boardwalk Empire okay so when he did Boardwalk Empire that format would suit this so well and I had the same problem watching it this time as I did originally in theaters I remember liking it and thinking like being utterly blown away by Daniel Day-Lewis at the time. Like I was just floored back then because I had never thought, he had never been my kind of actor. He, you know, I'd seen him in a lot of movies. I always thought he was good, but there was something so straight-laced about him. He was always kind of, even when he was extreme, he's still the good guy, the hero. Seeing him take on a role as devilish as Bill the Butcher blew my mind. And it blew my mind a rewatch. I, I thought it was just as good. Uh, it left me wanting him to play a Bond villain so bad. <laughs> oh like God. the idea that he's, ret- or Bond, <laughs> I would take either. I mean, imagine right now if they said he was the next Bond, your brain would go, yeah, <laughs> of course he would be. But I could it also could see him, you know, I could also see him as a villain. Um, he's so good in this. Uh, but my overwhelming feeling is just there's so much. I, it's rare that you watch a movie and go, there's too much movie. But it feels like there's so much <laughs> being squeezed in. And that's what we're talking about, like maybe a two hour, 40, 50 minute movie. Even then, it's not long enough for the elements that they're trying to get through at times. And that's and there's a lot of stuff. So it feels... There's a there's an opening sequence uh, with the big very famous kind of fight scene, and and it just feels like so many different techniques are being in terms of the editing are being thrown in there, which feel, felt off to me compared to other Marty films. I, I, like and again, it could just be them trying to be modern. But there's other parts later on when DiCaprio's character comes back into the narrative. You know, he starts off as a little boy witnessing the br- you know the brutal death of his father, the, who's uh, Liam Neeson playing the priest, uh, which is something he'll play again later for Marty uh, against Bill Butcher's gang. It's the these two rival gangs. What's uh, one is the uh, I, one is the American native, you know, uh, actually to America, and then the others are the kind of Irish immigrants who Bill the Butcher finds repulsive. Uh, he watch, witnesses the death. He disappears, but when he comes back, every time he runs into someone from that opening scene, they do like a quick insert flashback. And it and I, I'm not going to be critical of Marty ever, but for me, it was the it, it was the most disappointing thing I've ever seen in any of his movies, and, and that's because I just don't think. His films need to operate like that, and, no, and and if and now hopefully it was their choice, and it's just an artistic choice. But it's one of the few times I've ever seen an, a device in one of his movies where I was like, I think we know that that's Brendan Gleeson, and I don't need that. But again, they're making a movie for everyone, but that felt off to me, and so that was interesting. But there, I, I will say the one thing about this movie that I walk away with is anytime there's two people on screen in this movie, it's a freaking great movie this it's and that's my my takeaway is like when this is about him and cameron diaz dicaprio and cameron diaz or dicaprio and bill the butcher or any group of two people alone the intimate stuff in this movie is really compelling and i really enjoyed watching that again but there's something about i I wonder if and i do know towards the end he lost didn't have enough money and they did you know when they got to things with the ships coming onto shore and like cannonballs and giant fights they had literally run out of the amount of money needed to finish this movie so things are being condensed and and i felt that as a viewer when i watched it when i was younger 
Uh, I didn't necessarily notice that as much, but I definitely could feel where I felt like there's just too many events. It, it's like you're trying to cover a big part of America through these little five points. You're 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 trying to ca- catch Leo's story, but also this other story. It's just a lot of stuff yeah. to get in one movie, even though it's entertaining. No, you're right. Uh, I think what ends up happening with me on these big projects is I will, you know, um, break them up sometimes. Mm. You know, which I know is not. Ideal. So you are watching a miniseries. I, in a way, I mean, yeah. that's kind of how I, I approach some of the yeah. three-hour movies is I'm like, well, I don't start that way, but I may start it late at night and go, we'll see what happens, knowing full well in my head that I'm probably going to end up having to make a break in it. Right. And that it tends to help me. It tends to help me, re- refresh me. But ultimately, I know that that's not really being true to the movie because the movie is about sitting through it at once. But I don't know. For, for me, sometimes I'm finding lately like, what's the best way for me to absorb this material in the most enjoyable fashion? And that tends to be splitting. Um, so I know what you're saying. There's a lot yeah. condensed, but for me it felt a little better to split it Yeah, in I that way. Um, yeah, I don't, I can't disagree. You know, there's definitely, uh, do you remember seeing the, the first time where you're fan or did you have questions first time? I think I liked it more this time. Yeah. Uh, I think I, th- I don't know where I was with this movie at the time, but I think I was, I, I wasn't into characters like Bill at mm. the time. Like I just, he was too despicable for me. And not to say that I didn't like movies with despicable characters, but because he is the major focus of the film really, and he is the showpiece performance in the film, I think I saw those as representative of what this film is. And I was just like, that's not my bag. So having a super long movie that had those elements, mm. I think at the time, was iffy. But this time I think I appreciate it much more. I mean, post Phantom Thread, I appreciate everything Daniel do- Daniel Day-Lewis does a little bit more. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's he's really good in this too because he's yeah. also fun to watch, but there is a pathology. You do start to understand him and it's, I mean, he's he's one of the arch villains you've ever seen. I mean, I really. Mean, he's, he's but he also has that pride about like, you know, because he does kill Liam Neeson's character at the start, but he keeps a photo of him above the fireplace and doesn't let people disrespect it. Yeah. Because he's he like, he died fair. He has that whole story about pulling, you know, taking out one of his eyes yeah. because he wouldn't, he couldn't look at him. Right. Oh, yeah. I did read about the making of what it say. It said, uh, to, to simulate the, uh, his fake eye, he had, to, he had his own eyeball covered with a prosthetic glass. Uh, that way he could actually tap it with a real knife without feeling like worried. And right. I'm just like, that is such a Daniel Day Lewis <laughs> without blinking. He didn't want to blink because he thought that'd be fake. <laughs> so I'm like that. So he's actually probably causing himself incredible discomfort to sell it. But th- without this role, we don't get what to me is like, you know, all, all time, maybe all time favorite performance, which is there will be blood. Like yeah. you, you never get him to play that. Cause that is the more realistic grounded version of this, you know? Um, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And, and Leo's good and he's solid in this role. It's not the, like the kind of role that I get most excited to see him in. Um, and I don't know if he's quite day Lewis's equal at that point. Well, I feel like he does a better job of this kind of character in the departed a few mm-hmm. years later. And it's a similar, definitely. Similar and by thing. then I think he's grown into totally. He's, he's a man, not a boy. And here yeah. he's really trapped between those two. And I, and I think the boy thing is helpful and hurtful at the same time. Mm-hmm. But I think one major problem I have with the movie is, is a question mark I have about Bill the Butcher finding out Leo's identity and his plan a little too early in the movie. Yeah. And then I'm like, oh, okay, so we're going to still wait on this conflict, but he knows. And there's a great tension there, but part of me is like, I kind of wish that it could have slid a little later. Oh, you just made me realize, because like, I didn't even really think about it, that this actually has a lot of similarities to The Departed. If that oh, yeah. had been longer in the story, it's the same story. It's Daniel, Daniel Day-Lewis is Jack, and he's, yeah. Totally. Interesting. No, I totally agree. I, I, that's the part where I start really getting in. I start leaning in. I think that's the first 40 minutes or so of the movie that I'm pretty 
le- a lot less interested in. But once he starts working with him, I'm definitely drawn in because you wonder where it's going to go. Yeah. And then at a certain point, it, it, when that, I think what happens is that unravels, so you know the answer. And on top of that, the politics start coming out more about what America was going through, and that becomes like the other focus. And I think that's what I'm getting at. It's very hard to pivot. I think you're right, and yeah. I think that is one thing that's the one thing too much to it, take. Yeah, on. yeah, because because you can the best movies can tell you about what's happening in the history, but just by watching the characters. Yeah. But as soon as you the camera leaves them and starts showing the political characters, and then there's I think it's especially the last sequence where uh, what was it that it was the people who didn't want to be is it uh, didn't want to be drafted they start. Yeah, they start protesting, and then the police are coming and shooting people in the streets. Yeah, that was so big that I I actually didn't even believe that it could have been a true event because what I was watching in this movie going that's too crazy that like cops and that were just coming in and shooting people, but it completely factually accurate and really happened. But it's like a massacre against America's own people. I did not know that, but it, that's when it becomes more of a historical epic than the movie I think it really is, which is like a gang warfare betrayal film, Absolutely. which I think he's better at in general. Yeah, you know, no, he, betrayal is definitely. Uh, betrayal and guilt because of betrayal yeah. uh, are two Her big, key. big things for him. And I feel bad if because I did. I think I was reading the Richard Schickel book, which is just uh, conversations between the two. And and, he, and and you know, this one was a real dream project. And and I do think he even says, you know, because we ran out of money at that point, and we're trying to still get this. I think it was right during that sequence where you need the most people and the most scale. And and I think maybe that I just feel the weight on that a little. I actually really think Cameron Diaz is fun in this. It's a very different yeah. thing for her. No, she's she's perfectly good. Um, there's there's a couple things I noticed like. Just a quick tie-in, there's another um, candle dance, mm. as there was in Age of Innocence, which mm-hmm. is an, a very, I don't know, I like those. Did Ballhouse shoot uh, Age of Innocence? I, I think he did. Yeah, I think he did. So I think huh. you've got two candles. And then there's one other thing which ties directly into my pairing, which is I totally forgot about the ghoul gang stuff, mm. where they're basically like Boris Karloff and the Body Snatcher, you know, that's but right, it's yeah. a gang of them. And I just thought it's like, ooh, that's really cool. Something I totally didn't yeah, connect yeah. to or remember at all. Yeah, that's a good scene where they're off going to the ship and they're going to get money to get a body and some yeah. stuff, and it all turns around. No, there's lots. It's like there's lots of really cool individual parts, um, but but you know, it, look, it did great, and it, it's a, a very considered a very successful film in his uh, revoir. So it's like you know, that's cool. I just it, for me sometimes it just feels like there's uh, two, it's bursting at the seams. Yeah, I know? can't disagree. I can't disagree. Um, then tell me what uh, your pairing is because now I'm curious. So I went playful with this one again. Uh, I went to the, I mean, maybe it's really obvious, but it's a movie we haven't talked about on the show and I wanted to talk about it and it's The Warriors from 1979. Everybody make it. Just Cleon's missing. Fuzz must have got him. Did you see him get busted? I seen him, then he wasn't there no more. I was hauling ass. Why don't you look around, make sure we're okay. This is a graveyard. Okay, what are we going to do now? We're going back. You mind telling us how? Fucking Coney Island must be 50 to 100 miles from here. It's the only choice we got. Yeah, real simple. Except that every cop in this city's looking to bust our heads. We got something else to think about. Yeah, what? The truce. Is it still on? If it ain't, we're going to have to bop our way back. Shit, I wish we was packed. If this truce is off, anything could hit us between here and that train. If you get separated, make it to the platform at Union Square. That's where we change trains. I only got one question. Who named you leader? I got as much right to take over as you. 
It was Cleon's choice, Swan's war chief. Oh, right about now, Cleon's most likely got a nightstick shoved halfway up his ass. <laughs> Shit. I bet you can't even find the subway. Maybe we ought to talk about this later, huh? Well, what's wrong with right now? I want to be warlord. Make you move. Hey, Ajax, lighten up. Big boy, Swan's war chief. We better stick together. Oh, cool. So I was taking, obviously, the, you know, modern-day gang, yeah. you know, from the descendants of said. And I don't know. I just I feel like it, it works for whatever reason because there's a certain – well, I mean, you know, you've just got the different gangs. And, I mean, I think the ghoulish gang makes me think of, like, the baseball furies or something. You know, Or, just, like, it could be one of them calling them the ghoulish, yeah. Yeah, something like that. I don't know. But there's a great paranoia about the Warriors watching it this time. I was reminded of The Thing, and I finally noticed – that Windows is in both fucking oh, movies. Yeah. Right. It took me forever to notice that uh, that actor is in both movies. Um, so there's a connection between the thing in that movie. But but I don't know. There's just something really interesting about seeing New York as depicted in that movie and then New York as it was, quote unquote, in that stylized Walter Hill universe in 1979. Um, and both, I mean, surprisingly... Gangs in New York is the more realistic of the two, and this is more of a fantasy film, yeah. but there's still a lot of roots, you know, um, that tie back to Gangs in New York. And I really see, like, you know, if Bill the Butcher was somehow transported, you know, into 1979, I'd still be really oh, yeah. into seeing the Warriors and what the gang landscape was like in this movie. I also think um, Barry DeVorzon's score adds this, like, almost science fiction element to it, and... I don't know. There's just something about that. I feel like there was, isn't there, does Marty do any slow-mo in gangs? I wanted to say maybe there was a I little... think they do every technique that exists. <laughs> like there are moments where I'm like, wow, they just did everything in there. Yeah. So, I, so obviously there's some peck and paw slow-mo violence in the Warriors and and that tied into me. I'm trying to think of some other things that I was connecting Well, also to. you got the specific, specific uh, and that was my pick too, was finding like the cool thing about gangs in New York it's about a specific part of New York this little five points right it's a specific place and when we think about uh, the Warriors we think obviously about where it ends up being Coney Island being yeah. a major but also it's the journey there we're seeing all these specific parts of New York and every gang's territorial so I think that makes total sense yeah I mean know? it's an it's an easy obvious thing but for whatever reason I did watch these close together and I was like this is kind of cool this kind of compliments yeah. in a way that I wasn't quite I mean, beyond the gangs thing, it, it worked in a better, I don't know, something about the Deborah Van Valkenburg character and the... Um, oh, Cameron Diaz. Cameron Diaz character. They're similarly, um, well, I mean... Street smart. Street smart, promiscuous, but also kind of um, fierce and stick up for themselves. Yeah. And this, there's something about those two characters. And by the way, I love Deborah Van Valkenburg, and mm-hmm. I think she is such a great part of the Walter Hill canon. You know, she's just really unique and interesting, and I love seeing her in that movie. And that scene on the subway where they meet the kids from the prom, oh, yeah. and yeah. the the prom kids look at her, and she goes to fix her dress, and Michael Beck just stops her. Yeah, it's just one of my yeah, favorite yeah, yeah. moments in the That's whole great, movie. Yeah. It's just like fuck those guys, and yeah, without yeah. ever saying a word, you don't have to fit in. Yeah, you don't 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 think you need to. Which actually is that you're right. That's actually a lot like what Cameron Diaz's character is doing because she also goes to the high society house and mm-hmm. steals from them. And yeah, that was definitely one of the things that I was noticing, and I, I didn't fully put it together until right now. But yeah, it was definitely That's a character tie-in. So anyway, the Warriors. Now, did Everybody. you watch the director's cut with the animation things? Fuck or that. Not? Nice. Okay, yeah, never yeah, ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. 
that. So which, how do you have a different version from that? Uh, I have it on DVD, and I think the Voodoo version that I have, which I don't know if you can still get, actually. Uh-huh. I think it's one that's actually been removed from Voodoo, but I yeah. was able to buy it on Voodoo before they removed it. Amazon might have it uncut, but most of it that I've seen yeah. is now director's cut everywhere, which and wh- is And what, is, what was Hill's reason? Well, he, because he always saw it as a comic book he yeah. wanted to comic Literally book. comic book parts? Yeah, so he's got comic book. Have you seen it? Uh, I, I, I mean, I've seen the Warriors. I don't know if I've seen the comic book. Well, version. you'd remember because it's it opens with this Greek, you know, uh, prologue about the Warriors that these characters are representing or something. Over two millenniums ago, an army of Greek soldiers found themselves isolated in the middle of the Persian Empire, one thousand miles from safety, one thousand miles from the sea, one thousand miles with enemies on all sides. Theirs was a story of a desperate forced march. Theirs was a story of courage. This, too, is a story of courage. Uh-huh. And then there's all these like comic book transitions that uh-huh. are obnoxious and annoying. And Which I just also takes, I mean, the, what's cool about it is even though you were saying it's a fantasy, it's shot like it's realistic. It's yes. shot like any other grainy 70s, 80s, you know, movie. And so you buy what you're watching. So, But if you preface that with cartoon imagery or something saying it's not, I think that would take me out. It, it totally takes me out. and uh, Maybe I will watch that version just so I can see. I mean, if you want a point of comparison, yeah. obviously I know that that's, it's one of the rare cases where I'm like, I'm just, yeah. and I love Walter Hill, but I'm just like, dude, you're wrong, man. Yeah. You're just wrong. This is yeah. not, this other movie is a better movie. And I know I, would, I mean, I'd go so far as to say it might, it might not be a popular opinion, but I think 75% of director's cuts aren't as good as the original movies. <laughs> usually it's for the wrong, usually, well, especially because often it's on movies that were already masterpieces. So if like put, somebody puts out Alien or something, it's like, yeah, it's already a masterpiece. Now it doesn't need anything more. Uh, if it or Blade Runner, you know, with Blade Runners, obviously there's so many different versions. But but I do think that like it's rare that it's for a movie that needed it. Even though there's some movies you watch that you wish there was, and maybe that director doesn't have enough power to get a director's cut. Well, and also I think we've sort of become used to the misuse of that yeah. term. Like director's cut might just be an extra scene added in that the yeah, director. I, I mean, I, especially I, in horror films, it'll just yeah. No, it's gotten out of hand, but. Anyway, I, I, I you know, like the Warriors is. I, I think the only reason we haven't brought it up yet so far is we both know how much we love it, but it makes sense as a. Parent. It's an obvious movie, and that's part of the reason it hasn't been talked about. But I just thought, you know, in this context, why not? Let's. Start I feel it. like if we were going back to, yeah, it's probably one of those extended handshake type movies for us. Yeah. Um, I had to. I have to. I forgot my favorite moment watching. Uh, I think I texted you as soon as it happened in Gangs in New York. Is there's a moment where Bill the Butcher's walking down the street and he's really mad at the Emancipation Proclamation because he's a real racist. Uh, you know, Irish Irish immigrants are bad enough, let alone black people. And he he turns in one fluid motion and throws a dagger right between the eyes on a poster of Abraham Lincoln. And I was like, how has this not been the most gift? Like a moment in any movie, knowing that that guy is going to go on to win an Oscar for playing that character. <laughs> it is pretty. Like, funny. I mean, it's just amazing to think. Like years later, he's going to be an Oscar winner playing this uh, this character. To me, I just I laughed. At, I couldn't even believe it. I thought it was such a perfect little moment. Um, okay, so yeah, I went for a. Um, I couldn't match the scale. I wanted to nail down something in the gangster element. I went with one I hadn't seen but had always been hearing about. Uh, and the big the big comparison I'd say is it has a character who's equally probably as psychotic as Bill and as strong a performance and be a really good sense of location, uh, shooting and location. And I went with the British gangster film, uh, Bright and Rock. Very nice. Uh, directed by John Bolting, 1947. So you're alive, Spicer. I got away, Pinky. I got away. 
I'm clearing out, thank you. Right out. I'm too old for this game. I, I, I'm far too old. Nobody wants an old man. I'll go to my cousin in Nottingham, the Blue Agate. Yeah, I can stay there, all right. I can stay there as long as I like. You can find me there if you want to, Pinky. You're always welcome, Pinky. Don't do anything, Pinky. All right, it's passing. Goodbye. These banisters will need amending for a long while. It's a good thing we have a nice, respectable lawyer like you on the spot, who saw the accident. I deny it. I deny it. I'm getting out of here. I swear I've never... Stay where you are. Frank, send for the police and the doctor. There's been an accident. Now look here, Pruitt. I only want you to say what's good for you, see? It wouldn't look good, though, would it, if I was taken up for killing and you was here, looking in the soap dish. You better throw his suitcase down. It was heavy and made him stumble. Danny. I've got a headache. I ought to be a charm. I've got a splitting headache. Be careful of fingerprints. I'm going now, Pro, to remember what happened. Can't go, Pinky. I wasn't here. The police were saying. That's your risk. We've got things to do. Don't tell me. Hey, in that marriage. Get it fixed quick. Nice lean. 92 minutes. Oh, I love it. Uh, I had heard the book. I had never seen the film. I knew, you know, knew all about Graham Greene's work. Uh, but young Richard Attenborough, who I've just my entire life grown up with as an old Harry Jurassic, Park Jurassic Park and Gandhi and directing Charlie Chaplin. That's my image of who this guy was, even though I knew he was a great actor. Get ready for, if you watch this for your entire image of this guy. He's this like perfect looking, beautiful, clean, thin, like actor kind of like um, you know a, like a very young leo or something like that but he is utterly terrifying when graham green heard that they were thinking of casting him at the time he was just utterly up in arms saying no 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 he's just he can never be, play the evil of this character terrible decision and he watched the movie he's like oh my god like it's really i put this like top 10 movie villain type guys in terms of what how he presents and how still he is uh but the real the real mvps of this movie the, the, it's the bolting brothers i guess they're largely producers they directed this film this film is so well shot it's, it's like a very precise black and white noiry uh film basically uh richard attenborough is the head of this gang and his name's pinky brown it's already great name <laughs> and they're all hoodlums but they are in brighton rock which is this kind of more beach area uh and i guess there it opens at this cool like carnival thing where there's a guy who a guy i think he's a journalist who they think is responsible for killing or the death or not responsible for the death of one of their own and so pinky gets in like this like into the horror roller coaster whatever it's kind of the haunted house thing and sits next to him the guy didn't realize he sat next to him and then he sees pinky's face and he's just like fuck and they go through this thing it's really the camera's like it's since 1947 and it feels like one of the most influenced by Citizen Kane movies ever seen in terms of like putting the camera in weird places and taking risks so the camera's just right there with them on the roller coaster at times uh, and there's a lot of examples of that in this movie uh, and he you know kills this guy and then realizes there was a woman with the guy before he went on the ride who's like kind of is a witness now because the guy never comes out of the ride and and she knows this one innocent beautiful i think she works as the um a waitress a girl what would have been truly a witness and could like testify to say oh he actually must have murdered this guy so what pinky does is he marries that girl so she would never be able to 
testify and that's his gang's like what are you going to do it's like he could kill her so he marries her and she's beautiful and so then she really likes him and they have a genuine it seems like a genuine connection but as the movie goes on you realize he doesn't have a genuine react connection with anyone he's he's a psycho like he's really devoid of this deeper human connection it's really kind of sad but he does it all in stillness in his face he, he's like he's somewhere between bill the butcher and ben, ben kingsley and sexy beast he's like right between that kind of psychotic uh he is so good in this movie it's like i would yeah i just think between that and the way this film was shot uh but it was also all shot really in brighton rock and they didn't want a movie to come out about their gang problem because they really had gang problems. So a lot of it was done, like a lot of scenes were done with hidden cameras and on the fly. And for 1947, you don't really think about that no. with filmmaking. So they get a lot of like the actual crowds and stuff. There's some really cool stuff in there. Um, and I like it's, that feeling, especially in British films for some reason. Yeah, well, it's just rarer. Um, and I think, I'm trying to remember the name of the actress. I think it's, um, uh, yeah, Hermione Bad Bedelli. And she's just really great. She's just like, it's really sad because she's really in love with him. And even at the end, he's, he literally says, oh, if we're going to be caught, we're going to have to, we should jump together so we can be together forever. Like we should kill ourselves. But what he's really trying to do is trick her into doing it herself just so he can get rid of her and then he can go on because he probably can't bring himself to do it to her. But it's, and it's just like, you're just like, this is so messed up. But it has, I think there are some similarities between the gang stuff, uh, the location stuff, and just seeing a kind of core disturbing romance like it's almost like if we were watching bill's romance with cameron before the events of that movie it would be a little more like this nice. and it would be bleak you know <clears throat> uh but this is a gem a really gem of noir if you haven't seen this one and i haven't I like actually it. it's one been, been on my list for years and i may even own a copy i think so you'll really like it because I'm of because of it's kind of um and and, and a little um third manish too in terms of like the way cameras used in shadow and light it's it's a really well done little film and it's it doesn't overstay its welcome and has a really a really good bleak ending that makes you just go oh nice. uh, <laughs> so i think it pairs pretty well no it's, do you remember how you watched it? Was uh, it uh, that was definitely on it was definitely streaming, streaming. i didn't okay. get a get a copy uh right, could have been have usually up. often i'm on amazon prime or something so yeah, I'll, I'll it looked look, great it yeah. was a, it was hd for sure i know there's a blu-ray i think overseas so it's there's a decent transfer out there um all right that's good stuff man that is for gangs of new york our pairings um uh, moving on to the aviator in 2004 hello mr mayor uh, i don't know if you remember me my name's howard hughes I was wondering if I could have a moment of your time. Oh, yeah. Howard Hughes. Yeah. The airplane picture, right? Exactly. Yeah, I remember. Hell's Angels. You heard of it. Good. Yes. Listen, I was wondering if I could have a moment of your time. Uh, I need a few cameras. Yeah? Yeah. Two, to be exact. Mm-hmm. I already bought every camera I could find, but we're shooting our big dogfight sequence this week, and I need two more. Desperately. Think MGM could help me out? With what? Cameras. Oh, without the actual cam. Well, we're not usually in the practice of helping out the competition. Ah. So, how many cameras do you have now? 24. <laughs> 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 you have 24 cameras? That's right, 24. And you, need, and you need two more? Yeah. You don't think you got it with 24? No, no, sir. You know? I think, I think we've got them all. Don't we have them all? They're all used, right? Uh, all 26 of them. <laughs> Jesus Christ, son. Howard. Howard, let me give you a little advice, huh? Why don't you take your oil money? Drill bits? Take, all right, take your drill bit yeah. money, and why don't you put it in the bank? Uh-huh. Because if you continue making the movie the way that you are, there isn't going to be a distributor who won't distribute it. Mm. You're not going to find anybody who wants to see the movie. Mm-hmm. And you're not going to have any more oil money. Mm. So... Welcome to Hollywood. Yeah. 
want you to remember that, yeah. Mr. Mayor. Yeah. Good luck. All right. He needs 26 to make it work. He's out of his mind. So I, when I started to read the script, I was, I, I felt this was a really interesting story on Howard Hughes because it showed you the young Howard Hughes, a vibrant, alive uh, character who was, um, um, uh, nothing would stop him, also because he had all the money in the world. Uh, he was able to fulfill any dream that he had, in a way, and, and like a young person, he was uh, interested in cinema, you know, movies, making movies, but being a big, making a big splash in Hollywood like a producer. Because, um, I mean, really, right around that time, the, the old pioneers in Hollywood, Griffith and Many of the others had shifted, the power had shifted towards the producer, really, in Hollywood. And uh, Irving Thalberg and so many others. Uh, Selznick was just coming up, in a way. But uh, he was more uh, producer auteur, in a way. Uh, which also meant the spectacle, it meant the event of the film. Not just the content of the film, but the event, how you present the film to the public. You know? And, uh, and so this was something interesting. I never really, I never saw the heights from which he fell. I never really thought about, I should say, the heights from which Howard Hughes fell. And I thought this would be interesting uh, because um, you'd see him as a young, vibrant man, full of ideas, and ultimately begin to see him being chipped away at while he's still struggling to, to create and to invent and to um, live a life. You know, he's still struggling, but uh, throughout, despite this illness, he's able to uh, do extraordinary things in aviation. But by the end of the film, by the end of the film, he's trapped inside of his own self. I think we both said when we got to about here, when we were just kind of talking offline, I think both of us have a feeling like if, you know, when you do these, sometimes you want to give a bump to a movie that maybe gets forgotten the shuffle a little bit. And I and I think we both said, I have a feeling we're both going to be on the side of the aviator and trying to get people to kind of look back at what, what a strong and interesting movie that is. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Yeah, it's a really great performance and one that was interesting to again not to keep bringing once upon a time back in but to see this movie i mean again he's not an actor but he's playing a similarly troubled character not quite as in the exact same dire straits not quite as having come from such a damaged background uh that would lead to a lot of problems for him in terms of the howard hughes character but nonetheless, I think it's really interesting to see the movies close together. And it's neat that the new Bev played this. This I think they already played it. Yeah, no, it was recent. Yeah. This was a weird one at the time. When it came out, I liked it a lot. But I had I was like a bit of a... You know how you just get your obsessions? I was obsessed by like, you know, serial killer books and things like that. I was obsessed by Howard Hughes. I was I had read like two biopics on him. Well, I'm talking like 18, 19, 20, that range. For whatever reason, I think it's just because, and talk, talk about great American like character, just like with all the different, and this movie doesn't focus on the cradle grave because there's a whole period where he's just discovering the the drill bit that made his family incredibly rich to drill for oil. You know, that's one, that's its own whole movie. It probably got a little bit like There Will Be Blood, right? That kind of a story. Uh, and, and learning about his OCD uh, learning how it got worse with the crash and that they gave him, like, this is in the bio, not in the movie so much. When he had the big crash, uh, they actually gave him the wrong medicine. And they uh, ultimately basically gave him lithium. And they made what happened to him probably like 10 times worse. But they only figured that out like 20 years later in medical science. Did they realize, oh, that'd be like giving, you know, the opposite of treatment to someone. And it totally messed his head up and probably is exactly why he ends up the way he ends up, which is really heartbreaking. Yeah. Especially when a character is as... Uh, visionary as this guy, and that's. Uh, but I, what I love about the movie, and especially, I, I loved it even more now. I loved it at the time. I was like, "This is a great movie," 
but I think I liked it even more now because I got to forget. I was just not hadn't read that stuff. I was just watching it just for what it was. And I think it just jumps into this like the, this ultimate risk taker. There's you know there's only the right way to do everything. Like we have to do it this way. We got to keep pushing till lunacy. Like especially as a as a movie person and just think about Marty as a movie person. You think about the scenes where he's like shooting. Uh, you know, it's just uh, all these planes in the air. Well, I opened with the clip of him talking to Louis B. Mayer and saying, "I have 24 cameras. I need 26." Yeah. Oh, you didn't quinque, quinque, get it with 24. Yeah, and it's like so he's coming in with total naivety about what a film me is. But that's what makes it so original because yeah. he's throwing different resources at the right thing. And he did the same thing towards bras. He did the same. I mean, all these weird things he did. But one of the OCD things that is interesting in the, bi- in the biographies on him is that it extended to woman. And that was his problem. He was basically, because he's OCD, it was almost like he's collecting. And he, it, so it's he almost doesn't have the time to actually to have the feeling because he was so busy. So we, he was often dating like four or five of them at once, but hiding that fact from all of them. And it was just really about, it's like he couldn't, it was a compulsion, just like any compulsion. And it's just interesting. Um, and they, they get, they touch on some of that in the movie. They touch on some of his relationships, David Gardner, obviously. I love the Kate Hepburn stuff. The Hepburn is like Kate the Blanchett core of the movie. Yeah. And it shows that this is the one person he, who did kind of understand him and, you know, had things played out a different way. Maybe they could have stayed together. It, it, obviously, she went on to find real, you know, lifetime bliss uh, in her relationship with uh, Spencer Tracy. But it's, you know, I, I think it's a real swing for DiCaprio because it covers quite a big period, too. Um, but he's, he's, you know, he's forced to do some really interesting stuff from being a young, wide-eyed visionary to a somebody who's a shut-in, losing his mind. But also the part, you know, one of the standout sequences that I'll never forget is the, just the sequence where he, you know, you're kind of falling in love with the guy and all things he has to do and he just goes in the bathroom and he just can't leave. And he's stuck there because he's cleaning his hands and he sees what happens if he touches any, you know, the, the napkin and and that what the other guy, he's just gone to the bathroom, is touching and he's just so in that moment that he can't actually exit the door and he's going to be stuck there forever unless somebody opens that door for him. And you feel what that must be. It's one of the most successful uh, portraits of what that must feel like for someone when you don't feel that way. Like I'm feeling it through him and his frustration and he's waiting, you know, for somebody to just organically open the door so he can slide out. It's like, it's pretty brutal. Well, especially when you've already set up that he's like a very powerful guy in Mm -hmm. terms of what he can get done, the money he has, and this simple thing. I can't get out of this fucking bathroom. Yeah. it's crippling. It's terrible. And when you add money to this kind of, pre- and I think that's what we see with a lot of the more eccentric movie stars or people who are rich. It's one thing we all have our eccentricities, but I think when people have uh, unlimited access to money, those things can be blown out tenfold because they can afford to isolate themselves. They can afford to indulge in these things that a lot of people have to get on with their every day. They have to go to the post office and work. Whereas if you don't have that, if you can choose not to do that normal, you probably get worse and probably fuel some of those things. And I think yeah. that's part of what this not having the structure you think, I think just and being forced and, and it's almost like you're, you're fueling, you are you're able to stoke the fires of the worst traits and not have to deal with people. And, and you can and, just sit around and dwell on all that. Yeah. Which is stuff. what the last 20 years of this guy's life become, you know, yeah. hold up in a Las Vegas room watching the same movie 20 times with 100 bottles of milk being put at your peeing in bottles I mean it's they touch on that here and it's you know it's it's pretty effective and disturbing but that in itself could be another biopic like I know Warren Beatty for the, forever wanted to obviously do the uh, Hughes that was his dream that was project. almost my pairing with this was uh, Rules Don't Apply I think mm. is what it's called but I didn't get a chance to watch it I still yeah, haven't I seen it. it but I, I do know that Marty was very reticent to do this movie 
because of uh, a it wasn't a personal movie to him at all and b because he uh knew of warren's obsession with this and he just felt like and 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 i was going to save it for a later movie but i'm going to bring this up now that i think it's a weird thing to bring up but i think some of marty's best work are the jobs he took for hire that weren't his obsessions it's going to come up with another movie towards the end of this that i think on a craft level is just like brilliant but uh i especially i think it starts with this it starts with these ones where he's been offered it a bunch of times i mean obviously raging bull started like that where he turns it down turns it down turns it down and eventually just goes all right it's a job for hire takes on and then just does such a good job with it that i don't think anyone else could have hit the lavish side of showing off hollywood of the time i think those scenes are all brilliant the filmmaking stuff uh, I just, I just think he's like perfect for the, I think that if you ask me like the top, you know, 20 sequences of movies from the last, you know, 20 years, uh, I think that l- later plane crash is astounding. Mm. I mean, watching it this time, like he, he plows through a house and you're in there with him and you are f- scared and it, and he's just going down and in, in flames and it's, and, and just also knowing how that's going to affect his psychology for the rest of his life pretty much. I just think that sequence is, shows just his chops. And there's a few movies in here where his chops are, I think are showing how at a peak he is as a technician, you know, yeah, which is not nothing. I think that's really important. Yeah. Well, and I also think there's something to the idea of a character that, <laughs> gets to a place of almost thinking they're immortal and but obviously knows they're not because he has all these flaws and you can you can approach that kind of scene with the crash in two one of two ways one is like well he got what he deserved and the other is like that sympathetic like oh shit he just didn't know it just it's an accident and he just put a little too much confidence in this you know crazy daredevil engineering and you know, it failed. And, it, and so you just, there's a great pathos. And like you say, especially knowing that it's going to affect him the way it does. Yeah. It's, it's really powerful, really powerful scene for sure. And it's like a movie about an American dreamer. I think those movies are always great. You know? Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Um, but yeah, and, and a lot of other people are good in this. You know, Alec Baldwin is the head of Pan Am, which is interesting, especially when you watching it from now, knowing Pan Am doesn't survive, you know, it's, <laughs> it's kind of fun. Uh, a lot of good cameos. Uh, I think one of the telling, just how you were just talking about that scene in the Warriors with the, arm you know touching the dress i feel like there's a similar scene to this which is like the key to the movie and it's when he goes to the hepburn's house and he's dating her and things are great between them and he meets her amazing family and they all seem so fun and and he just he's sitting at this like dinner table and he just can't connect with people he doesn't know how to be in the moment he he's like this guy's literally thinking about like changing the world with every thought is his brain and here he is sitting with these artists and he just doesn't understand art he doesn't understand liberalism he doesn't you know he just doesn't get it and there's a couple things exchanged and then he has to like leave the dinner and, and Kate Hipper and stays behind lets him leave and just keeps talking to her family like like nothing had happened and you just realize they're just from just that's why their relationship can't work ultimately it's a bit it's a bit tragic but it's such a good scene because it could easily be cut out of a story like this because it isn't moving the bigger picture forward but it's it's the key to that kind of a movie totally but yeah i I would love people to go back and either watch this for the first time or uh you know check it out because i I think this is a a really you know one of the best uh modern biopics yeah and and i would also say that it's it's really a neat thing to go from this movie straight into Shutter Island in terms of, I don't want to be too spoilery here, but um, there is a descent into madness Hmm, in Aviator and there's definitely an examination of madness in Shutter Island. And that's the one I was alluding to when I was meaning like jobs that just fall into your laps and then him, he's just 
such a professional that he makes it his own. And and I think the reason why I bring it up is I think we always want our favorite directors to be the auteurs, but the actual, and so I think we think of that as the writer, director, visionary. But if you go back to that term, that term actually originates in, in especially in the French uh, thinking as somebody whose pattern you see on all these different genres of movies, they have they have no control over their journeymen, but because they touched it, it's a little better. And that's really where the term originates. And I think he epitomizes that with some of these, where he takes on a project and he just makes it a I, like I really think that's the case with Shutter Island too. It's like it's the best movie it could ever be because he's directing it. Um, so yeah, it, I think those two, like you say, uh, are are fun back to back. And I, I remember enjoying both a lot at the time too. Yeah. Um, so for me, I went with a, maybe an obvious one, but another um, Howard Hughes story, and that's Melvin and Howard from 1980. What did you say your name was? Dumar. Melvin. First name. You're kidding me, Melvin. Hey, listen, buddy. Yeah. You want to do me a favor? Depends on what it is. Well, I see. I wrote this song. And no. I it's a Christmas song. You like it. It's called Santa's Souped Up Sleigh. Oh, God. See, what I did was I had wrote the words and then I sent the words into Hollywood Music Company. They make the music up for you. It costs 70 bucks, but it's worth it. Here's how it goes. You want to hear it? No, I don't. Santa called his elves together to soup up his old sleigh. So Rudolph and the other reindeer could rest on Christmas Day. It's got a million miles to travel and to do it in one day. And that's why Santa Claus has a souped up Santa sleigh. Enough, sir. Come on, you haven't heard the good part yet. It's dramatic narration. It's like Red Sovine. Hey, up there, ah. Batman, what are you doing on my roof? Why, I don't care if you're Santa Claus. Please stop. What's the matter? My ear. I told you we should have stopped back there. It's the sound. What do you mean? Your song. Boy, you, can, you can be cruel, you know that? Did anybody ever tell you that? You can be real cruel. Um, I still haven't seen it. I, dude, you're going to love you, it. You brought this up, uh, was it just a disc we were talking about? Uh, no, yeah. no, 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 our I, extra Patreon. I, yeah, I definitely covered it there somewhere. But it's it's one that, I, A, I know you're going to love it. Yeah, I guess. Just, there's no question. I'm not going to try and build it up and like guilt you. You're just going to love it when you yeah. get to it. But I definitely owe PTA a big debt for this one. It was either on the commentary for Heart Eight or Boogie Nights. That's where I first discovered that he was a fan of Jonathan Demi, and that alone shifted my take on Demi because at that point I think I'd just not seen some of the key works and so I was just kind of like oh we're also, we're also like pretty young when Silence of the Lambs comes out and it becomes such a big movie that that's how you then see that guy yeah yeah and and, and I like Silence of the Lambs oh, yeah. a lot it's a great film that's but it's sure. not for me like a favorite movie per se nor is it a movie that I'm like well the guy that did Silence of the Lambs I want to see his next movie, which I did. Don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is that if you look at the filmography of Jonathan Demme, it's so eclectic. It's so interesting. Yeah. It's got so much personality that I didn't realize at the time. And so this was one of my sort of entree into the other Demi mm -hmm. world, you know. And and so the, the story is basically that um, this guy, Melvin Dumar, played by Paul Matt, who's an actor that I just absolutely love. And he, in real life, the guy found supposedly ran across Howard Hughes in the middle of the desert and picked him up. Uh, Hughes had injured himself on a motorbike or something like that, a dirt bike, and drove him to a casino and dropped him off. And so the story is of that initial meeting 
and then years later uh, there was a then contested will that Howard Hughes left a whole bunch of money to Melvin Dumar as mm. like a tribute to this guy who didn't really believe it was Howard Hughes but was nice to him and mm. just you know for whatever reason but so then it sort of deals with Melvin's um, the complications that come into his life because of this not necessarily even getting the money but just the notoriety that comes with being named mm. and he's a guy who like you know is a trailer park guy he's struggling with his marriage he's like a milkman and um, you know he's it's a it's a great everyman kind of down on his luck kind of role for Paula Matt, who I think is one of the most compelling, and you know he just draws sympathy in this way that's not woe is me, but in this way that you're like he's such a charming guy you want to root for him like nobody's mm-hmm. business. So it's that kind of thing. But um, it features one of the this is just a quick aside that I love. It features one of the earlier examples that I know of that I've seen where somebody's listening to the radio and switching stations very much like Pulp Fiction in the beginning mm-hmm. I had never heard Tarantino talk about this movie but the intro is almost identical it's an unseen mm-hmm. hand switching stations on a radio as a car is driving it's the same shot mm-hmm. um, and it even features uh, the song Tennessee Stud <laughs> which Tarantino would then use Jackie in Jackie Brown, Brown. Mm-hmm. so I probably is a fan yeah. I can't imagine he's not um, but anyway, it's a really great story, and Robards is really Jason Robards plays. Robards, yeah, yeah, he's amazing, and he plays a great old, crusty, you know, maybe insane Howard Hughes character. And he's not in the movie that much, but. And so this is the is likely the Robards role that put PTA onto one. Absolutely, yeah. definitely one of the ones. He loves this movie. He's hmm. a huge fan. So I'm, I'm, I'm sure he liked Robards beyond this, but I know that this is a big one. For he him. Robards has the greatest line in, in any '70s movie in uh, uh, All the Presidents of Man, where he, where he talk, they introduce deep throat he goes garage freak <laughs> what kind of crazy fucking story is this it's like one of the best lines in any movie <laughs> Dude, robards is just underrated in the way that you're like why is this guy not talked about as like a marlon brand not a marlon brando but like that kind of level i think like, it's just purely because of the character actor slot like totally that's it because obviously picked, once upon a time in america uh yeah once but no once upon a time in the west rather it's next level, you know. The uh, but uh, the did you ever see the making of the Fitzcarraldo? Burn of dreams. But no, uh, it's not that one. It's the My Best Fiend. Oh, and yes. In that, they show you how Jason Robards was cast in the Kinski role originally. Yeah. And you're just watching it, going, "What? It makes no sense at yeah, all." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, there's almost that question of like, maybe he's just not leading man. You know? Yeah, and, and that I think that's it ultimately is yeah. why he's not as. But man, oh man, when he shows up, he always shows up. Yeah. No, he's he's a phenomenal actor. Um. Okay. Well, my joke pairing. <laughs> I'll start with that, which which would be pretty funny, but I didn't want to rewatch it. Uh, <laughs> it was going to be Ice Station Zebra. Oh, uh, interesting. Because it's Howard Hughes' watched it uh, 750 times. Was that the movie? I forgot. And played it every single night. Uh, for years, and if you and people claim that he also owned owned a cable access channel in Vegas, and if you were in Vegas and it was like three in the morning, uh, you would always know when Howard Hughes was like awake or something because he would force people to play that on the feed, and so you would know when Ice Station. So Ice Station Zebra, uh, you know, has Rock. Also, there's kind of a Rock Hudson uh, because there are stories of Cary Grant having been with Rock Hudson. There's stories out there of Howard Hughes having been with uh, Cary Grant. Uh, you know, which doesn't go into the biopic, and I don't know. I don't know. Uh, all the truth behind some of those but I think it's just cool to think that that could be a fun one to watch because it's a, it's actually a pretty fun adventure movie also in the ice it, it feels like almost a, an influence on the the thing a bit in terms sure. of the setting 
it's just doesn't, John Sturges. Yeah, John Sturges. It doesn't move. Very, it doesn't. It's, it's a little, a little slow. slow. That was the the, that was my t- the, actually the last time I tried to watch it for something we were gonna. Yeah. Oh, I know what it was. It was when we were talking about doing Winter mm. as the first mm. episode of the second yeah. season. I started it and I'm like, damn, this is fucking slow. Yeah. And I couldn't get into a groove with it. No, but that's not to say cool it's not stuff. good. But but I agree. But he apparently he loved this movie. That's so great. I always find that fascinating. And another fun one. I think people. It actually kind of pairs beautifully with the Aviator. Uh, it's more of a. It is a documentary, but um, Little Dieter Needs to Fly. Ah. The Herzog, uh, he eventually turned it into a narrative, you know, the prisoner of war film. Um, but the documentary is, you know, about an OCD pilot who, you know, still needs to be a visionary and fly and stuff like that. So I thought that there's some fun connections there. But um, I went with one that's actually, uh, you know, I hadn't seen it since uh, VHS days. And it's on Criterion now. And I was like, you know, this can be a great reason to watch it. I knew the pairing is great because it makes total sense. But it's um, Todd Haynes is safe. Nice. Because I wanted to deal with the OCD, uh, you know, fear of disease element, which is a small element of the aviator, and it's not the bulk. So I wanted to go away from the visionary. And this film um, is scary. How are you feeling? I still have this, um, this head thing. What the hell is going on here? It's in the air, in the water, in our homes. Oh, my God. It cannot be seen. Cannot be heard, cannot be stopped. We can turn it on and off like a switch. We just don't know how to make it go away. Mm. It is not alien. It is not viral. You are perfectly healthy. You might want to consult someone. Psychiatrist. It is not natural to this earth. Your family and friends tell you that you're overreacting. Where can you go when no place is safe? It's out there. I've got to say, like, I had—I remember wanting it to be a straight horror film when I was young, and that's why I was only kind of lukewarm on it, even though I remember going, well, more? Julianne Moore, you know, this was her first kind of major role. She'd been in a bunch of things. but Did you find it more it. comedic this time? I found it comedic, but I found it scary yeah, in a— it's both— in a more just, it's I guess it's more disturbing because I don't read it for what it is. Uh, uh, what somebody described, I love this description as a horror movie of the soul. I was like, that's <laughs> hilarious. But it's um, you know, she. What's scary to me is I don't believe her. I don't. I, I think. I, I think it is a psychological problem with the modern world. Not. I don't believe there really is all these like contaminants and every little thing. But obviously, people who. So basically, it's about this. It's very much. I feel like Mad Men also kind of borrowed some of the look of it. But it's like a modern housewife who is uh, seems. I wouldn't. Bored would be the wrong word for it. She's reaching an existential crisis in her marriage and her friends and all these things. And then just one day starts getting sick. And when she sees doctors and she has this really scary panic attack uh, at this all woman's like birthday, like shower kind of party where everyone's very fake except her one friend. And she just starts having like gasping for air. It's really disturbing. But the doctors just can't find anything wrong with her. She's completely medically sound. Uh, There's nothing wrong that they can see. They do the allergy testing. There's nothing wrong with her. Uh, So you, you, you know, I definitely read it. Oh, there's a psychological issue. But then she comes across a group of people who have gone on to some kind of almost like a little, um, you know, or like a retreat where they believe you and they believe they are contaminants that we can't see and everything The you know, and they, and they are right. I'm not, not to say that that definitely exists, but me watching this movie, I'm, 
watching it differently from the mindset of, no, oh, I think it's just like a mental thing about the modern condition that's driving her to this place. Uh, but there's one line where as I'm watching, when you're sitting around watching a movie to do a pairing, kind of like how we do this, you're always a little worried that you're investing your time in the wrong lane. And I started watching this movie and I'm, I'm sure the OCD thing is going to be perfect, but I'm just watching and she sees a doctor and there's a great line where she goes, well, I am a milkophile. <laughs> And as soon as she said, like she said, he said, "Oh, maybe you're allergic to dairy." And she goes, "Well, that could be true. I am a milkophile." And, <laughs> and, and there's a scene of her drinking a glass of milk. As soon as I saw that, I laughed out loud. I was like, "Nope, perfect, yeah. best pairing ever." <laughs> I can't Definitely go works. wrong. Uh, but it's you know she's well, mine, really mine great. has milk too in it. No, I know you. Milk it's man. an actual milk. I didn't man, even so, think about it. So, and it is an important thing when you see a thing. But it's it's a really um, I think this first half of this film. I would say is like a masterpiece. I think it's a masterpiece of like existential dread and the second half of it, which or the last act where she goes to the place and it, I'm, I'm less into it at that point. I just find myself like the thread of tension goes a little bit, even though it's still a really interesting movie. If people haven't seen that, if you're like, like horror adjacent type work, this, uh, my joke to, to a friend, because everyone's been talking about like elevated horror and the witch and all the, uh, those are horror films. Heritage is just a straight horror film. Uh, it's only elevated because they're good actors. It's but this movie now, if it came out now, it would be an A twenty four, and they would market it as a horror film. Yeah. And that's the difference. Back then, you could get away. It's like killer films, and it's an indie with with some dread tone, but because uh, it really isn't a straight horror film. It's, no, especially when you add that third act. I think because yeah. up to that point, there's a lot of like, is it in her head? Is she crazy? Yeah. I mean, yes, there are things, and I yeah. don't argue that. But there's a lot of like that dread you're talking about, and what's going on, and. Is she just completely losing her mind? Yeah. But when you have that sort of catharsis, uh, yeah, exactly. Somebody affirming that, and and yeah, it's even if they're crazy, like it doesn't matter. It 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 does something to take away that dread. But I will say that the biggest uh, takeaway from seeing that because I bought it on the recent sale, Criterion sale, is it, it just looks utterly when i saw this on vhs it probably was even cropped back then who the hell knows it, it was like seeing a different movie this film looks so great especially the composition. super wide if yeah it felt super wide it felt okay. super just everything you know it's like todd haynes as he builds into it's not stylized to, to where he's gonna go with uh was it far from heaven um with her that's you know obviously circian yeah. uh stylization but this is is, it's just really beautifully shot. There's a great scene like early on where she's starting to lose it and she's just like in her underwear walking around outside at night and a cop sees her and asks if she's all right. But, you know, just the way it looks like so photographic. Um, well, you're totally right about the compositions, though. He does yeah. a lot with style with single shots. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's very minimal. Really great thing to be able to pull off. Yeah, this is it's a really cool movie. I was really happy. But, you know, I just I, I loved I, I love these two to see. It's a great pairing. <laughs> and and for, it might not be the most fun pairing. <laughs> I mean, I, I it might be so. too grim to look at all these. But uh, but yeah, do, definitely. Uh, Aviator, double thumbs up here. Yes. Um, and speaking of a double thumbs up, uh, we're going to go right into The Departed from 2006. You know John Lennon? Yeah, sure. He was a president before Lincoln. Lennon said, I'm an artist. You give me a fucking tuber, I'll get you something out of it. Well, I tell you, Mr. Costello, I'd like to squeeze some fucking money out of it. Smart now. Too bad. If you'll indulge me. Now what? Choir practice. Choir practice. The point I'm making with John Lennon is a man 
could look at anything and make something out of it. For instance, I look at you and I think, what could I use you for? Yeah. Get rid of this. French? Put it downstairs, here. Yeah, thank you. Maybe we could work something out. Good. And uh, send this to his wife. I thought it was nice the way you asked the guy which hand he jerked off with. I hope this don't shake Rita up. So I remember she ain't that sentimental. <laughs> the process was one, a very long process in the editing, rewriting in the editing and shooting, uh, shaping the story and balancing character and story, character and story, uh, plot, I should say. And so I'm very pleased when people say they enjoy it. It's the, the story of betrayal. And I think once I understood how to deal with each actor and their role, and that includes uh, uh, Damon, uh, Wahlberg, and particularly, uh, of course, Leo and Jack Nicholson, once I understood where Jack wanted to go and how we shaped that, then I, then I became excited every day as to how to express this, um, um, the conflict between the uh, uh, trust and betrayal. And this is, this is what kept us going. Yeah, this is definitely the one I probably enjoyed most rewatching. Hadn't seen it since the theater, loved it in theaters. Um, but, you know, just loved it as a great straight actioner with some great twists, knew it was a remake, uh, didn't know much about it outside of that. Uh, one particular twist in the back, I think I told you that I audibly said, oh, fuck, really loud in the theater to the point where I was embarrassed that I was so loud. Right, and, and we and, you know we won't ruin it just because it might be someone, but I'll say, and I think I contacted you straight away, I was like, how it's even possible that I forgot this, but I had forgotten <laughs> the final key twists in this movie, which there's a couple. And I got so involved with the story again and the action of it. And it's just a very compelling movie. It's, I think, top of his game in terms of just like formal technique of just this is not a Scorsese movie in the like in the uh, concept of he, that he had anything to do with the writing of the story. And yet he just comes in. And it's just gangbusters in terms yeah. of how it moves. I got so lost in it when it happened. My brain was just like, oh, shit. Yeah. I just didn't know yeah. what twists were coming. So well, it's also like he plays it. It's not quite the same kind of offbeat that Carpenter uses for the blood test and the yeah. thing but it is a moment where you've been lulled somehow and, yeah. and you're just like yeah not, kind of sleight of hand yeah, yeah it's almost sleight of hand where you're just like whoa, whoa I was not even thinking we were going here but yeah, so I mean, and this one, I, I agree with you. I think this was uh, a great role for DiCaprio, a great role for Matt Damon. Uh, Jack, it's like one of the last great Jack roles we get uh, of him as like, you know, gang you've always kind of wanted to see Jack in a Scorsese movie, you know? Well, and fucking Wahlberg is like, oh, you're so blows hilarious. the doors off yeah. completely. And yet as good as all those guys are, in one scene, Alec Baldwin gets to be better than all of them with one of the funniest scenes I've ever seen. Probably my favorite Alec Baldwin scene. This is period. that golfing scene, A right? golfing scene where yeah. he's just talking about the front that humans need to have uh, to get I pulled by. This, I pulled this clip ahead of time because oh I was just yeah. like, where is it? Where's the part with the marriage and him talking I, I about marriage? I can't do it justice, so I'll just let the clip speak for itself. How's your wedding coming along? Great. Great. She's a doctor. Oh, that's outstanding. Yeah. Marriage is an important part of getting ahead. Lets people know you're not a homo. Married guy seems more stable. People see the ring, they think at least somebody can stay on the side of a bitch. Ladies see the ring, they know immediately you must have some cash and your cock must work. That's <laughs> <laughs> working. <laughs> Overtime. I'm glad to hear that. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, uh, but everyone's fantastic in this thing. It's tight. Oh, and you know, not for forget Vera Farmiga's the glue between oh, yeah. the two guys that she's I think is fascinating, and she's really good. This was the big one for me. I don't think I'd seen her in anything that that resonated, and it may have just been me. Hmm. But when I saw her in this, I was just like, "Oof, wow, 
Yeah. Yeah, and he really goes to town. Like, you know, we're so used to his New York films. He really captures all the same beauty and, like, history and, like, a culture with the way he shoots this film and, and the music he chooses, you know, the Rolling Stones are, you know, perfectly used to start yeah. this film. Um, I, if you watch the opening again, like, if you hadn't seen it for a while, I, I just love the way they introduce Jack character. You don't reveal him till you reveal him, and he's but he's leading you all through the opening of this movie in darkness and shadow, and then when you finally reveal him, it's at the right time. Uh, oh, the other person who is other, my other favorite, who, as anyone listening to this already knows, Ray Winston, is great in this. It's kind of the second heavy uh, to, to Nicholson. Yeah. Uh, super fun character. But uh, it's just a really tight uh, story too. Like you're really, it's really compelling. It's you know these you know two boys who both grow up in uh, you know this part of Boston. One ends, they both end up in military camp. I mean, both end up in police academies, uh, and one. Uh, was taken under his wing from a young age by Jack's kind of gangster character, and so is still an inside mall basically. And the other one has come. He gets uh, Leo gets pulled in by uh, uh, Martin Sheen, who we also who's also really good in this, mm. uh, and uh, who's the other one uh, by Wahlberg, and he's going to go basically. It's a story about a guy who goes deep, deep undercover to the point where you know they they'll burn your identity if they had to. It's yeah, that scary I, undercover. Those undercovers where you, where only one or two people know that you're in there, and you're like, what if something happens? To one of those two people or both and one of them is a bit of an asshole to you so yeah. that's, that's always worrying <laughs> yeah totally so I love that kind of tension that's set up with something like that and this is the best possible example of that oh yeah and he just keeps going deeper and deeper as he gets closer and closer and there's just such a scary tension and he's also not like it, it keeps setting up some, you know okay so Jack has one of the great lines where he says you know you know, you, you grow up to be a cop you grow up to be a criminal what's it really meant what's the difference when, when somebody's pointed a gun at you what's the difference or loaded gun at you what's the, I'm butching the line but that's the idea of the whole movie and I think that's the idea of the split between what what DiCaprio who's the good guy is going through he's a fucking mental wreck he's under all this pressure he can't like sleep at night he needs pills to sleep and he's like going to see Vera Farmiga to kind of you know uh, shed some of that burden but he's totally lost but he's the good guy and then the bad guy being Matt Damon sleeps like a baby has a good great life has all the riches never worries about anything until he starts realizing he could be caught and you just you see what different mental states they're at and yet you see how both will kind of undo each other uh, and it's just like there's that great concept of like when you have two characters who are like very similar but they're flip sides of the coin the good guy and the bad guy and those two are so well poised they even look like each other it's it's a great casting and also it's great anti you know uh, casting against type with Damon yeah you, you who's, all, who's I mean he played a villain in uh, Talented Mr. Yeah, Ripley but, but that's a psychopath totally it's a different kind of this is much more uh, that very charismatic yeah. Matt Damon that you know you can see how he's yeah I mean it's just a really interesting twist on that and he's a dude, douche like by the end you're like oh you're a fuckhead you, know, yeah. you really don't like it and there's an, and Mark Wahlberg gets one of the greatest moments ever and that's all I'm gonna say to yeah, yeah. with him yeah. but uh, and Wahlberg's fantastic by the end you, know, you really like this it's character. one of the best Wahlberg yeah. full Wahlberg if you will performance and as a Boston guy he's very lucky that he got to play this in his lifetime god he goes so all in there's just some great scenes where he comes in to like brief like a room of people and it's just a fucking prick but in this unapologetic like i'm good at my fucking job yeah you guys can fuck off yeah because i'm gonna get it done so just shut the fuck up and listen to what i have to say and he just nails that so perfectly staff sergeant dignam is our liaison to the undercover section his undercover work is extensive he's here to give us his report sergeant dignam okay my people are out there they're like fucking Indians. You're not going to see them, you're not going to hear about them, except through me or Captain Queenan. You will not ever know the identity of undercover people. Unfortunately, this shithole has more fucking leaks than the Iraqi Navy. Fuck yourself. I'm tired from fucking your wife. How's your mother? Good, she's tired from fucking my father. Good. Today, girls, what I have for you is microprocessors. 
Somebody, as you may already know, stole 20 microprocessors from the mass processor company out on Route 128. These are the kind of processors they put into computers that could put a cruise missile up the ass of a camel from a couple hundred miles away. These little pieces of plastic are worth about 100 grand a piece. Now get this, we got a guy working for the company two months, walks right out the front door with a box of processors on Tuesday, has a ticket book for Florida on Wednesday, but on Thursday, he gets found in a dumpster. You know where that dirt ball started his life? Southie Projects. What was his name, the departed? Miles Kennefick. Got the job at a forged UMass transcript. UMass Boston, which happens to South be South Boston? Oh, you're a fucking genius, huh? Who forged your transcript, dickhead? Hey, this guy's, uh, his old man runs the Hibernian liquor mod, Kennefix. We're not here to solve the case of the missing scumbag. We're here to nail Costello. All right, look. We got a guy who says he hears Costello's moving the process to China. He set up the whole fucking job in Pop Kennefick. You do not want to miss it if Costello takes a dump. We'd miss a lot less if you made your informants available to us and, of course, to the Bureau. Without asking for too many details, do you have anyone in with Costello presently? Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe fuck yourself. My theory on feds is they're like mushrooms. Feed them shit and keep them in the dark. Girls have a good day. <laughs> Normally, he's a very uh, nice guy. <laughs> but it's all about leaks, and it's all about like moles, and uh, you know, Damon's can uh, always having to cover his tracks. And there's a great, great scene where uh, DiCaprio has to f is trying to follow who he knows will be the mole to try to get an eye eyeball on him. Uh, meeting Jack's character in a movie theater, and then he chases oh, him, and it's just scene. a great scene. It's 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 in a way, it's like one of the most surprising. That's why I didn't mind him winning Best Director for this one, even though he's made more meaningfully Scorsese movies. So obviously, deep down, you want him to, for the history books, you want Casino and Goodfellas, especially Goodfellas. You want that to be the movie he won a Best Picture Oscar for. But it's just never the way. And he had never won one. And then he wins with this. And I, on a formal a formal level, I get it, man. As a director, he, he directed the shit out of this movie. So uh, it, whilst it might not be the most thematically in line with what he does, I do think it's one of the most, it's it's hands down the most entertaining of this block of films, in my opinion. Like rewatching it, I was like, oh my God, this this movie just totally rocks. I still have not seen Infernal Affairs, uh, which is ridiculous because I've heard it's either. better. And mm -hmm. I'm like, wow, that's something. And I it, Unfortunately, it probably won't be if you watch it after. I suppose, you know, yeah. Twists, you know? But I really want to see it. I've been meaning to see it forever. But I think I just love this movie so yeah. much that I'm a little afraid. I feel like it's a little unfair to that movie, even though it's the predecessor. This is the remake. There's Those those first impressions are so strong. Yeah, sometimes. it just happens that you can't control it. But yeah, no, there's, and there's also a number of sequels to Infernal Affairs, right? I think so, yeah. For some reason, I feel like somehow I caught the second one in a theater and never saw the first one. Anyway, uh, I wonder if that's Johnny Toe. I'm not sure. But uh, yeah, no, it's anyway, this is, a, you know, it's a great movie. Um, and it held up for you too, right, seeing it again? Oh, yeah. This was so one of the, I mean, for me it was, I mean, we've still got a couple left to go, but it was definitely bringing out the dead, the yeah. aviator, this, yeah, and one more. Yeah. That really got me. You cool. Know? I mean, not that I, unexpectedly. I liked them before, but I was just reminded how much I love them. The part of it, I, th I, th I can't, I don't want to say it's because he won the Oscar that I somehow forget about it and it kind of slips into Oscar fair. But then rewatching it again, no, this is this is like also having a lot of fun. You yeah, know? Also, it's actually one of the Jack, most you know? fun thriller things that he does in this back half. Yeah, you know. In fact, oh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it might be the most fun. Period. Yeah, I think it is. The of most all of them, you have these films. This yeah. in the back. So, um, so I went with a movie that I haven't mentioned. I don't think. Unless no, I don't think I've mentioned it since our New York episode. So this goes way back. Yeah. Uh, but I had to bring it up because for whatever reason, the sort of betrayal thematics and some other things really 
really got me. And I'm talking about Prince of the City from 1981, yeah. sitting in the mat. Fuck, I mean, we know how you guys become judges. You pay 50,000 and zap, you're wearing robes. You guys, you, you live in Westport or here on Central Park West. While we're up in El Barrio on 125th Street. I mean, you want us to keep everybody on the inside so you can stay on the outside. That's not true. The fuck it's not true. The fuck it's not true. The first thing a cop learns is he can't trust anybody but his partners. I'll tell you something right now. I sleep with my wife, but I live with my partners. You people, you people, you're just out to hurt us. You want to lay the whole fucked up system on us. But nobody cares about me but my partner. You understand that? Nobody! You see, I see what kind of man you are. And you, you know? And then I look at my partner and I see what kind of man he is. And there's just no comparison, see? It's me and him and whatever guy we catch. And we're gonna put him in jail. We're gonna lock him up. And we're gonna take his fucking money. Fuck him, fuck them, and fuck you! Fuck you! I mean, it's, so it's all about uh, this SIU Special Investigations Unit in New York and how they were given this autonomy to just kind of do whatever they wanted to do mm. to take down, you know, bad guys. And they did that. But they got they got a little carried away. They got a little corrupt. And eventually things went really bad. Um, but this is the unit that broke the French, the real life French Connection case. I mean, these guys were really mm. heavy duty. But so it's really about this character, Daniel Cello, played by Treat Williams, well, I think he's really good in this movie. Yeah, I don't know if he's given the best a, thing he's done. Yeah, I don't think he's given a better performance, and I really like him. That's yeah. not saying trying to discredit anything else he's done, but he plays one of these cops that is finally like Marty. He's wrestling with guilt. He's wrestling with feeling feelings that he has about what's going on, and he starts to help investigate. You know what his unit is doing, and but he always says he's never gonna. First, he's never going to go against cops. He's definitely going to never go against his partners, and things just escalate at a point. But it's it's got some incredibly tense scenes. It opens with a really amazing scene that sets the stage for what SIU was like in that Danny Cello gets a call from a junkie who's flipping out because they don't have any shit, and he basically goes and helps this person score. This is a stoolie of his, and he's in the middle of the night. He ends up going like beating the shit out of another junkie to steal the junk to give to his junkie and he ha- actually even has a moment of like oh my god what is going on here and this you see, he's got this poor junkie on the ground he just beat the shit out of him and he's just like this is mm-hmm. and, and i think that's one of the moments where he's like i need to do something and that ends up being you know getting involved with the feds and some other things but anyway it's a really compelling and powerful um drama and it's epic you know in terms of the length i want to say it's like I think this is something that keeps people away from it sometimes. It always felt like it was. It, when I first saw it, I remember going, oh, was this, did the, had this been a two-part miniseries? Because it, it could, feels like it could have been released like that yeah, on TV. It could have been. I want to say it's 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 over two and a half, but I forget how close to um, three hours it is. But um, it's more in line also with like saying like The Wire, like uh, feeling like the ultimate procedural. Definitely. Well, the other thing I wrote down was I'm like, this is Goodfellas with cops. Yeah. And I think that is definitely maybe a broad uh, encapsulation, but there is something to that. This idea of we're riding high, and then suddenly shit just starts to fall apart, and things get really bad. And and I think that on that level, there and there are betrayals and 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 characters that you like, you know, don't make it. You know, <laughs> but, that feels like a real pure cinema type of movie, like one of those kind of cult gems that 
people do know about it. It is out there, but it's not. It's often often forgotten or just passed over. Maybe yeah. it's the running time. Yeah, it's two hours and forty seven minutes, by the way. Yeah. But but yeah, I mean the the cast is really stunningly good, and and not only you have Treat Williams, but you have um, Jerry Arbach is fantastic. Um, and there's a bunch of other guys that you would recognize. Bob Balaban is great as one of the chief investigator guys, and he's just such a perfect, like, I don't give a shit kind mm. of dick. Like, we're just going to take these people. Oh, that's a friend. I don't fucking care if it's a friend of yours. We're just going to, you know what I mean? Like, he's yeah. just very, like, by the, we need to do this. And then um, James Tolkien is in there, too, mm. and he's great. And Lindsey Krauss uh, is um, Chiello's wife, and she's really good. It's it's just really a great lumet you know, actory movie, and it's just got some really wonderfully tense scenes where you know he's wearing a wire or he's not wearing a wire, or you don't know if he's wearing a wire because he had this whole thing of like, uh, like a gut feeling on the night of a. And this is the real Dan Cello as well as the character, but he would just kind of like feel his what his energy was that nope, I'm not going to do it tonight. I'm not wearing a wire tonight. I don't feel good about it. It's like a whole movie of if you like that one scene in uh, Blowout where they show the flashback to what Travolta did, where he has to get wired yes. and the thing goes wrong and it's like lights up. Like, which I love that sequence it's in that movie. I, this is an entire movie of that world. Yep. And I remember thinking that, I almost remember thinking I was seeing the same movie. Like I'd seen Blow Up and Not Prince and then starting, oh, maybe I have seen this, but realizing, no, it's just a different, you Yeah, know. it's very much a good encapsulation. But anyway, it's a really great movie, one that's available digital and DVD. No Blu-ray that, that hmm. I know of yet, and I'm just dying for that Blu-ray to come out. Oh, yeah, that'd along. be nice with uh, some, you know, Treat Williams commentary or something like that. Yeah, I know he, there's a little... Um, making of on the dvd where he talks about being so proud of the movie and talking about it has just made his year and this was just when the dvd came hmm. out so it's really something that was very important to him and he felt like it was one of his favorite things he did so yeah i'm glad that one gets uh, gets love again from the show then so that's prince of the city um yeah at first i was gonna i was thinking about for a long time going with rush i hadn't seen it in a long time I, a, dude i can barely remember except I, that there's drugs yeah involved. i think what stopped me i didn't rewatch. i think what stopped me was just because it's so much about drug culture yeah that I, even though it's the undercover thing with Jennifer Jason Lee, Jason Patrick, because uh, I, re- I remember seeing it on TV as a young person, really liking it, thinking Jason Patrick was like, you know, great. I always remember just people describing it as one of the most depressing movies ever yeah, made. Yeah, and it's kind of long uh, for what it is, so I didn't get a chance to rewatch it, but I was thinking that could be a fun one. But um, I actually went with a movie I'd never seen before. Uh, it might have come across you because I know the Blu-ray came out in the last couple of years, and it utterly, this is my my discovery of this show, uh, also, it's a perfect pairing, but like as a discovery, anytime I catch one of these, it's kind of like short eyes. It was almost on that level. Uh, and the film is called Report to the Commissioner. Oh, nice. It looked like a routine homicide. No one knew the victim was an undercover policewoman, including the detective who killed her. Her name is Butler, Patricia, alias Chicklet. She's five foot six, blonde, pretty, dead. The commissioner wants to know why. We have the biggest scandal this department ever had. Lockley Beauregard, nicknamed Bo, first year detective. You're Beauregard Lockley. I'm afraid so. It happened. <coughs> they sent us a hippie. I was going to be the new cop. He was tailing Chicklet. I've been made. I think he's a cop. Look, I don't know what's going on here, but if he stays with me, there's going to be trouble. Someone's going to get hurt. He's now being held for psychiatric observation and murder. All of a sudden, there were lights in my face and guns going off around me. And I guess I just went a little crazy. I want a report. I don't want a cover-up. Blackstone, Richard, also known as Crunch. Oh, we got. He's a veteran. He's tough. 
may be too tough. You were never part of the operation. I told you they were going to hurt you. I knew the day you walked into that precinct, you were going to wind up in here. And it's uh, Milton Castellas, uh, 1975. Uh, the title is terrible. Like, I mean, it's very factually accurate that that's the movie. about. It's about a report they're making. But, like, if this movie had been called The Departed or something like that, it would be so much sexier because uh, it's really, like, you know. So, basically, it's um, – basically a new detective comes to join the force and he's a hippie uh, and throw way back to our Larry Cohen episode and Michael Moriarty in, in a role. I, I mean, this is actually the most raw he's ever been. Like this is, it's, it's not at all stylized the performance. He's really raw. He plays, um, <laughs> Bo Lockie. No, is he Bo Lockley? No, he's, um, Chicklet. They call him Chicklet, uh, is his nickname when he comes in. So he's basically kind of a hippie and all the cops are like mocking him for, uh, for joining the force. And he gets paired up with, uh, you know, uh, the greatest, uh, Yefet Koto, who is just on fire in this movie is the support. I love Yefet Koto. Another Larry Cohen throwback to Bo. So you got two great, great Larry Cohen regulars. And I, I would have to believe that Larry Cohen watched this movie and loved it. Um, and also, he didn't direct it. <laughs> it's also pretty gonzo in the same way that Larry Cohen stuff is, especially like God told me to, and I'll, I'll get to that. But uh, so the basically premise of the film is in the opening of a film, uh, a there is a dead. The cops stumble upon an apartment and find a blonde woman uh, naked and dead on and shot dead. Uh, they then try to start figuring out, oh, who is this woman? And then one of them goes, oh shit, she was an undercover cop and she's dead. Then they, then the next thing you see is Michael Moriarty being hauled in, like we we believe he sh- shot her, and you're like, what is the connection? But and he's like, he's like, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know, and he, he's getting arrested. And then the, basically the structure of the movie is a backwards, almost like if the report of everything that happened to The Departed had been put on somebody's desk, and you decide to structure the movie, going, okay, so what happened in, to get to these events that Departed ends, and that's what this movie is. So the structure then becomes, uh, it goes back and starts. Somebody is basically one cop is told, look, I think there's a lot of corruption, and I don't know who to trust. The you know the commissioner, and he says, you, I want you to interview everyone and get me a report. So this guy starts interviewing, and then you, it's kind of like almost like a Susan Kane like device. You then start forgetting. And they don't really keep repeating it. You then just get lost in the story. And the story was the hippie kind of guy joins the cops. He probably shouldn't be joining the cops, but his dad was a cop. So it kind of reminds you of like a, a character like DiCaprio whose behavior is like like in, in Departed DiCaprio is going against, you know, his dad never did anything, you know, he never was a criminal, blah, blah, blah. Uh, so this guy tries to join the force. He's a joke to everyone on the force. Uh, he gets he gets paired up with Yafit Koto, who's a, street, a streetwise cop. Uh, and they basically at some point pull him in to go to, to basically uh, – look for uh, a runaway. They don't tell him. They basically pick him because they want the most clueless cop to be on the on the mission because the idea is not to ever find the runaway because the runaway is actually one of their undercover cops, but they need to put some heat on it so it feels real. And she's gone deep undercover uh, to, to live with this guy called Stick who is like a pimp and a uh, drug pusher that she's going to bust but she has this radical idea of like maybe I'll hook up with him and actually be and usually you know the cops are going to put a, a kibosh on that because obviously that puts you in so much danger she's going to have an actual sexual relationship with him and get involved like this is a big no no unless you're Hector Elizondo where you're like <laughs> I kind of like the idea uh, and so Hector Elizondo is in there um, and he's I wouldn't call him a bad guy but he makes bad choices uh, Ooh, you get, Bob Balaban's in this movie too uh-huh, you get William Devane in one key scene towards the end which is really cool and it's the first role 
by Richard Gere and he plays a pimp and he's nice. actually in it quite a bit and he's actually pretty good. Um, and so basically, so while Ma- Michael Moriarty's meant to be clueless and not get too close, of course, he's actually pretty good at what he's doing and he starts getting close. He doesn't know she's a cop. He thinks she's a, just some runaway that he wants to help. And by the time he enters into that storyline, uh, everything's starting to get escalated. We already, you know, it's not a spoiler to say she dies because it's the premise of the whole whole movie. But the way it goes down is surprising. And it leads to, I mean, this movie was like, uh, you know, an eight out of ten. I'm watching this. And then suddenly there is a chase scene through the streets of New York with the, with the guy Stick and this guy. And it is so gonzo. And it is like dangerous the way they're filming it and running through the streets. Uh, the guy Stick has no shirt on. So there's, imagine like a really buff uh, African-American man running through the streets of New York, clearly on hidden cameras at times. And it just keeps going, keeps going, gets intense. And they end up stuck in this elevator of a department store together. And it's one of the most intense sequences for like the next 20 minutes of them being trapped in this elevator together. Both with guns at each other while something even worse awaits for them outside and the reason they can't get out of this elevator and I won't go past that because there's still it's just has an energy to it that it felt like I discovered one of those great lost 70s movies I was like whoa how is it the title or is it the fact that it only just finally came out on Blu-ray now because I I, I bought it knowing nothing about it I just this is this is what I when I have my best moments for the show it's for me not for you but my my personal it's when I like get a hint of something I think Born of Fire was a fun one like a little while ago where I'm like this could be good could be bad I don't know but the description sounds in line and then you just get lucky or roll the dice yeah but this movie's fantastic I'd I'd highly recommend Blind Buy yeah it's a Kino Blu-ray I think you said I think so it's uh, Elmer Bernstein scores the other stand-up part it's really great Uh, and the DP is uh, Mario Tosi who shot uh, Carrie and the Stuntman so Whoa, I'm a big stuntman nice. fan. Uh, yeah, man, for New York, if you like, if, if let me go back in time. If this was our New York episode and I'd seen this movie, it would have made my New York episode because it shows off New York in that really fantastic way. And Yafet Koto is just such a total badass. Absolutely. I truly love him. As no, a, he's one of my faves. I just recently watched, uh, I, we're, we're going to be doing an episode by the time this airs, probably already done the screen draft where we're doing all the Nightmare on Elm Street. And that movie, Nightmare on Elm Street Part 6, I, I really hate it. I cannot stand it. I think it's like, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm glad that some people like it out there, but towards the end of it, yeah, Koto is, is a totally major character. As soon as he's in it, and he's like a, a dream of this guy, I kind of love it. Nice. No. <laughs> so, you know, he, he makes everything better. I can't think of a scene or part of a movie he was in where I'm like, well, I'm out because Yafikoto's Yeah, no, he really, he really grounds something. You know, he's also one of the last characters to serve. He's like, I think one of the la- second to last character who lives in Alien as well, when you think about it. I think he is the only, pr- he, I think he goes right before Ripley. Oh yeah, yeah. Because you know, obviously, the other guy Twist is not, <laughs> is not what he thinks. So yeah, no, he's yeah. He, he he's just a really he's easy to kind of forget. But then when you are reminded of who this guy is, you're like, yeah, he's a badass. Oh yeah, and then if you see Blue Collar, then you obviously know. Yeah, totally. What's up? Oh, totally. I I, I kind of wish I had. Um, well, no, I'm glad I discovered this when I did. But if you like any of those people, this is would be my blind buy of the of the show. And it's it is a shame when it, I mean that is a bad title. Like Prince of the City. At least you have some romanticism. But report to commissioner. Yeah. Is kind of like what is that about it's like report to the principal it just sounds like <laughs> yeah or it reminds me of larry cohen's like the private files of j edgar hoover it's like that does not make you want to watch that movie. not necessarily but at least that's a little bit more intriguing in, in its title but, but even then if you know yeah you want something that would be a better hook this right. is a great little movie i don't yeah. know if the have you heard this come up much before because i just not knew too much about since it. this before this blu-ray yeah. came up i i don't know that it was i think it had a made on demand dvd i think that's how i first even knew it was a thing yeah um i forgot vic tayback is in this movie too i love vic tayback um but yeah it's it's i remember liking it when i saw it but i don't remember some of the stuff you're calling out so i may not have seen it 
in a little while. So. Yeah, it's, I think this is one you will, you're going to get. It, it kind of, to be honest, it's on the level of uh, Prince of the City. Nice. It, it has that kind of quality. Thanks. And I, I don't want to go without a Tony King, uh, who plays the guy Stick, the pimp guy. He, he, he goes from being like a trope in the background to when he gets this like long sequence. He's really good on screen, really good performance. I don't I don't know if I've seen him in other things. i got to look him up afterwards, but nice. really good. So, yeah, this is really uh, Milton Ketzelis. Uh, really good film. Report to the commissioner. Report All to the right. commissioner. So uh, trucking right on to the next Scorsese film, which is Shutter Island from 2010. Men like you are my specialty, you know. Men of violence. Now that's a hell of an assumption to make. No assumption, no, not at all. You misunderstand me. I said you are men of violence. I'm not accusing you of being violent. Men, that's quite different. Now please, please, edify us, Doctor. You both served overseas, huh? It's not much of a stretch, Doc. For all you know, we're both paper pushers over there. No, you are not. Since the schoolyard, neither of you has ever walked away from a physical conflict. No, no, not because you enjoy it, but because retreat isn't something you consider an option. We weren't raised to run, Doc. Ah, yes. Raced. And who raced you, Marshal? Me? Wolves. Ah. <laughs> Very impressive defense mechanisms. One of the uh, uh, elements that, that attracted me to the story was the, the nature of the genre. This picture seems to be, seems to have its roots in, in a number of genres. Um, and uh, primarily, I guess what you would call the psychological thriller with touches of uh, a gothic horror or implications of gothic horror. There's really a creepy, uh, threatening sense about it. It's the type of picture I like to watch. You have to create a state of mind with the lighting and the camera movement, and that's where Richardson came in, and these references and my own discussion with him, constant discussions, and also Dante Ferretti. A state of mind had to be conveyed, a place that was more than a, just a place. It was a, a place of being. It's not necessarily the, 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 the nature where the story is told or the setting, but it's really what happens to the character of Teddy. I, I, I found to be very moving. Super fun movie. Yeah. Now this, I mean, obviously we did the head trip movie episode and, mm-hmm. and I hope it's not too much of a spoiler because I feel like once you start watching this movie, you get a sense that there's something a little strange going on and I'm, I'm not trying to give away anything. There is definitely some weirdness in it. Um, but I think it could have easily slotted into our head trip movies episode is what I'm trying to get. Oh, at. for sure. Yeah. I mean, this one's uh, a guy, uh, a cop is investigating. He, he's brought in to go to this mysterious Island, which is kind of like a mental institution version of an Alcatraz, uh, where a patient is missing. And that's the setup. And he's joined by a partner played by Mark Ruffalo uh, on on the sh- on the ship going out there. They didn't know each other beforehand, uh, but it all you know when you see them together, it all seems like it makes sense. And uh, that once they get out there, uh, you know you're dealing with like people like Ben Kingsley who run the institution and Max von Sydow is a guy at the institution. So these like A list uh, psychiatrist type characters. Uh, there's a as as they're going about it, they're kind of being blocked in a lot of ways. Into they're very cagey, yeah. They're very yeah. cagey, and you're just like, "What is going on with these guys? Yeah. What's the story here?" And, and there's lots of layers. The mystery keeps kind of unfolding, and then it culminates in a big, uh, you know, weather event that like basically uh, forces them to stay on the island, and then uh, then it starts kind of mirroring 
him questioning what is going on here. Am I being lied to about what the patient is or is the patient escaped or is there, are they being hidden? And, you know, and then you st- he starts questioning his own place and all of this. And that's, you know, where it gets spoilery, but it also, I feel like it's kind of, I don't want to go too far there because if you haven't seen it, then this is a great show. To me, this is him at the ultimate height of like seeing a director with the um, toy train set. It's like, he's got the big model. It's kind of like shining for Kubrick. It's like seeing somebody get to play with the big, the, that kind of big apparatus and just having so much fun with it. It's a little bit like an old spooky house movie. It's, you know, it's the mental institution movie. There's just so many elements at play. Yeah. I was noticing, and I texted you about it, that there's definitely some Sam Fuller in here, mm-hmm. uh, the shock corridor and the steel helmet. I think mm-hmm. both come into play. Yeah. Shock corridor would be an easy, total perfect pairing. Yeah. And we know he loves Sam Fuller. So it's an obvious thing. And he, I, I couldn't find necessarily anybody anywhere he, where he talked about it, but I'm like, come on, this has got to be there, mm-hmm. you know? And, and that was really neat to see, you know, again, playing with that big train set and then him still being like, hmm, Sam Fuller, let me just throw a little bit, a bit of that on here. And know? there's also a lot, uh, you know, when it gets towards the ending, there's a lot of emotion in this. And I think Leo does a real, this is actually one of the best things I think he kind of uh, develops into, but part of the twist of this movie and where it goes, there's just an emotional side to it and there's a decision made by a character that I find when you think about it and you step back from like what you're watching, you go, oh, that's pretty, it's pretty fucked up and it's really, it's really sad. And I think they nail those beats. I think it really deepens what you see because sometimes movies like this, I think once a twist is, once a key twist is revealed, you might never need to watch it again. But once the twist is real, because it's followed up with emotion, it really, I think deepens what this movie is. Uh, and it, it, yeah, it's just, it's fun. I and you really, I, I, to be honest, I was excited to rewatch of all the movies I remember that was the one I was kind of most excited I hadn't believe it or not seen it since the theater and I loved it in the theater um, because it also strays horror you know it's got uh, I actually was tempted to go with a Luden film I was actually tempted to go with Isle of the Dead because even though he has an actual movie about asylums and somebody's stuck (laughs) in an asylum which I actually is my least favorite Luden film um, it's just for some reason I find that one a little dull that Bedlam I think it is Uh, it's just one of those films that just doesn't really do it for me but but Isle of the Dead has the you know people on an island kind of feel that this has and I think this is I do feel like I see him channeling some of that aesthetic quality you know yeah and he's using um, Robert Richardson again which is a great choice for this subject matter and and it yeah it definitely gives a surreal you know unbalanced feel to some of the stuff that's going on which is perfect you know absolutely perfect and some great uh, little guest cameos like um you know all, all the people we just mentioned great but Elias Coteas has a really great role Jackie Earl Haley comes in at one point mm. for a really interesting uh speaking of Nightmare on Elm Street uh, <laughs> Jackie Earl Haley has a small role in there uh and they're all really good it, it feels really authentic the the insane asylum feel which is just such a fun subgenre when you think about it. there's so many movies that have been set in these kind of institutions that are super intense and disturbing but yeah there's lots um, of great um uh, lady cameos too: uh, Michelle Williams, Emily Mortimer, Patricia Clarkson. Uh, oh, Ted Levine is oh, one of the wardens. Right. Yeah, I he's the warden. Yeah, it's kind of vicious. He has a great scene with him. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you see it a second time, you realize that a lot of what they're doing, you see a different side to it. Kind of like the game, the movie. Oh the yeah, game. big time. And I, and I and I think again, you know, hopefully we're not ruining anything for anybody, but but it is just as enjoyable, if not more mm. so, on yeah. that second viewing. And yeah. and you and I think for me. Like you were talking about the emotion. I think the emotion is more there because I'm already kind of in on what's going on. Mm-hmm. And it just allows me to focus on his character a little bit more and what he's going through. And then that emotion hits even harder for me, I think, yeah. the second time. No, I, and I think that's what I, what I was getting at is like yeah. this feels like 
a job that while he's waiting to make a dream project, he's just, you know, he has these projects that take him six, 10 years to make. And somebody goes, well, you could do this thing in between. And it's kind of like, uh, okay, sure. And then, then what he does with it is just so good. Yeah. And as a craft, I think between this and back to back with the departed and the aviator as a three film run of like just craft, really impressive. Yeah. Such different movies. Totally. Well, Um, it just shows like how incredible, I mean, obviously it's an obvious thing to say that he's a great filmmaker, but he's a guy that just like literally cannot help but make a good movie. Yeah. Like he just, it just is part of his DNA to do it. You know? And it kind of connects. I feel like this one connects pretty well with say, uh, the same world of say Cape fear. I yeah. think those two, even aesthetically, I feel like there's similarities, obviously, uh, you know, Cape fear. You could imagine that guy in Cape fear at the end, who's going down. <laughs> you can imagine him in this asylum. Yeah, totally. Uh, just like walking by a cell with him yeah, screaming. Oh, totally. It'd be a good, it'd be, about a, that. it'd be a good De Niro cameo in that movie. Yeah. Uh, but I really like it. I think it's a really good movie. And yeah. you know, again, I could see why somebody wouldn't watch it that many times. Cause it is a big movie and there's, Dude, I almost want to watch it again right now. Like, I was just that, you know, satisfied with the viewing experience and what he did with it. The Michelle Williams stuff is, it hits. It hits, it's it's really hard. She's really good. She is a fantastic, my wife is a huge fan of hers. I think going back to, um, what was the TV show? Oh, yeah, yeah. I don't want to win. Yeah, yeah exactly. Dawson's Creek. Dawson's Creek. My wife is a huge Dawson Creek fan. I still maintain that if that would have been the greatest show in the history of American TV, if by the end of the series, Dawson had like somehow drowned in the lake, and it, that's what was the whole idea <laughs> of the creek. Like it was Dawson's Creek because he, oh, our friend Dawson who died all those years ago. Instead, There's they like went a, to college. A memorial service at the end of the no, show. No, that's why I wanted it to be. And that, uh, Dude, anyway. I know you want Joshua Jackson in more movies in general. So Believe it or not, I was a really, I, I watched that show, was a fan. Uh, couldn't stand and uh, Joshua Jackson through all these movies he made like skulls and all that shit and then like years later when I started seeing him as an adult actor he's really good yeah no like, I'm fucking is, around I mean yeah, I no, no, but he's now he's like uh, I think it was like the TV show The Affair and there's other movies he's been in he's a, he's a really good actor so it's, it's always fun when an actor like and like, kind of like Leo you have to almost outgrow that boyish if you especially if you're like um, really confident in that mm. they're saying that can be obnoxious about that but at a certain point yeah he, he, got, he got good I told you my Vanderbeek story didn't I I don't think so I'll make it brief but we got on a plane I, this might have been coming back to LA from somewhere uh-huh. and we went through the you know very froofy first class and we saw him come in and sit down and it was one of those first class seatings where you can actually like slide your chair back and make it into a bed and um and he like and you get a blanket and get all yeah. comfy and and he totally went all in on the fucking he was <laughs> all know. fucking curled up in his blanket and his bed and shit I'm just like you fucking you know it's weird I wonder now if that's why we're doing the show together because I too have seen him on a plane did, maybe we did tell the story because I feel like you, you maybe I don't know I don't remember ever telling it but I you, you saying it I'm having a literal flashback to seeing walking by and go oh my god there's Dawson on a plane <laughs> and I think he had a little bit of a mustache or something and I was a little thrown by it. <laughs> Um, but he probably had it. He's probably still under that blanket. <laughs> yeah, but it was very much this moment of like, oh yeah, he's still a kind of a prima donna actor, yeah. and and fine, you guys earned it, I guess, you know. <laughs> but I just it was it just it turned me off just ever so slightly. Should have drowned. <laughs> If only they had killed off Dawson, we'd still be talking about it as oh, art today. Boy. Yeah, it'd be uh, like the next Twin Peaks, re- the Return, or something. Um, anyway. I did not expect that we'd end up talking about <laughs> Dawson Creek on our Shutter Island uh, part, but you know, I knew you'd appreciate that turn. Uh, so I just um, hope you put a music cue in there at some point, because if you do, people are going to be talking about this one for a long time. Okay, so um, I went with a more modern film, which I haven't done a ton on the show recently, but this movie, I do feel like came out and was pretty well glossed over mm-hmm. and uh and i and it, at the time i first saw it i thought maybe i thought it was not as good as i think it is now and i don't think it's 
amazing, mm-hmm. but I think it's really solid and interesting and doing some really cool stuff. I'm talking about the jacket from 2005. Oh, yeah. You're the cop killer, right? That obvious, huh? Uh, TV, you know, helps soothe an active mind. I'm Rudy McKenzie. Welcome. So, uh, I don't really feel like talking about uh, that. You know, that's a shame. I, I, I don't believe in disposable language either. You know, small talk, little talk, chit-chat, useless. The game, the game's something else, though. This here is our court. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to throw the ball. Come on. All right. What are you in here for? I tried to kill my wife. Don't you go to jail for that? Yeah, well, I tried like 30 times. I, I never planned on doing it. You know, it was always, always in the heat of the moment. And she kept threatening to have me put away until finally she did. <laughs> 30 times might make you seem crazy. Yeah, well, I just, I just plain stupid. Because you'd think by the 20th time, I would have found an alternative method or, or, or maybe, maybe a more effective one. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you doing today? For me, that is a really difficult question, Dr. Lawrenson, because the world around me is shrinking, and the four horsemen of the apocalypse are coming to see me today, and they're not bringing flowers, which just makes it really difficult to get organized. So this is Adrian Brody, uh, and... Um, it was really stylish. Who made that thing? I, You know what? I don't know this person, hmm. this director... Uh, all that well, and I don't know that I've seen a ton. It's John Mayberry is the guy, and he's done some other stuff, but I haven't seen a lick of it. You know, um, some the Edge of Love, Love is the Devil. I mean, oh, the British film Love is the Devil. I think so. Yeah, the Study of a Portrait of Francis, Francis Bacon. Bacon. Yeah, that's yeah, really with, with, a really intense name? movie. Yeah, with um. Uh, Daniel, Craig Daniel Craig is the gay lover. Yeah, and Daniel Craig's got a great early role in this, where he's kind of like. I mean, for I'm you, I'm actually blown away by that 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 director who made the jacket made that because one is like very non stylish. Love is the Devil is very like you know kitchen sink and intense drama, and then jacket's really stylized and it is, and it's and it's you know f- sort of fantastic and creepy, and mm-hmm. um, it's basically about a military vet played by Adrian Brody who uh, he gets put into this. He has like a really traumatic experience uh in in terms of the military stuff i think he witnesses some really bad shit and he comes back and they put him in a he gets caught up in a criminal situation which i'm not going to talk about but um they put him in an institution and chris christopherson plays this doctor who's doing this new experimental technique where he's using this certain kind of drug and they put you in it's just the most horrible thing ever because this is i think it's supposed to be the late 90s is when it but then there's a time travel aspect, so it jumps mm-hmm. ahead to 2005. But um, he does this technique where he puts people in the jacket, slides them into a fucking cadaver drawer for like three hours at a time on this drug and just lets them fucking simmer in that. And it's just horrible. But what ends up happening is that, and not to spoil too much, but that Adrian Brody, when he goes in, suddenly wakes up in a dream state or something and he is in the future. And he, there's... I don't want to spoil too much, but there's characters that he's encountered in his young life that he encounters in, at an older age in his later, in this mm. flash forward. And he starts to sort of develop 
uh, friendships and relationships with people in that. And so he constantly wants to go back in the drawer, as creepy as it is, to try and figure things out and kind of figure out what happens to him because there is a sense like he's told when he will die and he wants to know what it, what is this about. So it becomes this very interesting and complex time-bouncing back-and-forth movie. And you, you, there is that there is a sense of like what's in his head, what's real, is this really happening and... It's it's great in that way, and I think it's really neat. And the, the, the he becomes fascinated by Kira Knightley's character, this mm-hmm. woman, in the future, and so they have a thing. And um, but it's got a really great Jennifer Jason Lee is one of the doctors on staff. Kelly Lynch is in there. Brad Renfro, like I said, Daniel Craig is very much for you. I was going to say it would be like a kind of a side character in um, your favorite. Um, Cuckoo's Nest. Oh yeah, it's kind of like yeah. that. Like the the clip I found was him talking to um, Adrian Brody at the beginning. He's another crazy guy, yeah. and it's great because he's so young. He doesn't look like himself, and he doesn't even sound like mm. himself. Like his voice is even a higher register, <laughs> almost <laughs> or something. Um, I've only seen the one time, and it was a long time ago. I can't remember. Like I can only remember the conceit of the jacket going on, going into the drawers, coming out into other times. Can't remember like what he's actually doing. Yeah, it's. I won't go any further than that. But but mm. really, I think it's a it's a great companion to Shutter mm. Island in a lot of ways, and it plays really well with it. But it's definitely one that I feel like nobody's talking about anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, I don't know if I think it has a Blu-ray. Yeah, I think it has a Blu-ray, but it's definitely not one that you know has gotten much love since 2005 when mm. it came out. You know, but uh, it's it's good. The jacket. Uh, mine is my. This is get ready for my golden child, because <laughs> uh, just like you want to have fun, I decided. Okay, well, first off, let me just make the easy uh, comparison. If you watched Titicate Follies and oh, Angel Heart, you've literally just watched. Uh, <laughs> you've literally just watched Shutter Island. <laughs> like if you mix those, so if you that was the double feature, I wouldn't even need to do any of any work for you. Those two films pair perfectly. Uh, Angel Heart, in terms of like having incredible twists and and tones, and Titicate Follies is a, a documentary that actually looks into uh, a mental asylum for the criminally insane. It's one of the bleakest things I've ever seen, but also Rough. one of the best. I think it's it's like a little piece of uh, magic to get to see some, a secret world, basically. And I think and I would be shocked if Marty didn't. Be the design of Shutter Island on that documentary and the kind of people you see in it. I'm sure he did. I'm sure he's a fan. I mean, I can't imagine he's not a Wiseman fan in general. But. Uh, yeah, I'm sure. But I'm sure this film, like, I just don't think you could have designed that film. <coughs> anyway, so those two, if you're j- just for fun, though, that is something worth saying. I'd also say, obviously, Spellbound by Hitchcock's obviously got some things. But uh, I went, really, there's almost no connection uh, except I wanted to have fun. Uh, it turned out this film was a lot harder to find than I thought it was going to be. Oh, is this the one? Uh, we'll see. Yeah. Okay. Oh, this, no, there's two. Okay. But this was one of the two because um, this is a movie to me that should be easy to find. Uh, I wanted to have a little fun with my mental asylum pairing, so I went with a little movie called Alone in the Dark. Anything can happen when you're alone in the dark. Are you afraid of the dark? Sometimes. <laughs> sort of fun. When I was a little kid, I was scared to death to be alone in the dark. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. (laughs) Can I ask you what it was that you just said to him? I told him uh, if he didn't stop all this nonsense, I would hoist him up and cut him in half. Sometimes you have to be forceful with them. And recompense upon me all thy abominations! Hey, preacher, my man. Don't you call me preacher! Hey, now listen to me, man! There are no crazy people, doctor. We're all just on vacation. 
Well, I guess I'll see you later. Dr. Potter! Happy trails. Starring Jack Palance, Donald Pleasance, Martin Landau, Dwight Schultz, Erlen Van Lith. Alone in the Dark from New Line Cinema. <laughs> Directed by Jack Shoulder, 1982. I love this movie. Uh, movie. It is the first film produced and distributed by New Line. And so in a lot of ways, it's the, mo- it's the, the one of the first films to kind of set up what would become The House of Freddy. And Bob Shea, you know, it's Bob Shea's company. What's fascinating, and I'd forgotten about this, the opening scene of this movie uh, is, I believe now, probably the stylistic prototype for the way the Nightmare on Elm Street films look and feel every time you earn a dream scene, which is kind of surprising to say that might have come from Bob Shea. But if you watch this film again, uh, the opening is Martin Landau goes into a diner that says Mom's, and it just all looks perfectly Americana. And he goes up, and there's some old guy at the thing, and he kind of says hi to him, and then he sits down, and the waitress comes over, and she says something weird to him, and he's looking at her weirdly, and everything's just stilted and off. And you don't know if Martin Landau is the lead in this movie. Like, you don't know who he is in the context of what you're watching. And then suddenly Donald Pleasance comes out as the line cook. I will cause distress unto men, for they have sinned against the law. And their blood shall run out as the dust, and their flesh as dung. suddenly the fire gets bigger like the fire that's they're cooking it looks like an inferno and then somebody starts saying like religious kind of like crazy mumbo jumbo and then donald pleasance comes up they string up uh landau with his legs apart from the air and basically donald pleasance takes a giant blade and then lifts it up like he's going to split in them half upside down and then he landau wakes up screaming but the way they shoot that opening dream is exactly like the how the Nightmare on Elm Street films start to feel like, and so it's really interesting I, to to imagine a meeting with Bob Shea probably saying, "Well, what about something like this?" I can I can see it, which is crazy. Um, yeah, this I guess this film is out of print because it was like one hundred and fifty dollars to find DVDs out there, and I couldn't find it streaming anywhere. And it turned out a friend of a friend, a friend who I asked because I can never ask you because I want to keep these things a surprise. <laughs> a friend uh, went to another guy's house who had it, and he and he said, "I found a copy for you." Is that my friend's? House, and the guy got it the day before at a secondhand bookstore for a dollar fifty. Oh my gosh! <laughs> and he just randomly stumbled. And I was like, "Well, that's great. That was meant to be." Totally. Um, so I got to I borrow it. But um, I'm a big big fan of this movie. It's a real and look, uh, an unsung hero who I've we've talked about a little bit, but and I talk a bit about it on <laughs> Shockwaves, and I haven't had him on Shockwaves yet. But I believe Jack Shoulder is like a criminally underrated director. Everything he makes, I think he makes better. I think The Hidden is a masterpiece of that genre. Like, I really think it's one of the best films in that kind of sci-fi hyper genre. This is more, this is, you know, more just a really fun thriller. But what's so cool, and the reason I do think it actually has some interesting connections is uh, it's about uh, four, you know, these psychopaths who are eventually will break out of a mental hospital during a blackout. So the, you have the giant storms. Um, it's this really interesting mental asylum where they, uh, Donald Pleasance is basically the uh, the head of this mental asylum, and which is already funny that he's the main doctor, but he's kind <laughs> of insane funny. himself, and that's what's fun about it. Isn't and he always, he, though? 
And he's basically letting the patients kind of run the asylum because he believes that's how it's going to cure them. So he doesn't do anything by the book. And instead of having that's bars... That's very similar to the Kingsley character. Yeah, right? exactly. Sorry. No, I think he could literally be one of those doctors. And he's trying alternate you know, methods. Uh, and because they're criminally insane, the people on the top floor who are the worst, who is just... This is where the cast gets so much fun. Uh, you have Jack Plants, who yes. is just awesome in this, as he is everything. Martin Landau uh, and... Um, the big guy who plays the opera singer, bad guy in Running Man. Oh, you know who's the? <laughs> I think he's that dude. <laughs> What's that character called? Um, oh, I can't remember. The guy who's gonna electro you and sings opera. Uh, uh, anyway, uh, these these are the psychos, and there's one guy whose face you never see because he he doesn't want you to see his face. He's like this kind of weird psycho. Uh, they're on the top floor, and. The windows close by if you touch the go to touch the window, it just it goes based on on electricity. So everything's obviously powered by electricity, which obviously becomes a problem when there's a blackout. Uh, but what the, what the story? My favorite thing about it is that the doctor, who's the sane doctor, who's who's the new doctor coming to treat them, is fucking. Um, uh, the crazy guy from A-Team. Murdoch. Murdoch from A-Team, who's the, so I grew up. Dwight to, Schultz. Yeah, Dwight Schultz. I grew up going, he's the crazy guy. I know, I love And then it. he comes into this as the straight-laced doctor with his family, and he's really good in it. And the, the family's really good. They, they're they actually a fun family to watch. They're believable. They've just moved to town. Uh, and again, it's shot uh, set in Massachusetts, so it's the same state as Shutter Island, which I thought was cool. Uh, and so he goes, he's taking the place of this doctor who's left, but Jack Palance, because they're all delusional, gets it in his head that he's actually murdered their old doctor who they all really liked because the doctor's gone. And so he says, so we need to break out of here and we need to murder him. And that becomes the central thrust of this film is when the four psychos escape, they're going to, and there's, there's one section in here and I save it for this cause I, you know, to re- talk about now instead of uh, shockwaves, but there is a slasher sequence in this that is as good as any slasher from the eighties where it's basically babysitter looking after this little girl, the girl's asleep. So the babysitter's with her boyfriend in the bed and they're making out. And then at one point, like you know he's walking he, she thinks she hears she a sound he starts walking back to the bed and you keep expecting something to come from behind but then just hands like he just is torn you know under the bed he just disappears and you're like whoa and then this knife starts popping up under the bed and the girl's just missing it and this whole sequence it's probably like a seven minute sequence it is so well made that's the moments where I'm like oh, yeah, Jack Sheldon knows how to how to put a movie together um, but then it's then it becomes kind of like um, uh, what's the great uh, you're next if, if he, the last act or the last half of this movie is characters trapped in a house uh, there's even the bow and arrow thing which I'm sure you're next all so I, I'd be shocked if uh, this wasn't uh, you know a major influence on your next yeah 100%. Um, and th- and it's really exciting it's a really tense interesting uh, thing because you also kind of like the psychopaths they're interesting Jack uh, mostly because probably Jack Plant's just so charismatic Martin Landau's out of his mind he's an ex-preacher who used to like light churches on fire with people in it as Jack Plant says unfortunately there's always people in it you know? <laughs> uh, but it's it's a really fun movie I think there's you know I think it's got a similarity to Shutter Island in the idea of like the fact that they've cast Ben Kingsley and Max Van Sydow as these doctors, these high-end type actors, and then this film has like Palance and, and Pleasance. I feel like they're doing an, a similar thing. Um, and also it's just, uh, well, you also have Dr. Loomis, you know, he, played, he literally played Dr. Loomis, which is fun. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think this is definitely more my light, silly one, but re-watching it, I was really pleased how much it held up, and I'm like, no, this is a, a great cult movie for those who oh, haven't yeah. seen no, it. Oh, yeah, no, this is a way less silly pairing than Golden yeah. Child. But, but it, well, you know, I'll call my Golden Child. Yeah, no, it's, it's good, it's good, it's a good, I wish it was more available. I assume... Screen Factory would have put this out already if there wasn't some hang-up. Some it's it's a perfect release for them I hope, when they I, get there. I hope there's some deal that can be struck
truck at some point or something yeah. can be worked out. Or Arrow, overseas, I'll buy an import. There's got to be some way around the, the rights issues with this one. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, the DVD looked great. I mean, it's it's a good and has lots of extras. I think it was an Anchor Bay DVD? I think so, yeah. but it's definitely out of print. Yeah, I, I definitely looked. 150 bucks. Yikes. That's yeah, too bad. No craziness. It's really sad to me when a movie that good is so hard to see. It's a and it's one of those ones I don't hear a lot of horror fans talk about, and it's probably just availability. Part of it is that, for sure. Usually these are the things. it's been out of print for a while. Yeah, because then they come to Blu-ray, they get all gussied up, and people are like, wow. Yeah, so. good stuff. All right, so that was Alone in the Dark, and now we move on to uh, Hugo from 2011. Why doesn't Papa George let you go to the movies? <laughs> I don't know. He never said. I bet my parents would have let me. What happened to them? They died when I was a baby. But um, Papa George and Mama Jean, they're my godparents, so they took me in. They're very nice about most everything, <laughs> except the movies. <laughs> my father took me to the movies all the time. He told me about the first one he ever saw. He went into a dark room, and on a white screen he saw a rocket fly into the eye of the man in the moon. <laughs> straight in. Really? He said it was like seeing his dreams in the middle of the day. The movies are our special place, where we could go and watch something. What is that? It's an automaton. It was one of those experiences I sat down and read the thing completely, straight through. There was an immediate connection to the story, the boy, the boy's loneliness, uh, his association with the cinema, the association with the machinery, of creativity. For me, this has a very uh, interestingly personal connection, you know, and just happened to hit at the right time. I have a young daughter who will be 12 soon, reading to children, introducing them to music of different kinds, films, ballet. It's like rediscovering all of these wonderful art forms again, but through the eyes of, of children. So it was an extension of what I'm doing at home. <laughs> So I felt very comfortable with it, really very comfortable with it. Sometimes I try to explain to children around me, I said, no, we're just playing. We're doing exactly what you do. We make up a game, and then we try to put it on film or digital or whatever. But we're all playing together. It was an enormous undertaking, but it was like a celebration for all of us. Yeah, I don't. I, I, I'm pretty sure we're going to fall in the same place here, which is this might be the other one in this block that is... Uh, you know, deserves another round of like, this is an amazing movie. Yeah, uh, I think I think the section in this movie where Malay is reminded that he's an artist and we get to see filmmaking is amongst the best things Scorsese's ever done. Yeah, I, I, I think I, it's magic. Absolutely, I think the only thing that throws me is the Sasha Baron Cohen stuff. I'm exactly the same way. Is, Even though it's not bad, no, but it's a diff- slightly different movie tonally. Yeah, it's a little wackier, and he's just an annoying. It's like character. Amelie. Yeah, it's like yeah. some parts of that. The stuff in the train station feels falls a bit more into the Amelie category, like of observing people doing cutesy things. And yeah, but at the end of the day, you're just like this character is an annoyance. This yeah. character is not going to be significant enough to really affect the narrative, yeah. and now you're just annoying me by 
by having him around. It's tension, and I understand this is what this yeah. kid is dealing with, blah, blah, blah. But that's the stuff that pulls me out. But no, other I, than I that, agree with that. You're, the stuff you're talking about is transcendent. It's it, fantastic. It, it's really, it's, and it's, I remember loving this in theaters. I started in real 3D, you know, obviously in theaters. Oh, what a beautiful 3D movie. Yeah, yeah, that. that's the other thing. It's one of the, I think a number of people have commented, some other filmmaker has commented saying it's the best shot 3D film to ever really use 3D. Yeah. And the, for the right reasons, there's a dream scene in there where the boy sees the train like bursting through the wall where I remember in 3D being like, whoa. I watched it on Blu-ray 3D this mm-hmm. time and I, it's, you know, it's not the same as seeing it in the theater, but it definitely, it's worth getting a Blu-ray 3D to see. Well, Rob like did this. tell me to come to his house to watch it and I totally forgot when I got to uh, it and yeah. just watched it at home and then yeah. I was like, ah, but, um, yeah, you should have watched it at Rob's. So that's definitely the way to see it. It's a magic film. It's, you know, it's set in Paris. It's, um, it, you know, this, this young boy who's lost his father who, you know, made things and was making work on this automaton doll, um, you know, ends up being killed in a fire and he, uh, ends up going, you know, again, or is it Ray Winston? I, I can't remember. Uh, yes, I think I believe so. it is. Yeah. Uh, plays the drunken uncle who who basically fixes the clocks and lives in the clock tower of this uh, massive train station in Paris. So he goes to live with him, but that guy does not care about him and he's mistreated. And, you know, he's ba- it's basically becomes, an, he left all alone, becomes an orphan, but he keeps fixing the clocks. And, and so no one ever thinks to check on him. And uh, eventually he runs into a, a kind of a sad sack a uh, very stern shop owner of kids' toys, uh, and he observes a lot of these relationships we were just talking about, like Sasha Baron Cohen in the in the train station. But uh, it's the, really the heart of the story is like the interaction he has with uh, the shop owner after he tries. Did he steal something? I think that's why he gets caught. Yeah. And they strike up this friendship. Of course, we know who this guy is, like, from the start. We know what the movie's about. We know that it's, uh, you know, one of the, the original, uh, you know, well, the real origin of cinema in a lot of ways because Lumi- the Lumiere brothers are just shooting documentary realism. But Malay took it into the, you know, the, both the supernatural, the fantastic, the dream. The movie magic. Movie the magic. originator of movie yeah, magic. Yeah, and in-camera tricks and yeah. things like that. Uh, and once, And so we know it's about this guy who's basically now denying that side of his life to himself. He doesn't talk about it, doesn't tell anyone about it and basically obviously it's a fictional account of of this part of the uh, story and then um is what is her name chloe uh uh grace moretz grace moretz uh who's really good in this and their their friendship you know for a young uh boy girl friendship is super cute and the way they kind of you know she's like a uh, very nancy jewish and is all about an adventure and a mystery and uh, she's never seen a movie which is a fascinating thing because her uh is a her caretaker who's george Malay is i guess an uncle or something like that not her dad but uh won't let her watch movies which is always curious in itself so the young boy at some point like takes her and they sneak into I don't know if it's Citizen Kane, but something. Oh, damn it, I should remember. It was something I totally just forgot. But it's it's an interesting scene where she's seeing the magic of the movies, and slowly, you know, they stumble. Um, because actually, one of my favorite things about this film is the role Christopher Lee's given. Uh, that Scorsese getting to cast Christopher Lee as this guy who owns um, uh, the library, you know, the book publishing kind of uh, shop, and he likes to give kids a book, you know, and he gives this kid a book that leads him to finding the the stuff on cinema, and they start to piece together that, you know, her uh, caretaker is in fact George Malay, the same guy who made this movie, where all the movies are meant to be lost at this point, and then we start seeing, you know, a twist on that, and. It, from the moment it becomes not just about the kid in the uh, in the train station and it becomes about the revealing of the movies it, it's you know it really is it, it feels magical watching it um, 
watching it again, I was just like, this is like Scorsese. Is he so like, kind of? It feels a little bit like how the, the new Tarantino film is his love letter to Hollywood. This feels like part of Marty's love letter to movies in the sequence yeah. because it's also you know it's fictionalized, but it just feels like you want that to have been how it all went when it shows when they were young making the movies together, this married couple and having their own studio, and it's just you get this little bit of utter cinematic magic, I think, and just an incredible emotion in terms of yeah. like what he's feeling that you can feel through the movie. You know, yeah. in terms of like this is so such a big deal to me. Yeah. I, I feel like if if people like I don't know, there's something about this in the Aviator that they rise to the top, not necessarily just being the best, but being to that. And I don't hear people talk too much about Hugo now, and and I think it's much more than just the kids movie. But I also, think it's, could be I think a, it's getting slotted as his kids movie and marginalized in that way. Yeah, but I think it can, it's more than that in the sense of because I think it actually is a good uh, kids movie if you want to get them into movies like yeah. that. You know, you lo- you take them in with this kind of vision and then see well, and that's where the Sasha Baron Cohen stuff is probably fine in terms of kid appeal. You know, yeah. it gives like a simple villain that's not very smart that you know the kid isn't really worried about but isn't you know enough to give some kid tension or something yeah it's interesting my my 8 year old who doesn't see a lot of live action movie he wandered in this like last half of it and was totally into it. He didn't. He didn't watch the first half. Sat down just randomly, and then after the movie ends, he even now will say things to me like, "So the only movie that survived was his his one with the moon." He'll ask me things because that That's was really said cool. in the movie, and I'll be like, "Well, no, there was other pieces That's found really later." Cool. And and he's but he really understood that somebody made a movie. You know, I mean, obviously because that's the kind of stuff I'm into too. But he kept saying, "So oh, so they lost all his movies and they burned." And he was just really interesting. I that just part. love it when you get that they're turning something over their head yeah. and they're remembering details. I was telling you my daughter's really good with details about movies. I love that. They're absorbing things on a level that A is beyond what I was absorbing things yeah. at at that age and B it's just cute that it's that's what's getting them. You yeah, know? it's like what element are you going to take away from this? Exactly. And, and no, it was, it was really interesting. But that's super cool. I really like this movie. I was surprised how much I liked it on rewatch because um, I, I, it touched me a lot in the theaters, but I, I I liked it more seeing it again. Yeah, no, it's definitely one that needs a little bump. I think people should be watching it yeah. with their kids and without. I think it's if you like cinema, it's just yeah, it's like a cinema paradiso kind yeah. of. You know. Well, that was the first thing I wrote down as a, not something I'd pair it with, but that would be my obvious if you were going to pick an obvious yeah. pairing it's a movie that about cinema that loves movies and loves love and yeah. it's you know it's very much a lot that. more adult and there's some more adult stuff in that one but yeah, yeah great movie yeah but um definitely worth another look um so this might be a little bit of a stretch but i am gonna go with rumblefish from mm. 1983 coppola's movie um hey man you better be careful you know that cop patterson is looking for just one excuse to get him man yeah, I remember he beat me up once. Got me locked up in juvenile hall for the weekend. He's been after both of us for years. He's a good cop, man. The motorcycle boy seems to be his only bad point. He'll never get the motorcycle boy on anything, man. Never. Envy, man. Gotta be envy. <sighs> you seen him? Yeah, man, I see him over at the pet store. What was he doing there? Looking at the fish, as far as I could tell. Those fucking fish. What is it with those fucking fish, man? 
It's I, I think, love Rumpa Fish. No, I mean I think it's great. Actually, I actually think this is a great pairing in terms of like there's moments in that that feel magical, like when it goes to black and white. Totally. With color, it just yeah. feels no, different. No, that, that's my that's my in, I think. They both take they I think it can pair because they're based uh, they have these magical realism vibes mm-hmm. to them, you know, and they exist in this universe that's, you know, fantastic in some way, but but also kind of real in the mm. and it's difficult to quantify but um i mean i think it's one of francis's best movies that oh yeah people don't think about as his movie as much i have a clip of him that i included here where he's talking about it as one of his favorite movies and he's like this film represents really one of my favorites i think if someone were to ask me to show a film that i like that i made out of the 19 or 20 that i did in my career i would perhaps show rumblefish it's a stylized film and it was deliberately so. I wanted it to be a, an art, art film for teenagers. I wanted it to have the kind of black and white imagery and lighting and art direction and uh, camera work lenses uh, that we would more assume for a, uh, an art film. And that to me says a lot. The guys yeah. made some great films. Yeah. Um, but while Hugo is young kids, I think Rumblefish plays as some kind of extension of that timeline into the darker teenage years. Uh, you know, obviously in the United States as opposed to the Europe. So, like the darker teenage years, what was happening in Tulsa, Oklahoma? You know, years later, it's like a, some there's some way that these two line up, and I can't explain it. But it goes to much darker places. Yeah. It goes to maturer themes. You know, it's dealing with romance and some other things. Definitely um, struggling with uh, some familial relationships. It just it goes to a much heavier place in some respects in terms of what it is. But while Hugo is a beautiful color film, you know, Rumblefish is beautiful black and white with little magic spots of color, kind of like the hand tinted stuff that exactly. uh, Malay was making. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. I actually th- no, I think this is a great one of those great instinctual pairings where it's not literally the, yeah. thematically the same, but there's a f- like as soon as you said it, it makes sense to me. I'm like, no, I can see that. And I watched them close together, and it kind of worked. Again, it's yeah. not the same because there's a bit more of um, like a hopeful idealism in Hugo that Rumblefish doesn't really, I, I don't think it has that. It has something else that it's it's dealing with. But I love the dynamic of Matt Dillon, Nicolas Cage, Vincent Spano, and Chris Penn. These are the four guys that are mm-hmm. kind of the gang of, of kids. And then you add in Diane Lane, Mickey Rourke, Lawrence Fishburne, Tom Waits, is fucking great yeah, as the guy who just runs this little diner and yeah. he's got great little lines where he's just telling them to like um, calm down or yeah. he's like watch your language over there watch it bring it down bring it down cool it off Mickey Rourke is like uh, is really incredible in this oh absolutely he just the way he looks he, people just forget how great he looks. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like the way we we both left uh, Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood going like, look at Brad Pitt. Yeah. It, it, Mickey Rourke had that quality too at the time until he, a little boxing later kind of left. But, <laughs> yes, but yes. for a long period, he had that. And no, it's, a, it's a stunning movie. Yeah, there's a great deserted um, underpass near some train tracks where there's a big mm-hmm. fight scene. And that reminded me a little bit of the train station itself in Hugo. And um, there's also a sense of the kids being kind of pretty much on their own mm-hmm. there's there's some uh, in, in hugo there's more adult characters but it is a lot of them on their own and i think those are the things that i, I wanted to tie with it also uh william smith as a cop which is oh, fucking great william and i always smith. forgot about yeah, it. yeah i didn't remember that at all yeah uh, is he on a motorbike uh no i don't think so although he should have been yeah. it's kind of an oversight on coppola's part but then there's also a great line that tom waits has at one point where he's talking about life and he's like says something like, I've got 35 summers left. Mm. 
Hmm. And that yeah, ranks, right. unfortunately, true yeah. for me. When I started thinking about, do I have 35 summers left? Maybe. Maybe I have 35. I don't know. Yeah. And that was just like really creepily resonant. But anyway, um, I just think it really plays well as some kind of odd next uh, level extension, you know, in terms of yeah. the, the continuation of another magical reason. Also, maybe if that kid doesn't find this family in that movie and ends up alone like that, maybe he ends up with, with gangs. Yeah, I, mean, I could like see that happening easy. Timeline. Um, yeah. So Rumblefish. Yeah, Renault Rumblefish is actually a really good pick there. Uh, mine is totally random. Uh, it it was really the one that first jumped in my head, and I don't ever do this. I paired it, you know, paired it with a kids' film that a reminded me of the story. It definitely has character, but it re- what I picked it for was similar reason. I think of Rumblefish as being a good choice because of the style of it. This felt original to me. It felt like a little piece of magic that movies can keep reinventing what they are. And I went with, and and the the thing I didn't think about was that connection to uh, my eight year old. He's the one who showed me this movie, and that is uh, My Life as a Zucchini. So, can you tell me a little bit about your mother? She really liked to drink beer, but her mashed potatoes were always good, and sometimes we had fun. I'm going to take you to a really nice place with other kids who have no mom or dad. This little man is Ikar. My name is Zucchini. More like a potato with that head. <laughs> Look how high it is. Give it back. Oh, yeah? <gasps> Zucchini. We're all the same. There's no one left to love us. Hey, new kid, what'd you do to land in here? This girl, what's she like? She has eyes that go right through you. What if we get caught? You want to know or not? Yeah. After my parents died, I went to live with my aunt. We're going home. No! But she's just cruel. Then I won't let you go. Uh, Which is a claymation animation French film. It was actually called My Life as uh, Courgette in France, but they they dubbed all the voices in the American release, and it's a great, and it's greatly dubbed, like really great actors <clears throat> all the way through it. I actually did just watch the trailer today to the French version, and it made me really want to watch the movie again in French because it's probably going to be a totally different experience. It's like a beautiful like 70-minute film you know, it's stop motion, really well made stop motion, and and it's it's got a bit of a haunting Buster Keaton sad quality. To all the characters are all kind of sad, but yeah. it's um, what I actually only just put together before I came. Uh, both are French set movies in English. <laughs> you know, both of these because of just by the nature of how we're seeing them, um, they are both about o- orphans. So this is about an orphan boy whose um, mother's just <laughs> awful. His dad's. He obviously idolizes his dad and has drawn him as a superhero, but you don't know if the dad died or how he's out of the picture at the start. And his mom's drinking too much beer, and that's kind of how he views it, at least through this kid's perspective. They all kind of characters almost look Wes Anderson-y, um, very stylized, but really bright colors in their lips and eyes and weird, you know, his hair's blue. It's just a, you have to, it's one of those movies where I'm not somebody who sits around watching kids' movies, and this is actually very, a lot of adult themes run through. A it's film. a much more adult kids' Yeah, movie. they make My daughter likes this one a lot too, by the way. Yeah, and I think I originally saw it through your or voodoo or something oh, okay. like that but it was 
it was I didn't see it the first time. Somehow my son had seen it. It's so funny. The same thing happened for me. I got it for her, but then she ended up watching it without me before. Yeah, and he watched it a couple times. And then when I watched it, I was shocked that he was like into it because it was so kind of serious and kind of sad. And it's about like you, like, you, you lost parents. And this kid uh, accidentally basically kills his mother in, in an accident. She's kind of coming up the stairs drunk to like, and she sounds like she's going to probably beat him or something. And he closes the door, you know, the kind of thing that goes up to a uh, up the stairwell and she falls down and, and then he's like moving in but they don't linger on that all they just kind of brush over that and then he's going into a home and uh for kids and he meets these other kids and it's about these connections but then this girl comes in and there's like this connection between them she really reminds me of the girl uh from hugo because she's a little bit older and a little bit more into like trying to have adventure and stuff and they have this really cute relationship <clears throat> then there's a cop who could be seen as the sasha bone car he does have a mustache and he's a cop but he's not annoying um that's the difference <laughs> in this he kind of takes him under his wing and they get along and his son lives across the country and never sees him anymore because probably because of divorce they don't really say and he just they it's slowly about them kind of finding a family but the link beyond the obvious of the characters is really just the feeling of something that feels like how movies can keep feeling new when i saw this i didn't feel like i was watching another kids film i felt like oh wow there's a little piece of magic that popped up in the world that somebody created and they put these very uh, very adult concerns and uh, but also good for a kid to see like oh death is a factor and uh, divorce is a factor and all these things exist but there's also this great spirit and heart to it. The director's name is Claude Barras, and this was recent, it's 2016, um, but I like how short it is. Uh, for that kind of movie, it's the perfect length. Uh, I actually really think it pairs really well with you guys in no, terms of spirit. Right. Uh, but if you're, you know, I think uh, I probably never would have heard of this movie. It never would have come across my radar if not in this random way. And yeah. so it's always fun to kind of uh, put it on a, another stage. Yeah, that's a great pick, man. That's a really good idea. Um, a Life is a Zucchini. Yeah. Or, um, or you could probably track down a French version somehow. But the actors, uh, who's the guy you loved in that? It was in your top movies from last year. And it was like a romance when you were doing your favorites and it was about a music guy and a father-daughter. Oh, um, sure. Nick um, Offerman? I think he might be in it. or some, right. Somebody like I that. I think you're right. Um, but there were, you know, I think, um, and the girl from Juno was in it. She was one of the voices. Um, Ellen. Uh, oh, uh, Ellen, Ellen Page. Page. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry. Our name our name recalls. Go. Yeah. But um, but anyway, I think this is a really good pick for Hugo. Like, really good. Yeah, it's, it's good stuff. It's fun. Um, all right. So we're in the home stretch here. We got two more to go. We are on to The Wolf of Wall Street from 2013. <laughs> Number one rule of Wall Street. Nobody. I don't care if you're Warren Buffett or if you're Jimmy Buffett. Nobody knows if the stock is going to go up, down, sideways, or in fucking circles. Least of all stockbrokers. Mm -hmm. right? It's all a fugazi. You know what a fugazi is? No. Mm. Fugazi, it's a uh, fake. Yeah, Fugazi, Fugazi, it's a wazi, it's a woozy, it's a fairy dust. It doesn't exist. It's never landed. It is no matter. It's not on the elemental chart. It, it's not fucking real. Right? All right. right. <laughs> Stay with me. Mm -hmm. We don't create shit. We don't build anything. No. So if you got a client <clears throat> who bought stock at eight. And it now sits at 16, and he's all fucking happy. He wants to cash in, liquidate, take his fucking money and run home. You don't let him do that. Okay. Because that would make it real. Right. No, what do you do? You get another brilliant idea. A special idea. Another situation, another stock to reinvest his earnings and then some. And he will every single time, because they're fucking addicted. And then you just keep doing this again and again and again. Meanwhile, he thinks he's getting shit rich, which he is on paper. Mm -hmm. But you and me, the brokers, 
Right. We're taking home cold hard cash via commission, motherfucker. Right. <laughs> That's incredible, sir. I can't tell you how excited I am. You should be. There's two keys to success in the broker business. First of all, you gotta stay relaxed. Yeah. You jerk off? Do I, do I jerk off? Yeah. Yeah, I jerk off, yeah. How many times a week? Like, um, three, three, four, three or four times, maybe. Five. I'm gonna pump those numbers up. Those are rookie numbers in this racket. I, myself, I jerk off at least twice a day. Wow. Once in the morning, right after I work out, and then once right after lunch. Really? Mm -hmm. Okay? I want to. That's not why I do it. Mm -hmm. I do it because I fucking need to. Think mm -hmm. about it. You're dealing with numbers all day long. Mm -hmm. Decimal points, high frequencies, bang, bang, bang. <laughs> fucking digits. All very acidic, above the shoulders, mustard shit. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. Kind of wake some people out. Mm -hmm. Right? You gotta feed the geese to keep the blood flowing. Mm -hmm. I keep the rhythm below the belt. Done. This is not a tip, this is a prescription, trust me. Mm -hmm. If you don't, you will fall out of balance, split your differential, and tip the fuck over. Or worse yet, I've seen this happen, implode. No, I don't want to implode, sir. No. no, no you don't. I'm in it for the long run, you know? Yeah, implosions are ugly. Yeah. Pop off to the bathroom, work one out anytime you can, and when you get really good at it, you'll fucking be stroking it, and you'll be thinking about money. Why bother telling a story of somebody who's not, someone who's unremarkable, uh, someone who, didn't do anything inspiring. Uh, wasn't Michelangelo or Walt Whitman or Roosevelt on the one hand, um, Lincoln um, on the one hand, or on the other hand, a Rasputin or a Mao or Stalin. Um, and on top of that, someone who led a life that wasn't exemplary, that wasn't, that was kind of pretty ignoble in a way. Uh, not because they wanted to harm any, anybody per se, but because they had no real model for leading a decent life because this is what they learn from the world around them. Um, so that's something that I've always been attracted to and interesting to me. Um, someone like Jordan or Jake LaMotta or Tommy, uh, Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas. And uh, people say, well, that type of person, that sort. But I guess what that means is that they try to distance themselves from them. It's someone else, it's not me. But in actuality, I feel it's not someone else, it's, it's us, it's you and me and Maybe if we had been born under different circumstances, we maybe would have maybe would have wound up making the same exactly the same mistakes and choices and and doing exactly the same things. Because I really think it's when they say it's all it's it's uh, uh, people of that kind. It's really not a matter of equalizing everyone and saying we're all responsible. Um, it I think it's a a matter of facing and recognizing, acknowledging that part of us which is a part of our common humanity, and we have to deal with it. He thought that he could bypass morality or surpass morality with a combination of money and drugs. Um, I don't know, maybe he still does, I really don't know. I mean, it's another way of answering the question. He was different from Madoff and Skilling in that they weren't crashing helicopters or throwing uh, uh, little people, or maybe they were, but maybe if they, if they did, they kept it pretty quiet. But in that sense, Jordan's experiences are more entertaining um, and that brings you closer to him because you look at these guys and think, you know, wow, maybe this, this seems to be a lot of fun. Well, it, it doesn't just look that way. They really did have a lot of fun. Um, in fact, that's really all they could do is have fun and more fun and more on top of that until it wasn't so much fun anymore.
But what they couldn't do was just be. And they just couldn't face that. So the challenge is to show that honestly, without tipping the scales into judgment and taking you outside of the world these characters and the particular ways that they lived their lives, which was to obliterate all obstacles, all troubles, all difficulties by taking more drugs, more money. Sex was not even a factor. Sex was just part of that, in a sense. So it's really drugs and money and power. Wolf of Wall Street is one of those movies that you don't really want to rewatch that much. And I think this might, I don't know, man, it's hard. We've already kind of said this a few times. But like when I really think about it, it might be one of the best movies in here that he made. I think this is actually the closest we have to a trilogy with uh, Goodfellas. I don't, it doesn't even matter what his next movie is, even if it has gangsters. I think this is actually the, the, the natural evolution between Goodfellas, Casino, and then this, because this is showing that same crime, that same criminal mind going towards the white collar, going towards something that's acceptable in society, but easily as bad if not i, I hate I, everyone I would, in this i would movie. argue worse yeah i mean i can't stand i these mean people. worse in, the, in terms of yes i really don't like them and it, to the point that it takes me out of the movie well the first time i started I, I thought it was harder to watch and I, I i knew when i knew it was great like i knew he had just made one of his best movies of his career i really felt that i actually think this was the best one leo's done outside once upon a time where i feel like he most deserved the oscar for this role he's fucking fantastic because he just he embodies that kind of yeah. the worst idea of a frat boy all that thing that can elevate from that type of persona but unlike Ray Liotta who, who could be doing terrible things and yet you also kind of like him in this yeah there's something about it that you can't stand the stand their behavior but then and it's got debauchery and like obviously I, you can see why Scorsese would have like things leveled at him about misogyny and stuff but it's just it's always about the world and the characters it's not him and he's so true to that now on to, that said second time I saw this I felt I didn't see it again for this one I saw it maybe about a year ago and that's why I was so fresh and I thought it was like I was really impressed the second time I watched this movie because I was like, wow, on a craft level, but also on like certain sequences, uh, you know, the crazy stuff with McConaughey's brilliant in it. Uh, what's the what's the uh, J- Jonah 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 Hill? Jonah Hill is like just oh yeah off the charts. That's almost character. where the movie loses me is where he comes in. Not when he when he first comes in, it's great. Yeah. Like that first scene of the yeah, meeting yeah. is fucking great. I want to say the first half for me yeah. is still really enjoyable to yeah. watch, but once it gets into the darker stuff, and and I, I will be honest, like when there's a, there's at least one or two scenes involving his wife and their kid, yeah, and that's the stuff. Yeah. There's one particular scene where he's driving the kid, and I'm just yeah. like, oh, I just can't, I just can't. Yeah. I know it sounds terrible for me because yeah. I've, I've I've certainly uh, approved of pretty horrible, despicable things in films, uh-huh. but where I'm at right now, I just can't handle somebody. Yeah you know, fucking around with their kid in yeah. the car. And it's, it's really hard, especially in a movie where they're already terrible people. And then you tack that on. I'm like, okay, you're out. I'm out. I'm out. Yeah. And I, and I guess it's probably, it's, uh, it's Jordan Belfort. I'm sure it's based on the real stuff that this guy was doing. So it's yeah. a, you know, and this is a real guy. So it's always interesting how far they can push the biopic. Um, I don't, for some reason, I don't remember that scene weirdly enough, but I didn't just rewatch it. Um, it's just a minor thing, but it was just one where I was just like, oh, that's too much. Yeah. Me. But I, I really do think this is his triptych. I mean, I think he's got no, it's incredibly made and, and another film that like so imp- I'm not proud. That sounds yeah. so ridiculous and condescending, but I'm so happy that he can make such a great film, you know, so far in. Out of, yeah, and out of that kind of material. But it's just not my bag. This yeah, one. yeah. It has, but it has a sequence in there that's one of my favorites. And I'm sure everyone feels the same, but I think the, uh, what is it? The Ludes? The lemon quaalude scene is just, I watched it again today and I was just like, it's really 
because it's coming at such a key point in the movie where all the stuff's at stake and they basically take this really old acid and then they're just you know totally wrecked by it and he goes into the and the paralysis in which he goes and then the way it kind of reveals the car thing that happens and the phone call he tries to make where they're all just grunting I think it is one of the funniest things Scorsese's ever directed uh, and it's like as its own scene it's perfect I think the stuff with uh, McConaughey is like perfect oh my god like, all so the sequences you have but it is hard it's like watching a Bacchanal or a debauchery debaucherous act is or or, or Salo you could put this with Salo <laughs> and you would have to go you would understand them together you go yeah. oh. and I so I think it's okay to not like looking at it but I I do think if I step back I go uh this has to be considered one of his best movies I think it it, it really especially if you could place it with the other two you'd go okay those three films as a as a triple feature of that part of his career makes sense to me um and this one might be the most disturbing you know which yeah. is which is the crazy thing well and Marty almost does this better than anybody else and that is setting up the passage of time with a character mm-hmm. kind of showing like where he starts and how he, and it's not done in, in straight montage, but it's almost like a Marty extended scene montage kind of yeah. where he's showing us just the right bits and just the right amount of time. And he is able to move us through a large section of a, a character's life in a relatively short amount of time. And it just flies. It just yeah. goes. And I just think that it's like, he's, I think he talked about it in casino and Goodfellas where they'd sort of streamline this idea of like, how to do that stuff and zip through the story mm-hmm. without glossing over it. And he does that again in this. It's really wonderful. Yeah, no, I, I think it's, you know, it's a hard one. Like you said, it's not the easiest one to rewatch, uh, but also has some killer musical choices. Mm. Y- you know, it's it, the camera, the long take where Belfort, you know, it's a, an amazing steady cam shot that just tracks him through the whole office as he's like taking control. But it's watching these people do awful things that it's chal- it can be challenging. That's what I mean by then he has to apologize in his next movies because uh, <laughs> he's reached these limits yeah. uh, and push and push things as far as you can go. Uh, but it is also really, I think it's a really strong film. And I think, uh, you know, I assume most people have seen this one by now. Uh, yeah, but yeah, I think also just seeing it in light of seeing DiCaprio hitting these kind of peaks now, we're seeing an actor really come into their own and I think take on something that's a lot more complex because that's a hard role. You have to be likable enough because you're Leo to want, uh, I think because the character is so, so awful in, in real life is probably what cost him getting the Oscar. Cause it's not, there's no, not much of an end to get on his side, which is tough, you know, Yeah. but he's, he is as good as he's ever been in that film. No, he's really stellar. I mean, there's no question he's delivering, you know, some of the highest quality mm-hmm. work he'll ever do. Um, but yeah, anyway, there's great parts to it. I need to yeah. rewatch the lewd scene by itself because in the context of the movie, yeah. I was already kind of down on them. Yeah. So it was harder for me at that moment to laugh at that scene, which I know is patently yeah. ridiculous and I need yeah. to watch it disconnected from the yeah, movie. Yeah, you might have it. I had a really interesting the second view where I was really impressed by everything and I was like, wow, this is really a great movie. That, that was about a year ago. Yeah. Uh, but that scene, watching it on its own, is pure gold. Nice. It's nice. really funny. Um, okay, so I bounced around on this one but my initial instinct is what i came back to and that is uh boiler room from 2000 mm-hmm. so now you know what's possible let me tell you what's required you are required to work your fucking ass off at this firm we want winners here not pikers a piker walks at the bell piker asks how much vacation time you get in the first year vacation time people come and work at this firm for one reason to become filthy rich that's it we're not here to make friends. We're not saving the fucking manatees here, guys. You want vacation time? Go teach third grade public school. Okay. First three months at the firm or as a trainee, <clears throat> you make $150 a week. 
After you're done training, you take the Series 7. You pass that, you become a junior broker, and you're opening accounts for your team leader. You open 40 accounts, you start working for yourself. Sky's the limit. Word or two about being a trainee, your friends, your parents, the other brokers, whoever, they're going to give you shit about it. It's true. $150 a week, not a lot of money. But pay them no mind. You need to learn this business, and this is the time to do it. Once you pass the test, none of that's going to matter. Your friends are shit. They tell me you made 25 grand last month, they're not going to fucking believe you. Fuck them. Fuck them. Parents don't like the life you lead? Fuck you, mom and dad. See how it feels when you're making their fucking Lexus payments. Now go home and think about it. Think about whether or not this is really for you. If you decide it isn't, listen, it's nothing to be embarrassed about. It's not for everyone. But if you really want this, you call me on Monday and we'll talk. Just don't waste my fucking time. That's it. Which is more of a traditional, like, this is like that kind of pairing, except there's an emotional component to this movie that I don't think is, for me, in Wolf of Wall Street. Mm. And it ties right into Marty because there's a sense of guilt and a sense of regret. Right. And it's, A lot of good people in that, too, from memory. Oh, yeah. I don't recall it that well. I just remember. Yeah, it's Giovanni, Giovanni Ribisi, Vin Diesel, Neil Long. Tom Everett Scott, Ben Affleck, Nikki Cat is great. Mm. I love Nikki Cat. And then Jamie Kennedy, and there's a couple other little mm. uh, Mark Weber. Um, but basically a college dropout who uh, is the son of a famous judge and is very much not in great position with his dad because he has started a casino out of his apartment. Mm. Uh, it was his first big business venture. He finds this um, suburban investment firm that he doesn't know but is really pretty shady. Uh, and he starts working for them and it becomes a thing where he sort of works his way up and then gets to a place where it becomes like Prince of the City time and he's got to maybe get caught or get himself in trouble. Or, and he's dealing with some people where we see the repercussions a little bit of like taking their money and they're fucked. And mm. so it, it gets it get, goes to a darker emotional place. But there's some great bits of like Affleck at, you know, pretty peak form where he's delivering basically Alec Baldwin dialogue from Glengarry Glenn Ross. And at one point, Nikki Cat even says, Do you see Glengarry Glenn Ross? Yeah. Okay, do you remember ABC? Yeah, always be closing. That's right. Always be closing. Telling's not selling. That's the attitude you want to have, okay? So there's that, and then there's another scene where they're literally fucking watching Wall Street on TV, and they're just doing the lines. You know, that kind of shit, I just, I'm a sucker for it. But um, it's got a nice tension to it, and, you know, they are assholes, but they are a bit more humanized for me, and I think that is the difference for it. Uh, it's not as good a film as Wall Street. Yeah. I would never make a case that... It, uh, that it is, although I feel well, the viewing experience to me is a similar one in terms yeah. of like how I feel about it, you know, yeah. just what I get out of it. So a lot of those films are unpleasant too, like even Wall Street, the characters in Absolutely. the world are unpleasant. No, it's kind of adherent to this material, you know. Um, but but yeah, I, I think this one is was definitely a big deal when it came out. Yeah, on I DVD, remember when right? it came out. But but I feel like nobody's really talking about this. I haven't thought about it since the theater. Actually, I mean, I remember it being an interesting movie and a lot of young talent. I remember that being the big deal. Yeah, yeah. Ben Affleck, like you noticed him in that film. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like his first rodeo, no. but he was definitely a high point. And again, Nikki Cat yeah. is perfectly cast and and not 
in that Nikki Cat way where he's quiet, 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 and then really fucking over mm-hmm. the top or whatever. He's mostly quiet and a dick, and he just plays that role. So, like he's an actor. Unfortunately, I feel like has been pigeonholed as a dick, mm-hmm. and he plays that really well. But I think he's a really solid actor that could do more than that. Um, but he just does this one thing really well. Quite a few link ladder people. Yeah, totally, absolutely. Um, um, boiler room. Yeah, it's gonna. Uh, yeah, the, all, all of these films. I think. Um, if somebody asked me, like, the movies that most would typify, like, what we're going through now in terms of, like, the, how politics feel and what America is right now, like, the two I would think of right, would be, honestly, uh, There Will Be Blood and Wolf of Wall Street. I think they're the two movies that, unfortunately, just show this, like, awful corruption of of the soul and, you know, unfortunately, what we all are kind of going through. But, um, yeah, this is uh, the one uh, a big movie that I've always wanted to get in here somehow. I wanted a reason to rewatch it. It's probably the best pairing I'll ever do with a movie like it perfect and that is treasure of the sierra madre you know what i'm thinking i'm thinking we ought to give up leave the whole outfit everything behind and go back to civilization what's that you say go back <laughs> well tell my old grandmother i got two very elegant bedfellows who kick at the first drop of rain and hide in the closet from thunder rumbles my 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 what great prospectors two shoe clerks reading the magazine about prospecting for gold in the land in the midnight sun south the border or west of the rockies <laughs> shut your trap shut up or i'll smash your head flat go ahead go ahead throw it if you did you'd never leave this wilderness alive without me you two would die here more miserable than rats i'll leave him alone <laughs> can't you see the old man's nuts <laughs> nuts Nuts, am I? Let me tell you something, my two fine bedfellows. You're so dumb, there's nothing to compare you with. You're dumber than the dumbest jackass. Look at each other, will you? Do you ever see anything like yourself for being dumb specimens? <laughs> You're so dumb, you don't even see the riches you're treading on with your own feet. <laughs> I mean, and because of one line that at the start of this movie, this is John Huston directed, 1948. We have yet to bring it up on our show. It's one of the great movies of all time. Uh, but I hadn't seen it in 20 years. And I've been wanting to rewatch it. I kept thinking, oh, I wonder if it's going to play on theaters. I know sometimes AMC or someone. And uh, then as soon as I, this is the first thing actually I paired of all these because I just remembered one line, which sums up Wolf of Wall Street, but it's in this movie. And it's where Walter Houston is talking about his exploits. He's an old kind of gold explorer and Bogart and uh, Tim Holt have come in after a rough day at work and they're both kind of drunk and they have no prospects and they kind of go to this flop house and they hear Walter Houston talking and he's talking about how he had big scores, but then eventually you lose all the money and you do, I've never met a prospector who's ever been left with anything. It doesn't matter how rich he got. You end up with nothing. And at one point they say, like, why didn't you just go back? And he just turns and goes, because I know what gold does to man's souls. And that line could be the tagline for Wolf of Wall Street because literally it's the same trajectory that Bogart's character uh, goes through in this. It's the darkest thing that Bogart ever goes to. I mean, by the end of this movie, it's it's really surprising, actually, even rewatching it, what happens to his character, thinking about that that's Humphrey Bogart, uh, the way you watch this. Uh, what I didn't remember, I, I didn't remember, I kept at the start of this movie, I was like, oh, who is this young actor who he's paired with? This guy's great. And I'm like, oh my God, it's Tim Holt. He's from Magnificent Amberson. Yep. And my brain did not go back to Amberson's until like halfway through this movie. And then nice. I got really excited. But the, Walter Houston steals this movie like so thunder uh it, it, there's a beautiful story that is that john houston you know said to his dad like one day i'm gonna write you a role that's like you know actually gonna be 
the role written for you and this was the movie he delivered and he you know walter won an oscar for it um it's just you know these two american i can't remember which latin american it's somewhere deep in mexico um or maybe you know it's mexico uh you see the bogart character he hasn't got a cent to his name he's t- uh, he keeps asking if he sees americans on the streets he'll ask for a penny the one he keeps running into is like a young john houston who keeps giving him like you know a quarter and then eventually wises on, you know, onto the fact that it's the same guy saying like you know you need a job get get your shit together uh he then ends up at one point buying uh, the, he buys a um lottery ticket uh from this little boy and i need to see this movie again i only just watched this a few weeks ago but uh, something I learned about this afterwards, he buys this from a little boy at the start who's been harassing him. He's really annoying. Eventually buys a lottery ticket, ends up actually winning on this lottery ticket and using that money to buy into the scheme that they're, the three of them are going to kind of join forces and go on a prospect for gold because uh, they're down and out with nothing. But it, I read after that the little boy is Robert Blake. I think that's right. And, and at the yeah. time, I would not have even, because I just saw this cute little Mexican boy. And so I read this like only recently and my brain went, what? And so I now I almost have to go back just to see if, because we were just talking about Lost Highway so much. Yeah. Um, the mystery man, I can't believe he's. But uh, there's something about the group dynamics. It's it's definitely one of the best films ever made about group dynamics of men. And uh, yeah, because they're really good buddies at the start of this movie and you really trust each other and they kind of build up this level of trust. They go off and they, you know, actually discover, they, they achieve the dream. Obviously, this would be a big influence on There Will Be Blood as well. And they achieve the dream. And then after, there's like this like mining accident and ever after that. I'm not sure if they're really implying that something altered for Bogart after being maybe hit on the head. But Tim Holt's the one who saves him, could have left him and taken his gold. He doesn't. He saves him. And then slowly you have this mental erosion of the Bogart character turning dark, turning against them, uh, turning Gollum-like. Uh, and he's very much like the Jordan Belfort character. They all show different sides of it and show different sides in a sense because you could view Walter Houston as the McConaughey character. The, he's the professional who's teaching them how to do it, how to turn their life. They're all penny stock guys who become major leaguers. So it's actually a pretty nice one to decode and, and we it's unquestionable that uh, Scorsese is probably a huge fan of this. I've never heard him talk about it, but you can know for sure uh, that he would love this movie. But it, it was watching again, that's the thing. I know sometimes it just seems like we are just talking about movies or pairing movies for fun, but like actually the experience of doing the pairing is also changing the movie you're pairing with. Because I'm watching this movie to try to pair it with Wolf of Wall Street, it becomes a slightly different movie in the process because as I'm watching it, I'm going, oh, that traces to that. And and so that's one of the things I like about doing this for, from our perspective. I, I can't speak to the people who then might try a pairing, but this one, it's as good a pairing with a movie to me as throwing back to a past movie as I could ever imagine in this context just because it actually probably makes Wolf of Wall Street better if you see it through this lens of, for oh, sure. I see what they're doing. Just and, thinking about it. And thinking about what greed uh, greed as well obviously i'm a huge greed fan but i think this one's even better than greed for this movie because of the the kind of guys they are at the start versus who they are at the end where walter houston's unchanged from start to end he's actually a great character uh and if you don't want to there's a very minor spoiler but if you have never seen treasure c roger just fast forward you know one minute uh but you're, you're gonna love this there's a there's a line in Wolf of Wall Street, where he talks about what all this is, and it's uh, it's during the great part where he starts pounding his chest, and before that, because you know what Fugazi is, Fugazi, yeah. it's just fairy dust. And he's like, it's nothing. And the end of Treasure Sea Madre, the gold is reduced to literally dust that blows away in the wind. And when they get to it, they just look at it and they laugh. Their entire fortunes, Fugazi, it's all nothing, and they survive and can laugh about it, and that's why they get to survive. And Bogart couldn't because he believed in the Fugazi and that's the th- and that's the thing that draws you down and and that to me like that was saying I wouldn't have quite gotten 
just watching it on its own is a great ending. But having that little memory of him going Fugazi and fairy dust was enough to make me go, okay, that's a that's cool, you know. Yeah, man, that's uh, great. Super fun. But it's it's such a and it's such a realistic film in a lot of ways. The way they shoot the bar fights, it feels like real fighting. It feels like pretty. What year is that? Forty eight. Feels pretty pretty exciting for that period. Yeah. Because um, like I love I like Maltese Falcon a lot, but it's not a movie. It doesn't feel very modern to me, and so it doesn't. It just feels in line with great detective movies, but it doesn't turn me on if that makes sense. Whereas this kind of this kind of very uh, modern approach that Houston takes is, you know, he's a, he's another one of the great directors. Keep reinventing what he does every few years. I think. Yeah, I I was I was in a similar boat to you with Maltese until within the last maybe ten years, mm. and I'd, yeah, I I watched it a few it. more times, and I was like, this movie is fucking amazing, and I got my wife to watch it. And even my wife was like, this movie's fucking yeah. amazing. No, I always but, liked it, but it's but just, no, no, yeah. It's that's just than... to say that that's a great movie, and this is an equally great movie. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and and definitely those two together yeah. are fucking showstoppers. I mean, that, yeah. that's a man's career just alone right there. And, and Bogart, seen, too. Very different. Bogart totally. Was, yeah. and absolutely different Bogart. And actually, one of the first movies that showed me that Bogart had a little range. Yeah. You know, not that I totally doubted it, but I needed to see it. Also, uh, and, and being an actor like that and being un, uh, being willing to take on a role which is going to make you look deeply unpleasant and challenge your... And just, you don't look good through the whole movie. Yeah. You're dirty and depressed and yeah, psychotic. No, it, and it, it, It's really, yeah, it's a great, you know, I just, I think any movie that tackles greed in these ways and shows the destructive force of it, I think are really important. That's the thing, like Wolf of Wall Street feels does feel like an important film about now, even if it's an unpleasant one, but it's also, the times are also unpleasant. And so yeah. it's... A pretty good reflection of what what uh, Wall Street is. No, that's a very solid pairing, man. I like it a lot. Yeah, Sierra Madre is just a great fucking movie that I feel like so good. has a good reputation, but I still feel like not enough people have seen it. As far I think as it I'm doesn't concerned. fit into like what genre. Like if you're doing westerns, it do, it's not a western. There's no. some western gunplay. Yeah, but what is it? It's a adventure movie. Well, only a little bit. It's a depressing character drama for sure, yeah. and, and it's a really it's kind of epic, but it's actually more intimate then it is an epic. It's all about these three characters. So it's, you know, it's, it's comfortable. But I also think Tim Holt's really good in it. He's great. You know, he's really likable. He's I, almost I a Mitch, say, young Mitchum quality. Yeah. I, uh, I was going to say, I, maybe he's better than he is in Amberson's. But well, Amberson's, he's just playing more of a, a prey. Like he's just a little a, spoiled. I feel like and, that's an easier character. Yeah. And not to say he, he would have been younger. Too, great job yeah. with it. But I feel like this is a really interesting, I feel like, you have to have a third guy that yeah. keeps the dynamic because Walter Houston's fucking great and Bogart's great. Yeah, so yeah. you need that third guy and, and he really it, does yeah. a great way. Yeah. It's really, really cool movie. Good stuff, man. All right. Last one. Um, we are talking about silence from 2016, which neither of us had seen until this uh, episode. Sick of being trapped in here all day. Eat. We don't even know if father Ferreira is alive or dead. The villagers never even heard of him. These people are so frightened. It's fear all they have. And lice. They have us. We comfort them. How much longer can we do that? We asked for this mission, Francisco. We prayed for this in the exercises. God heard us then, and he hears us now. Well, then may he guide us to Ferreira so we can know the truth. <clears throat> You think it's possible that his strength gave out and he groveled to this Inquisitor in a way, went on his knees like a dog? That's still just a rumor. Even if this in a way is the devil everyone claims, Ferrer would stand up to him. One of us must go to Nagasaki and find him. It's too dangerous. For us, for the people who shelter us. We send Kichichiro, he brings back word we can act on. Are you mad? Where is he? 
He's never here. He's always drunk. You know he can't be trusted. What do we do? We must do something to find Father Ferreira. Rodriguez is uh, somebody who, uh, in a sense, gives up his faith to gain his faith. And that's the paradox. And when we were getting ready to make the picture, I realized that I was trying to create something that had been with me for many years since I was a teenager when I first wanted to make movies. And I'd, as I said earlier, I'd studied for the priesthood, uh, didn't make it, uh, realized early on that it wasn't my calling. It's certainly a vocation, but it wasn't mine. Um, it was the calling of someone I had admired, a priest, a neighborhood priest who taught, taught us a lot. I wanted to be like him, but that's not the reason to be a priest. And I had this other calling, I guess, and it was making movies. And I had an idea to make a picture about a priest, actually, many years ago. A priest who had the calling, but who needed to take that extra step of getting past his ego and his spiritual pride, because it's the parishioners that have to come first, always. And I realized that this was the picture I was making, in a sense, while I was, while I was making it, really, while I was shooting it. Uh, I mean, I touched on this before, Mean Streets and certain other pictures, but, you know, here I was, well, 60 years later, dealing with the theme that has been with me since I was so young. So, Rodriguez and, and to a certain extent Garupe have to get through themselves. They have to get past themselves and their pride. They have to give it up. They have to give up their egos. They have to be selfless. They have to lose the self, right? Both of them have the illusion that they'll be able to define their own spiritual paths, but of course, it's never the case. No, and it was a, it was a big deal that we were both kind of, I mean, it's, it was also for this whole project. I mean, this is crazy that we are now at our last pairing of what has been like a year of our kind of ultimately pairing, you know, parsing it out over the year. But it's been a long-running project. He's, he's got a lot of films. Each one's been eight to ten movies. At times the ones we're pairing with, um, neither of us had seen. And I think that was a bit of a carrot to dangle <clears throat> that you got to end with something new. Which is really cool. That's that was one of the nice things about uh, ending with his latest film. I don't know why I didn't see it in theaters at the time. It's baffling to me because I always go to see Scorsese films straight. This is the first I think I ever didn't see in the theater uh, in my adult going movie life. I think you're right. I think I had the same thing. Like which Kundin, I guess, is the same with me. But that was I think the timing, you know, because I think that's when I was just starting to go to everything, but anything post that one. So it's interesting. Maybe it's the religious thing. Yeah, I think that may have kept me out and the fact that I it wasn't one that I could easily sell to my wife and I usually <laughs> like to see movies with her and um, so sometimes when there's a movie where I'm like eh, I don't know if this is an easy sell I'll just wait and then it becomes I'm still waiting and I need a reason and now you know um, but I was gonna I told you of the three faith films if you will yeah uh, I think this is my favorite even over Last Temptation of Christ, which sounds insane because that's such an amazing film. But this one, especially towards the end, engaged me on a level that none of the other films did. And and I, I was engaged by Last Temptation of Christ in spots. Yeah. But I think this one built structurally for me just in the perfect way because it's about obviously these two um, priests. Jesuit priests, yeah. Yeah, who are um, going to... Japan to look for another missing priest uh, played by uh, Liam Neeson. And they are dealing with and witness to a lot of religious persecution from the higher up Japanese military and things like that. It's a brutal movie. Yeah, it's really brutal. And it opens with like a horrible scene of torture where 
uh, Liam Neeson's character is forced to watch a bunch of uh, converted Christian um, Japanese folks get thrown on crosses and they're near these hot springs and the um, soldiers take these little cups which have like holes punched in the bottom and they just dribble the hot water on them in this horrible, horrible yeah, it's torturous like, way. It's like, it feels like ancient torture devices yeah, and they're trying awful. to get you to uh, you know, basically forsake your God by saying he's not real and stepping on, is it the Bible? Well, they have it. They have like they have a, 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 a picture of Christ. Face. Yeah. It's like a, it's like a, like a piece of gold or mm. something, but it's like a picture of Christ that you're supposed to step on to and forsake. If you forsake yes. your, uh, faith and, you know, obviously there are major religious wars going on. Uh, and it's, I see, I had, I had my opposite problem. I did get engaged by the ending and some of the, because I think once, you know, spoiler, but once Liam Neeson comes back in the story, it's largely because he's also such an engaging presence. But there's certain sequences of that that I found myself uh, super engaged in. Like there's a major uh, torture sequence. Uh, there's an incredible sequence where a couple of the Japanese uh, faithfully Christian are put on crosses in the ocean. That's probably the most remarkable oh. sequence of the movie where you're like, I've never seen that before. It's, it's rough. It's rough. Uh, but I, I struggled with the setup, so I was never really in it because, uh, you know, you got Andrew Garfield and— um, Are you a fan of his? Dri- I can be in the right role. Yeah, yeah, I mean, under the Silver Lake, he's actually really interesting. I think he's well cast. In that. Yeah, I agree. I think seeing two Westerners as Portuguese priests, there's—it's not that I'm being—you know, I, there's a lot of movies we see this kind of thing. But it, it kept me a little at bay at times. Uh, Adam Drive's really not in that much. Uh, I just—you never really know why you don't— like you could see the same movie like one obvious movie that's similar is Merry Christmas Mr. Lawrence by Oshima that has a lot of pairings I didn't pair it in the end it's hard to rewatch but actually has a lot of similarities in terms of torture and being caught uh, you know Um, but there's just sometimes you don't know why you're not getting into the character because to, to Andrew Garfield's the eyes of this film why am I not feeling the movie with this guy? And I just never was. And I don't know if it's maybe because he's going in there with this mission to stay true to the critic. Like that doesn't make him a hero in my eyes. Cause I don't know. I don't believe in what he believes in. Yeah. And I don't, the Japanese people are definitely in the wrong for how they're going about it. The, the characters I empathize with most are some of the uh, Japanese townsfolks who really believe in him and Christianity and don't want to turn on it and are being tortured. They're the characters who I most kind of feel for in the movie. Um, but sometimes it's just that clash of the like a Western actor and, and a lot of the characters speaking in English when when actually I would I feel like this movie would have been better subtitled, but it probably cost way too much money. I know it's very expensive. I know this is a major dream project for him. It probably they probably could never have gotten away with it. I know it lost a lot of money anyway. Yeah. Um, so I don't begrudge it. These are these are again, I think, personal things. I just failed. Well, it's to, so weird because I, I had a similar issue, like I said, with Kundun, but yeah. it didn't bother me as much in this movie, and I can't exactly tell you yeah. why. No, and again, sometimes just the viewing conditions. Um, but there were sequences I definitely respected, and no point did, did I not see the craft. The craft is really beautiful. Cinematography is beautiful. It's just the way it's. But for me, it was a story that was hard to engage in and hard to kind of. Uh, understand on that level, uh, even though I could historically, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, oh, it's fair, man. I I think that you know it's a it's a hugely um, critically appraised movie, and yeah. I I get it. But yeah, it's it's not quite the closer that I wanted for this episode, but it still was more compelling than I 
expected. You know? Yeah, the movie star quality when Liam Neeson is in the movie. I think if he had been, if there was a movie where he's the main guy I'm following, I, there, I think there's something about it that maybe I would have been more in. That's possible. Um, but, but I also think when he comes out. That, that, you know, again, without spoiling too much, there's a presentation of clashing ideas yeah. at the end that I think is really thought provoking. And I think he sells his side of it really well. Yeah. And Garfield is obviously very committed to what he's thinking. And I think that's the stuff that really made it resonate for me is just to kind of be stuck between the two of them thinking about what they're saying and trying to figure out where I land. Yeah. It's a really interesting movie in terms of clash of beliefs, like that people are willing to literally torture and maim each other about what you believe happens after you die. And that's ultimately what you're watching. If people willing to go that far just because they don't believe what the other people believe in that in something that's unknowable, you know? It's, yeah. I guess, like all, most wars have been based on religion. So uh, hard to fathom. But, uh, yeah, and there's, you know, a lot of good people. I will. The thing that's most interesting in the movie to me and the one thing I kind of latched onto, and if you're listening to our recent episode, you'll probably enjoy hearing this, but uh, one of the best characters and the character I probably most emotionally identified with and didn't even recognize him at the time is uh, the director of the movie I just discussed in our Mind Trip episode, Snake of June, is actually cast as one of the main characters. Uh, Shinya Tsukamoto, who made Tetsuo, had <laughs> one of the main roles in this. And his, his role is as um, uh, Mokichi, the one who dies on the cross in the water. Oh, wow. So he's actually one of the main guys. But the but what I didn't know, because I didn't know while I was watching it, because I had, I, I've seen him in a lot of his own movies. He is Tetsuo. Uh, I didn't recognize him in the movie. It wasn't until doing the research. I was like, what? Shinya's? And then when I realized he was one of the major roles, even more mind-blowing, and then I stumbled upon an article, and this is just like when movies doesn't get it better than this. Shinya Tsukamoto heard that Scorsese uh, was making a movie and just decided on a, on a whim because he's so a fan of Scorsese that he would apply as an actor uh, Scorsese's casting director who he's made a bunch of movies with she apparently has just got this like almost supernatural quality and she had seen a photo of him not knowing who he is in a movie thought he looked great met him he didn't say he was a director didn't say anything <laughs> just presented himself as an actor and she was just like you're oh you're the guy like you have she thinks thought his face was just like you have this perfect face she got really excited she set up a meeting for him to meet as an actor with Scorsese. And he, and he literally said, Shinya said, uh, I, would, I would be an extra in a Scorsese movie. She sets up, she, he, she walks him into the casting audition and Marty, Marty looks up and goes, oh, is he coming to watch the audition? Like, hey, Shinya, what, is the master coming to walk? And then, and then she goes, who? She had no idea as a director. Oh, wow. And she goes, no, no, he's, he's like the actor for the thing. And then Marty and Shinya both like bowed at the same time because they're both in awe of each other. That's awesome. And then he's like, Scorsese cast this really radical punk ass director to play this very emotional, uh, real role. So that to me, I, I almost, and I, you know, I am such a film nerd about this kind of stuff that if I had known that before I saw this, I probably would have liked the movie on a whole nother level because I would have been excited about this thing and yeah. this guy that, so it's kind of in, in retrospect now, I'm glad I found that out because it might, it might, um, you know, if I give it another viewing, but I, I did think that at the time that that character and the guy who keeps running away every time, mm-hmm. those characters were really compelling because mm-hmm. they were, it was just interesting to see somebody at that time who was a Christian and was willing to die for that belief, even though most of their country's against them, you know? Yeah. Now the, the running away guy was very interesting because obviously it's a, it's an emotionally difficult thing to watch, but there's part of me that's like, I might be that guy. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. Like, Cause it's not, you don't want to die, but you want to be forgiven every time. It's yeah. such a weird thing. But anyway, um, so for my pairing, uh, 
I went with some Bergman. Oh, okay, nice. I started to, I finally cracked open my Bergman set, which uh-huh. I hadn't thus far. And um, I could guess which movie it is. I'm pretty sure you know which movie it is. I, I could guess that it would be, if it's Faith, I mean, he's got a few Faith ones, but I'd go Winterlight. That is correct. It is Winterlight from 1963. Winterlight. Ingmar Bergman, the most celebrated and distinguished filmmaker of our time, presents his first film since winning two Academy Awards. Bergman reaches new heights in dramatic achievement as he explores the life of a country pastor, his relationship with his mistress, and the people around him. Starring Gunnar Bjornstrand as the pastor, struggling to find God and love in a winter world. And as his mistress, who sheds all pride in a desperate effort to give her love, Ingrid Tulin. With the star of The Seventh Seal and The Virgin Spring, Max von Sydow. And Gunnell Lindlum. As a tormented fisherman and his wife. A strange couple, caught up in the compulsive fears of a world they see only as hostile. Um, so you had obviously seen this before you saw First Reformed, I'm guessing. Yeah, no, I saw Winterlight a long time ago. So, like, I was, and, and this is so funny because, uh, you know, big fan of the show, Allison Major put out a tweet the other day that was great, and it's just like, watching Winter Light after you've seen First Reformed, like, and it's like a Marty McFly in Back to the Future, hey, I've seen this, which oh, yeah. I think is great, because yeah. it is, like, basically, Schrader owes him some money, is really what's it, well, going it's, it's that one, and there's some dryer that Schrader's definitely- No, I'm kidding. It's, and Diary of a Country Priest. He, he's ripping off three directors at once who are yeah. all probably influenced by each other around totally. the same time but, but you're right Winterlight's definitely like the, he looks like that kind of guy the most, well but you know? but there's the there's the really specific plot yeah. point of like the opening is how do you say, say his name Gunnar Bjornstrand yeah, really uh, he's he plays this pastor and you see him giving mass and uh Max von Sydow and his wife are in the crowd and then she comes back later and she's like he really needs to talk to you he's basically obsessed with the idea that China has nuclear weapons, I think, yeah. and they're going to blow up the world. And it's very, very much the yeah, same that's premise right. I had forgotten that, yeah. as the guy in First Reformed, yeah. who's got a different post-apocalyptic yeah. fantasy. Um, Schrader so, did write a book on these guys. Yeah, yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> this so it's book, not, Transcendental Style, it's all about those guys. <laughs> yeah, but I was just so shocked. Yeah. I was like, wow, that's straight out of First Reformed. Like, he clearly yeah. just took that. Um, and obviously there's some other stuff where uh, the pastor's also dealing with, like, his own issues, and I won't go too far into that, but there's a woman that uh, is obsessed with him and is trying to get him to come around to her romantically, and he's fucking very cruel to her, and... Um, just like Hulk is to the choir lady. Yeah. The, the woman who just rejects flat out. I remember watching wow, that before I, I shocked. About that. Oh, no, that's exactly that wow. scene. Wow. Because he flat out rejects her and he's really so mean. So there's even more winter light in, yeah, in no, First Reform than I remember, yeah. um, which is interesting. But um, another thing I love about this movie is 81 minutes. That's yeah. fucking sweet. Um, but there's a lot of emotion packed into yeah. this 81 minutes. It's very Bergman, it's very stoic. Um, but there are some great scenes. There's a really amazing scene where the pastor just like lights up this woman in a she's in a like a she's a teacher and she has a classroom in her home and they're sitting in this kid's classroom at these little kids desks and he's just saying some horrible things to her and it was really powerful um but it is a crisis of faith you know i mean obviously the silence of god is the thing that he's struggling with like and that's very much what the silence is about um so i you know i had some other ideas for this one but i just thought you know you you inspired me with your bergman pick uh Power of the Wolf. Yeah, Power of the Wolf, which I still need to see, by the way. And so I was just like, I'm gonna let me crack yeah. into some Bergman here, and it was great. I mean, it's really, 
it's not a movie I'm going to come back to anytime yeah. soon, but it was a really neat movie to get to because of Scorsese. Yeah, so. and did you have that in mind when you push play that you're probably going to pair it? Yeah, that's yeah. what I was thinking. So that, and that often is a different driving force, I which looked I at, like. Yeah. I looked at, I feel like there was three Crisis of Faith mm-hmm. movies. It was uh, Silence, Winter Light, and there was one more that I'm blanking on right now. Somebody's screaming in their car about it. but Yeah, um, I mean, I think yeah, the one with the, um, the married to the woman who's having the mental illness... Yes, through Glass Darkly. Yeah, through Glass Darkly. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah, with the spider. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, they're, they're all really effective. I think all his films are kind of like Schrader. All his films are about Crisis Faith and maybe all of Marty's. You know, it's, it's, it is fascinating way. how these guys, are, you know, you see the influence on each other. Uh, and it's more than influence. It's like going to a movie. You're probably young Marty Scorsese and you see the film like that on the screen and you're – you go, oh, I see that. I know that. I mean, because uh, Bergman's dad was a minister, a very strict minister. So obviously that's why it affected him. Mm. And he didn't necessarily, I don't think Bergman necessarily believed in God. I don't think he did. And I think, so I think he struggled with having, if uh, Fanny and Alexander, you see the, that at its peak for that character of his dad. And Scorsese was going to become a Jesuit priest. So he's obviously dealing with a lot of that in his family. Man, um, I went so far. <laughs> So when literally I'm going to say I saved the best for last, I did save the best uh, movie here for the last. It's a movie that instantly I had in my head because the, these religious ones didn't necessarily work for me. But I'm particularly um, particularly annoyed when I'm watching science, not about the movie, but about the fact that people are killing each other about something that they cannot possibly know. And it really kind of upsets me. They're saying about like of all the things for us to kill each other about, uh, about what happens after we're on this planet is the dumbest thing we could fight about because A, we don't know and B, it's just like why shorten our life to get there. Uh, And it really annoys me. And so when I see this movie and it's so heavy in dealing with like one side believes this, one's reincarnation and the other side believes in Christian God. Anyway, there's something so heavy about it that there's this movie I saw that again this was the one I was, I was telling you about how difficult this was to get a hold of oh, this, is, the this is the one I yeah I had to go to Eddie Brandt's after multiple video stores it's um it used to be easy it was a Tartan video release from 98 I started at a film festival and it, it's one of the it's the opposite of tone of all these movies but it's still about the same stuff it's the lightest touch imaginable it's called Afterlife what if there is an afterlife What if, before you get to heaven, you go to a special place? A place where you choose one memory to take with you forever. What is the one memory you would choose? Would it be love's awakening or a tender farewell? Would it be the promise of youth or the reflection of age? Would it be a moment of beauty or the beauty of silence. Choosing a single memory could mean rediscovering your life. And it's oh, I know this one. Yeah, Hirokazu Koreeda. So last year, Koreeda had a Oscar-nominated film called Shoplifters that was actually really good. Um, which I say that like I'm surprised. Every film he's made has been really good, but to me, Afterlife's just a freaking flat-out masterpiece. It took me a few weeks to track it down again. I saw this uh, at a film festival in '98. Uh, and it That's really cool. stayed with me. This was on DVD, so even the DVD was the really The DVD hard. is the one, what I was looking for. Wow. Yeah, it was a, it's a, it's sad. like you know super expensive online. It, it, it's bizarre that it's not on Blu-ray in Japan. 
it must be in Japan because this was a major. I film. have seen this. I have definitely oh. seen this. I remember this came out. You remember the cover, it, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, I just remember the con- when I'm reading the concept of it. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I remember so, liking this. So the, the the concept just simply, and it is such a simple film. And there's a part of me that I'm watching this again, and I'm thinking to myself, if Wes Anderson got the remake rights to this, he will be winning an Oscar if he could do it subtly enough. If he didn't go as like push it too stylized, because what's beautiful about this is it's not stylized at all. It is just one of the sweetest and most perfect movies. And I knew it was, and I was like, ah, but I haven't seen it in like since 98. And But I know it's the perfect film to end A, Scorsese on, and B, the silence on, because it's so different. But it's about the same stuff. And in this one, it's not about the fight for it, but the, you basically are in this very, very by-the-numbers kind of way station place, uh, which, as you learn very quickly, is the afterlife. It's shot more or less like a documentary, but a very you know, very Japanese, almost Ozu documentary where it's all locked off camera, but it's, but it's shot. It's not flashy. There's nothing special about the cinematography. Um, you're in this place where it basically opens like documentary interviews with people and, and they say, you know, you know, understand why you're here. And the person goes, uh, maybe, you know, and they're like, well, you know, so you've died, you know, you're, you have three days from now, we need to help you, uh, decide of all your memories in your life. You're going to pick one memory and you're gonna tell us and we're gonna take notes and then by the fifth day, we're gonna have filmed that memory and try to recreate it with our filmmaking team and then we're gonna, on the last day, we'll play that movie for that memory for you and that memory will be then what you live on into when you pass on and then you leave this place. But it's treated just like any nine to five, it's like The Office, for, but not treated for comedy even though there's like nice comic touches as a very light touch but it's not jokey and that would be how you'd screw this up if you remade it if you and that's i think what Corriere has as a great talent is a light touch and making things very humanistic like and what's fascinating is i guess they mixed real people with scripted people with these interviews so you're hearing real recounts of real dreams or favorite memories mixed with some of the people who are performers and you just cannot tell the difference it's just so fluid and it doesn't look like a documentary but it feels so real and it's basically these people who work there uh, are just like they're all different types and one is this like young girl looks like she's from like Chunking Express like cutesy and she's got a crush on this other guy who's like looks like he's 22 and he looks like kind of a, a pop star heartthrob almost and he's but he's very serious and he one of his clients for the week and each person gets a different client who they're trying to help and the hard part is getting the memory some people sit down and know it straight away but because this is eternity it, the concept's so good. Like you're just sitting watching, going, oh my God, that's the best concept about the afterlife I've ever heard. But um, there's a great one where the like this young teen girl comes in, she's like 17, and she's just going, and then when I went to you know Disney World Japan with my friend and we we're on the ride and it was the best memory of my life. And the young girl who's one of the people working there just kind of pulls her side afterwards, goes, you know, I've only been here two years and you're the 40th person to say that. You know, you might really want to rethink your memory. I'm not impressed. <laughs> and so forces the girl to rethink. It's kind of cute. But the young guy who, who she's got a crush on, he um, he's really serious and he's with this really old guy who can't make a decision. He passes the three-day window and you're like, what happens after three days? And he just can't make a decision. So they bring out all these VHS tapes that has every moment of his entire life and he's just watching, you know, things with his wife and they're like, well, you could pick a memory with your wife. And he's like, do I have to? And it's just like, <laughs> so he's watching all these moments and, you're, and you're, it's like really interesting. And there's a great line where the young guy who's like 21 is with this 80-year-old man and he says, well, you know, back in our generation, the old man's like, well, our generation? You realize, oh yeah, when I, I died at 21 and at the war and I stayed the way I look, but I'm your age. We were from the same. And it's a great, like you go, oh, what a great idea. So what you start to realize is the people who work there 
are ones who weren't able to make a decision about which memory to settle nice. on. So they work there and they're running, the, which just seems like a regular office. It just happens to be, and they, they just have a really great camaraderie. And then the fun part towards the, you know, in the last kind of act after people, there's still people who are holdouts and they're struggling. And the last part is they're going to make these dreams. And you see these very, just treated like low key, like one guy was a pilot and they've got a fake plane out. And they, and then the guy, one guy comes in and sticks to like a production designer, like, hey, you can use like cotton wool or something. Yeah, yeah, we use cut for the, for the, for the clouds. And you just see, it's like they're building like a little Wes Anderson movie inside the movie. That's what they film, and then they're going to screen those. And they don't spend a lot of time. I think if it was a Western remake, they'd probably show you the big sequences at the end where you see the movies. They never really do that. They just show you the people watching. But it's it has such a light touch that it's – I think this would be regarded as like one – if somebody was doing one of those timeout 100 best movies around the world, this would make that list. But maybe because of the availability uh, right now, it's being forgotten. It is the perfect movie to watch with something as heavy as Silence because it just shows that, well – this movie has just as much possibility of being completely what happens to us when we die as any other movie ever made. We could literally go to a way station where people could remake our dreams, and there's no reason to think that's not what the afterlife is. And I love that about the fact that we have no idea. Whatever well, you want to believe, we have no idea. I, I also like the idea of bureaucracy in the afterlife, yeah. just like defending your life. And they have hierarchy. Yeah, no, it actually would pair really nicely. Defending yeah. your life's another good version. But there's something about the lightness of, it's really hard until you see a film by him. Shoplifter is a little more overtly emotional because it's about a f- people uh, creating a family who, from like street kids that they meet and like bring them all together. And so it has like, it pulls at your heartstrings in a much more obvious way. This one never tries any it's just showing you what it is and you're either going to react to it and take it in uh but i would really place this as at my highest level of recommendations for people who love those kind of movies and if wes is listening <laughs> i really think you can win an oscar if you could get the rights to this movie because i you're one of the only people i think you could make the right western version there you go. Uh, even though he's a lot more stylized but yeah it's a really beautiful film and and i i, I love I love how, like you said, the bureaucracy, I just love how those characters who, that's just their job every week. We have to try to help these people inch closer to finding that memory. I love the idea that you'd remake the one memory and that's what you get to live in. That's it. I think it's a beautiful idea and I remember liking it very much, yeah, but it's, it's been, you know, since yeah, it was 98. So. I think I was at the video store late 99, early 2000 yeah. when I would have seen it. You would have definitely seen the cover. I think everyone's probably seen the cover from that period, uh, but man, it was not easy to find now. Nice. Well, it's too bad. I mean, it's yeah. too bad that that you had to go to such lengths. And uh, but it's cool that there's still a couple of video stores on Earth that, <laughs> if you're lucky to live in a big city, you can get to it. But yeah. hopefully, hopefully, we'll get a, a Blu-ray release someday. Yeah, I can't believe it hasn't thus far. But anyway, uh, wow, that is that is an epic closer Marty, to an yeah. epic series for this show. It just whizzed by. <laughs> Like it always does. Yes, indeed. Uh, well, one thing we know is uh, Marty's a hell of a filmmaker, and not once does he get boring. And no. he's continually trying new things. And uh, you know, we'll go down uh, as one of the Mount Rushmore filmmakers of this country. Yeah, and definitely for this show, obviously, he's a yeah. huge deal. And I'm glad we did this, and we've already sort of bounced around some ideas for the next director we might try. But um, these are epic projects, people. So just yeah, these ones. Mind. And if you are a Patreon member, just know this is what what a lot of that goes towards is the time we put into things like this and the uh, renting of things that will go towards uh, these pairings. But uh, but it's also just yeah, great to see an artist who never never stops reinventing himself. Uh, someone whose craft is still at the very top of its peak. Uh, and the one fun thing is, and um, we've decided uh, discussed, uh, we have a new film 
by uh, Scorsese coming out, uh, you know, in a couple months. So we fun. We regardless, we're going to pair that and either add it back to this episode or release it. So just so we keep any of the people we do these two, it'll be fun to kind of keep up to date with that. Yeah, we want to keep current, and I think that's a neat idea so that we can. Uh, Remind you that we did this in case you missed it, and then yeah. add a little something new to go with it. So. And that's the Irishman coming down the down the track. So, yeah, thanks for sticking with us. I know sometimes these things probably have fall off, you know, after, especially if there's a part one, two, three. And so whether whether, whether by a part three it's going to be as uh, much people as, you know, part one or two. But those who do go all the way through, even if uh, even if you know some of these aren't your favorites, or maybe you're going to have rediscoveries, we appreciate because uh, I think there's uh, still some real gems here. Yeah, I think there's definitely some stuff that I don't feel like people are talking about as much as his quote unquote classics. Yeah, and I think you and I both entered this with some trepidation about like, oh, this is going to be the hard, not the worst or the hardest, but stuff that I'll be not as engaged with as especially part two, which is not untrue but at the same time there was definitely a lot of gems and it's length i mean most of these films are closer to three hours and the other ones were were, you know two hour running length well and for that reason i i'm hoping not hoping but thinking there might be some people that have avoided some of these because of the length and hopefully we could talk you into at least giving them a shot i think that's worthwhile none of these were affected by it it was none of these was it it was just the length that of having to go back to rewatch movies as a viewer can seem like a a chore but none of these did i feel that being an issue with the movie while i'm watching it when when you're in the midst of a great filmmaker doing something it's just like let's keep this going yeah so uh thank you marty for all your wonderful work yes indeed um please come on our show (laughs) <laughs> the most desperate plea ever. Yes, no, exactly. Um, but anyway, thanks to everyone for listening. And again, thanks to uh, our support from the New Beverly and our support from some new Patreons and all the old Patreons. We've definitely gotten some new stuff since the Tarantino episode, which is lovely. But yeah, think about uh, coming on over to Patreon where we have lots of bonus content. We're um, getting ready to do another. We just had a really nice um high-level donation, only the second one of its kind we ever had. We're getting ready to do a bonus episode to go with that, Um, which you could too get if you want. Uh, But anyway, it's it's just all about supporting the show. If you like what we do and you appreciate it, you know, think about maybe throwing a buck a month our way or five bucks or whatever you want. Or share it uh, on iTunes with a review because that helps. Share it, review it. Anything you can do to get the show out there would be appreciated. Certainly not trying to just beg for money here. We we appreciate all the support on any level. So I just had a great closing connection that was just in my brain. Uh, the line I quoted from Johnny Thunders to Afterlife, you can't put your arm around a memory. And, then, <laughs> and Afterlife is about putting your arm around a memory. So it's kind of a perfect way to go Beautiful. out. A good final beat. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm. With a common denominator. And the money comes in, the parade comes to town, going down Broadway, it's a one-way street, whichever way I go.